Heather Bell coming back, yeah. We are having a binge fest, yeah. On Jordan Maxwell. We did Incorporating America. We just did Creating Man in Our Our Image, Dawn of a New Day, and Life and Trials. Let's do Secret Legacy of Moses. What do the moon, volcanoes, and magic mushrooms have in common? They all tie into the secret legacy of Moses. Jordan Maxwell traces the history of Moses from the early days of moon worship through the ages of the Zodiac and how this figure of the lawgiver plays into modern society. This is Secret Life of Simples. Moses is one of the most interesting characters in the Bible. I hope to show you why. So we all know that Moses was the prophet that brought down the law to the Jewish people, and he has become the symbol for law pretty much around the world. So in talking about Moses, you think about law. Oh but there's a lot more to Moses that you need to know. Um, I'm to get a picture of that. And he has become the he symbol for like law pretty much person. around the world. So in talking about Moses, you think about law. But there's a lot more to Moses that you need to know about. Moses was a prophet in the Jewish system of things. He was one of the oldest names in the Bible, one of the most revered uh, figures in the Bible, because he was supposedly so close to God. And he has given to the world the Ten Commandments. The history of Moses takes us back to ancient Egypt and to the Israelites back in the time of Egypt, in ancient Egypt. He was a very fierce man for the truth and for, and, for, uh, and for leading the people and supposedly the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. He was a major supposedly. leader at the time when they were in Egypt. And uh, he became, because he went up into the mountain and got the Ten Commandments from God, he became known as the lawgiver. The point we need to remember is that Moses was a very important man to the Hebrew people and to the history of the Jewish people in, in Egypt. He was uh, supposedly uh, uh, born in Egypt supposedly. and was bred in the house of the, uh, the princess and, and he was around royalty continually and yet he had a love for the Jewish God and so he protected the, the Jewish people. And, uh, and he became so important to the history of the Hebrew people at the time of Egypt that today he even is recognized as a very important person to remember in history about law. He was the one who led them out of Egypt, according to the story that um, Egyptian uh, life had become so difficult for the Jewish people and they wanted out of, uh, out of uh, Egypt. And so Moses was the one who had the strength to stand up before Pharaoh and say, let my people go and, and we will leave out of Egypt. And so this is even today still remembered a very heroic deed for Moses to step up and take the leadership of the Hebrew people and walk out of Egypt and leave Egypt. He took them up into the north where we today refer to it as, as uh, Lebanon and Israel, etc. The most important point I wish to, to... By the way, the Palestinians are supposed to be the original Hebrews. ...make is the fact that 
there is so much more to this ancient prophet uh, leader of the Hebrew people than has been discussed publicly. And I want to talk about some of those things. Moses was called by God to come up into the mountain of Mount Sinai. And um, God was going to give <laughs> Moses what we now those things. Moses was called by God to come up into the mountain of Mount Sinai. And um, God was going it to give Moses take a picture of Mount what Sinai. we now refer to. Moses was called by God to come up into the mountain of Mount Sinai. And um, God was going to give mm -hmm. Moses what we now refer to as the Ten Commandments, which is actually a new dispensation for Jewish law, a brand new way to understand the Jewish understanding of God. And so he goes up into the mountain and he encounters the presence of God. And God gives him Ten Commandments to bring back to the people to begin a new dispensation, a new understanding of God. And mm -hmm. so when Moses comes down from the mountain, he sees the, the Jewish people still worshiping God the old way. They were worshiping a golden calf because it had to do with the, uh, the particular astrological times in which they were living. Of course. And the times in which they were living then at when the time, was the time of, the of Taurus was um, Taurus de Bow. And so they were worshiping the golden calf in relation to Taurus de Bow. Well, Moses comes down and sees the, the, the Jewish people still worshiping in the old way and becomes very frustrated before he even talks to them. It comes, becomes very frustrated and then throws the law. It was referred to as the law. And so Moses throws down the law and breaks the law. So Moses was the first lawbreaker. <laughs> he was carrying uh, two stones on which the laws, the Ten Commandments were written. And so he carries these down. Uh, and then when he sees the Jewish people still worshiping the old way, he throws those down in frustration. And so that's what we get the term today, breaking the law. The Jews were worshiping the calf because they realized that that they were worshiping the sun in the age, in the astrological age of uh, Taurus the Bull. The next astrological age of which Moses was going to lead his people into the next uh, next age was going to be Aries the Ram. And he was teaching them that there was a new way they were going to worship God. And this time they would blow the ram's horn to signify the age of the ram, the shofar. Here we have pictures showing that God is handing Moses the Ten Commandments on, on these uh, tablets. The tablets themselves are very interesting, the design and what they were all about. We find that there's a very interesting connection between the Ten Commandments of the Hebrews and the 12 negative confessions of the Egyptians. The Egyptians already had 12 a law, so to speak, and they were called the 12 negative confessions. And so when you read the negative confessions and then the Ten Commandments, they're exactly the same. The only difference is, is, is one is in Egypt, they said, here are the things we will not do. It's a negative confession. Here are the things we will not do. We will not lie. We will not steal. We will not do this or that. Well, the Ten Commandments says, the Lord said, you should not do this. You should not do that. But it's very similar. So we know basically where the Ten Commandments came from, from the 12 
negative confessions of Egypt. Well, if you remember that religion itself is a development of human creativity, and uh, so many stories in different religious books around the world, so many wonderful stories in theological uh, ideas and concepts which obviously were just made up by men to promote their particular religious belief. But back to the, the Moses giving of the law, that particular scene of Moses with the Ten Commandments, the very uh, stalls and the very uh, stones themselves is very important. Moses is always the lawgiver, and the Jews today still respect Moses as probably one of the most important people in their history besides Abraham. You will see Moses in, in pictures and paintings and sculpturing. Moses has horns. Oh. And it's been around, all around the world. People oh. have wondered, why is it Moses? He has horns. And it's, it's uh, interesting to understand what the horns represent on Moses. The horns of Moses, and you will see that there was a, in the ancient world, at Moses' time, in that ancient time, there was a moon god, and the moon god's name was Sin, and he was always represented by the lower quarter of the moon. And so the lower quarter of the moon was used as a symbol for moon worship. And they had goddesses of moon worship, which you have. Also, in Rome, you had moon gods. You know, the American Native Americans also have horns because they counted their days by many moons. Their days were like the Hebrews today. After six o'clock began a new day. It was the same thing with the Native Americans. So all of these people from the ancient Hebrews to the Native Americans were using a lunar calendar. Lunar simply meaning the moon, and so the symbol for the lunar was a horn. Chinese still use the lunar calendar. Or the horns that which the Vikings used. This is a symbol for the lunar symbol, which you'll find everywhere in different religions. These are the these are the horns that Moses wore. Here in Israel, you'll see the you'll see carvings of the arms raised to raise and to praise the moon. And the Egyptian paintings show the moon. The Blessed Mother in Christianity stands on the moon. You'll see the moon um, everywhere in the ancient world of religion, which was showing us that the moon was very important, even at the time of Moses in Egypt. Moon worship was very prominent. And, of course, today, the, the Islamic world still uses the moon also. And, uh, and in the Western world, the moon is still Crescent. used as a symbol. We're talking about a moon cult many thousands of years ago in Egypt, of which Moses was a leader of the Hebrew people, which were worshippers of the moon at that time. If you go on the web and just put in, uh, just type in moon god sin, it will have all kinds of information showing you about how the moon was a very important part of worship in the ancient world. And they, they, they will also tell you that Moses was a leader of a lunar cult. It, there's a lot of information about the, the moon cult and the moon god, Yahweh or Allah. Here is a classic example in the ancient world of the, the moon god Sin. 
Now, God himself, was his name was called sin. <clears throat> it's probably where the church gets the, that, that a name. a classic example in the ancient world of the, the moon god sin. The god himself, was his name was called sin. And, and in the ancient world, Ai was a mountain in the times of ancient Egypt. Ai was a mountain. And so we have this moon god Sin on his, in, in the mountain, Ai, and put it together and becomes Sinai. So Mount Sinai is actually, no, the moon god Sin in the mountain of Sinai. Well, Mount Sinai today is, is felt to be the center for and the, and the really foundation for the Jewish religion as it began to spread throughout the Middle East. Mount Sinai was where God met, met with Moses. God met with the, his people at Mount Sinai. But Mount Sinai is actually sin AI. Right. Now it's interesting that today in most of the Western world, the word synagogue is spelled S-Y-N-A. But in Israel, it's S-I-N-A. Because... Israel realizes that the original word was S-I-N, not S-Y-N, and because of the moon god, sin. They use it, they do that to obfuscate, because sin they use that to hide the, the origins, change the spelling, people don't make the connection to sin, the moon, god. The moon god. I think it's important to realize that there's a difference in the way it's spelled one way in Israel and a different way in, in the rest of the world. Uh-huh. Here is just one of many reference works. This is by an Andrew Kay from the uh, from the Southern Methodist University. His article is Traces of the Worship of the Moon God Sin Among the Early Israelites. The Jewish tradition uh, talks about the combination of the heavenly moon as a part of the most important part of the Jewish worship at that time. There are many symbols and, and emblems and paintings showing Moses in relation to the moon. And so here is a pictures of a priest lighting a fire to signal a new moon. Here you will see an illustration of the Israelites and their worship of the moon, the prayer to the new moon. And below you will see sanctification of the new moon. This is from Amsterdam as far back as 1723, showing the importance still in the worship of Israel for the new moon, or for the moon. Above you will see the new moon etching from a, from a book back in 1748 showing the Jews celebrating the new moon. Today, the new, new moon is still very important around the world to many cultures. And here we have a picture of Egypt and the Sinai, and down to, toward the bottom of the Sinai, there was a huge mountain range. And so here we see a better picture where Mount Sinai is referred to in the area of the wilderness of Sin. And Sin, of course, is the moon god. Sin is originally the moon god of the Arabic world. Allah and Sin and, and, and Moses with, uh, with Yahweh, it all had to do with the worship of the, of the moon god, Sin. And for some reason, the ancient Arabic world placed a very high respect on the moon. It's probably based on 
some phenomena that the, that the new moon caused because the Arabic world and the ancient world in general realized that the moon has a huge effect on our bodies, it has an effect on our uh, food supply, and it pulls the oceans of the world, and so the moon was very important to the ancient world. I mean, that is a whole study in itself, why the uh, ancient Arabic world had such a reverence for the moon. They always used the moon to keep the track of days, because their days started at sundown, at 6 o'clock. Because why? Because that's when the moon comes out. While the Christians were worshiping and, and having their holidays and, and important times in, in their religion, on Sunday they were worshiping uh, on you know worshiping the Son of God. The ancient Arabic world and the ancient Hebrews were under the influence of the Moon God. The Christians, as you know, have a sun calendar, and their days start with the with from sun to sun while the Hebrews and the ancient Arabic world had a lunar calendar, which uh, counts their days from sundown to sundown. The moon, as it comes up, and it was referred to as the lunar god who lived in the mountain, and the real Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai itself was understood to be a volcano, and this is why when Moses goes up into the Mount Sinai to get the, uh, the new Ten Commandments from God, he is confronted by the mountain is on fire. And so anytime you have a mountain on fire, that happens if you have a volcano. And so Mount Sinai was known and is even today uh, recognized as being uh, probably connected to volcano worship also. And so this is why Moses goes up and he sees the mountain on fire and he talks to God. And the scriptures, even in the, New, in the Old Testament, the Bible says that the, uh, that the ancient Hebrews were frightened when they would hear the thunder in the mountain because they said thunder was a word uh, we call thunder, but the ancient Hebrews said it was the voice of God. He's talking to them. And he had lightning, and that was trying to get their attention. So God was very angry and very uh, upset with the Jewish people because it was like a mountain on fire. Well, of course, we're talking about a volcano. So Moses becomes important in volcano worship also. Here you will see Moses pictures. These are all pictures from Christian and Jewish publications showing Moses going up into the mountain, and it appears to be a volcano. Well, that's because it was a volcano. Here we have some a Jewish publication showing the children of Israel running away when they hear God thundering in the mountain. It looks like a volcano. <laughs> all of the pictures of Moses going up into the mountain to get the Ten Commandments always shows the mountain on fire. The mountain right, so here we fire. have Moses preparing to go up to the mountain uh, to get the new Ten Commandments from God. And that appears to be a volcano. Here is a particular uh, religious celebration. It's called the Feast of the Giving of the Law. And in the Hebrew reference works, you look up the, uh, the celebration of the Feast of the Giving of the Law, and what do you see but a volcano? So the word volcano comes from a Latin volcano god called Vulcan or Volcanus. It's derived from an old Christian deity, Volcanus. 
Here is the old volcano god Vulcan. And it was always because the people were frightened to death at the thunder and the lightning that was caused by the volcano. And they thought it was God talking to them. And so then we talk about Prometheus, uh, was another ancient god about the time, was also a volcano god who was worshipped and took him to Greece, while Yahweh was a volcano god who the worshippers took him back to Judah. And this is again why Moses encountered God in the burning bush, and it seems as not only the burning bush, the whole mountain was on fire. Yahweh was worshipped by the Jews as a volcano god, and a Luna deity, and there's a lot of interesting connections with the ancient world religions that it's not that easy to explain uh, how all of these pieces came together to form a particular religion. It says in one of the reference books, it says, yet the original Yahweh seems to have begun as a volcano god also. Mount Sinai, where Moses encountered him, was the seat of a Midianite god who had formerly dwelt in a volcano. Here we have Moses getting the law from God, and you'll see the lightning and the fire and the thunder and the lightning all around him. We go back to uh, the book of Exodus where we, where we read, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud. Now this is talking about the time when, when the Jews were leaving out of Egypt and God was going to be with them as they went on their journey. And so it said that God went before the people by day in a pillar of cloud. He showed that he was with them by having a cloud follow them everywhere they went to lead the way out. And by night, he would have a pillar of fire to give them the indication that he was with them at night. They could see the fire. So they knew God was with them. In the daytime, it would be a pillar of cloud, and at night, it would be a pillar of fire. It goes on to say in 22, it says, And he took not away the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night from before the people to let them know he was with them. Well, that's what you get in a volcano is a pillar of cloud by day. Right? A pillar of cloud by day does not necessarily mean God is there. It means it's a volcano. And then you have a pillar of fire by night, of course, of volcano. So we go on to read in different parts of the Old Testament Bible about Yahweh being a, a god of the fire, of the pillar of fire, etc. Now here in Job 38 in the Old Testament, we read that uh, in the footnotes, the storm, the clouds, God's tent, and so the ancients believed the clouds were a tent in which God lived when he was following them. So the clouds, God's tent, gathers as the thunder, the voice of Yahweh, roared. They descended and God shoots the arrows of his lightning down. And 37, uh, it says his thunderbolts, God thunders wonderfully with his voice showing that uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament was just another volcano God who thunders with his voice. And of course, Zeus was also connected to the worship of Yahweh because he was also a god of lightning and thunder, the same as Yahweh. As a matter of fact, there's a whole story about the connection between Zeus and Jehovah uh, because today Zeus 
gives us our word for God, Dios in Latin. And so Dios is Latin as God is taken for the name of uh, Zeus. And they even have a canal called the Suez Canal. It again looks like kind of like cat lion-esque. Dios is Latin as God is taken for the name of uh, Zeus. Fucking bugly dude. And they even have a canal called the Suez. Secret legacy of Moses. That's just a secret life of symbols with Jordan Maxwell. Thanks for 331. Okay. Even though it's just law enforcement. Go fuck yourself, pigs. Give me back my animals, bitches. Canal, which is Zeus spelled backwards. So Zeus was very important back in those ancient days, too, as a, as a volcano guy. You can see how the ancient people would be frightened, thinking that God was in this holy mountain and the mountain's on fire. Uh, we keep in mind that in the Hebrew language, it says thunder is called koloth, or voices, for it's considered the voice of God. The Bible in the Old Testament uses a term for, uh, for the voice of God, but it is actually the, the, the word for thunder. After it, a voice roared. He thundered with his voice of his excellency. Again, just showing that we were talking about a volcano god going all the way back into ancient Egypt. And Yahweh was also called Volcanus. Uh, he was a Vulcan god, uh, the god of the Vulcans. Hmm. Even today in Hawaii, the volcano goddess, uh, the whole idea of connecting a god with a volcano has to do with the sexual reproduction of the human race. That's the fire of reproduction. And so it's the fire that gives life to, to the earth. That's where it actually came from. Today, the Jewish religion is not as dominated by the moon as it was maybe thousands of years ago. So ideas change from time to time. Here's another important part of the Moses story is that Moses, we are told, when the Israelites were trying to get out of the area they were in, and God was with them, they didn't have the foods, and they were, they were starving. And so they came to Moses and said, you told us to leave, and, and we're following you, but now we, we don't have any food to, to eat. Moses talks to God, Man and from said heaven. that God gave to the Hebrew people a manna to eat, and it was spelled M-A-N-N-A, -N -N -A, manna, and so it was the manna from manna heaven. From God heaven. said, all right, I will give you food for the moment. You're not going to starve. God told Moses, tell the people to go out in the morning, early morning. And collect manna. Sounds almost like mushrooms, but there was another show that showed how to make manna. Use and on the ground there will be little round white disc shaped things and this, and to eat it because this will be good for you and so that will save you from starving mana is uh, actually in hebrew means what is it <laughs> because the people didn't know what it was it was on the ground and it was good to eat but they don't know what, what it still? is and then the bible goes on to say that it was small Mana was small, it was round, flaky, it was white, 
it was obviously from heaven because Moses said God gave it to them. And so here we have pictures of the Israelites under Moses' direction out in the morning picking the manna from heaven to eat. Even in the Bible it says, and when the dew, this is in Exodus talking about this time, and it says, and when the dew that lay on the ground was dried up in the morning, behold, on the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing, as small as hoarfrost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, it is manna, for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. We now know that what we were talking it's about manna. was what is that? mushrooms. So yeah. we're talking about the ancient people of Israel were being fed by God mushrooms, the magic mushroom. And so you see the people of Israel from on heaven. the ground in the morning picking mushrooms. And we know now there's been a lot of books written about the magic mushroom as it's used in the religious rituals and in the Jewish culture and in the ancient cultures of the Middle East, a lot of people use mushrooms. Today, like James Arthur's famous book, Mushrooms and Mankind, The Mystery of Mana, Magic Mushrooms, Society of Mushrooms of the World, uh, Psychedelic Sacraments of the Mushroom, a lot of people do not know that the Hebrews were very interested in this mana from heaven and have kept a tradition. And today, mushroom and eating mushrooms are is still, uh, you know, being used today around the world. But what we're talking about actually is the magic mushroom, which is a psychedelic mushroom. Uh, eating the mushroom, we are told, uh, enhances your ability to understand things openly, uh, opens your mind up, so you can understand and see things and experience the spiritual and the the metaphysical uh, properties of light. Here is an article in Israel. It says Moses was high on drugs, Israeli researcher writes. There's been quite a few articles in Israel. Uh, here's another one from an Israeli magazine or newspaper. A Hebrew University researcher Moses was tripping out on Mount Sinai, showing that even in Israel they realized that uh, Moses was not only the leader of a moon cult, he was also connected to a volcano god. And then also he was the one that was introducing the use of, uh, the use of magic mushrooms to the Jewish community. You can actually see the connection with the so-called New Age movement today and the, and the progression of, of the same old, as I've said before, uh, the more we change, the more we stay the same. Today we're talking about a new age that's coming, a new time, and a new law, and a new understanding of, of God. And what's part of that is magic mushrooms again, and natural phenomena. Moses was not the only one on mushrooms. We also see mushrooms going back even further back in time than the, than the time of Moses. If you look today, you will see in the Vatican, Adam and Eve supposedly in the Garden of Eden with the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Actually, in the Vatican, it shows the Adam and Eve at the mushroom, taking mushrooms. There's another a Christian fresco showing Amanita Muscara as the tree of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. So according to the ancient Vatican records, 
uh, Adam and Eve were not in the garden with the tree, as we've been told, but they actually show Adam and Eve eating of mushrooms. And that was opening their mind to be against God and to do all kinds of things that they couldn't do before. Mm -hmm. So the magic mushroom has been around for a long time too. John Allegro was number three man in the translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in it, his book called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, which is a study of the nature and the origins of Christianity within the fertility cults of the ancient Near East. The secret legacy of Moses on Gaia. In which he shows that ancient Christians were on mushrooms also. The Sacred Mushroom in the Cross has been, it's been a very famous book for a long time, and it opened up a whole new study in Christianity also about their use of, uh, of the magic mushroom. Because if you use the magic mushroom, yeah, you'll, you'll talk to God all right. You'll have some psychedelic experiences, and Christians will call that, I talk with the Lord. No, it's just a psychedelic experience that mushrooms have on your mind. <laughs> uh, but we see them, uh, we see this magic mushroom, which is Amanita muscara. This particular one is very potent for giving the brain a whole new experience uh, taking this. And so we see it used everywhere. Many, many religions in the Middle East and Santa India Claus. and Africa. Uh, you know, depend on the magic mushroom and the effect it gives in the human mind to put you into an altered state of consciousness. So, now there are many symbolisms connected to all of the stories coming out of the Old Testament about Moses. And one of, one of the symbols that I think is interesting is the headdress that uh, people and royalty and people in the Middle East use which connects directly to the uh, idea to Moses uh, introducing the magic mushroom because so many of the priests were you know, priests of the mushroom. There have been many books written about the fact that they were called priests of the mushroom. They wore mushroom hairdressers. Mushroom hairdressers were actually rather prevalent in the ancient times. So Moses was uh, involved in a lot of things, a lot of stuff in the Bible that Moses is involved with. We just don't understand the implications of it. I'm Jordan Maxwell, and thank you for watching. We're going to pull up a little bit. I went and checked on my cookies. Or they did me. not know what it was. And most. What is it? Mana means what is it? <laughs> Mana. Mana from heaven. Said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Shut up, not tell me. We now know that what we were talking about was mushrooms. So we're talking about the ancient people of Israel were being fed by God mushrooms, the magic mushroom. And so you see the people of Israel on the grounds in the morning picking mushrooms. And we know now there's been a lot of books written about the magic mushroom as it's used in the religious rituals 
And in the Jewish culture and in the ancient cultures of the Middle East, a lot of people use mushrooms. Today, like James Arthur's famous book, Mushrooms and Mankind, The Mystery of Mana, Magic Mushrooms, Sasilabin Mushrooms of the World, uh, Psychedelic Sacraments of the Mushroom, a lot of people do not know that the Hebrews were very interested in this mana from heaven and have kept the tradition. And today, mushroom and eating mushrooms are is still, uh, you know, being used today around the world. But what we're talking about actually is the magic mushroom, which is a psychedelic mushroom. Uh, eating the mushroom, we are told, uh, enhances your ability to understand things openly, uh, opens your mind up, so you can understand and see things and experience the spiritual and the the metaphysical uh, properties of light. Here is an article in Israel. It says Moses was high on drugs, <laughs> Israeli researcher writes. There's been quite a few articles in Israel. Uh, here's another one from an Israeli magazine or newspaper. Uh, Hebrew University researcher Moses was tripping out on Mount Sinai, showing <laughs> that even in Israel they realized that uh, Moses was not only the leader of a moon cult, he was also connected to a volcano god. And then also he was the one that was introducing the, use of, uh, the use of magic mushrooms to the Jewish community. <laughs> you can actually see the, the connection with the so-called New Age movement today <laughs> and, the, and the progression of, of the same old, as I've said before, uh, the more we change, the more we stay the same. Today we're talking about a new age that's coming, a new time, and a new law, and a new understanding of, of God. And what's part of that is uh, magic mushrooms again, and natural phenomena. Straight up, not tell Moses me. was not the only one on mushrooms. We also tell see me. mushrooms going back even further back in time mm. than, the, than the time of Moses. If you look today, you will see in the Vatican, Adam and Eve supposedly in the Garden of Eden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Actually, in the Vatican, it shows the Adam and Eve at the mushroom, taking mushrooms. There's uh -huh. another uh, Christian fresco showing Amanita Muscara as the tree of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. So according to the ancient Vatican records, uh, Adam and Eve were not in the garden with the tree, as we've been told but they actually show Adam and Eve eating a mushrooms. And that was opening their mind to be against God and to do all kinds of things that they couldn't do before. So the magic mushroom has been around for a long time too. Mm -hmm. John Allegro was number three man in the translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in it, his book called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross which is a study of the nature and the Man origins of Christianity heaven. within the fertility cults of the ancient Near East, in which he shows that ancient Christians were on mushrooms also. The they sacred mushroom grow. of the cross has been, it's been a very famous book for a long in time. Desert. And it opened up a whole new study in Christianity also about their use of, uh, of the magic mushroom. Because if you use the magic mushrooms, yeah, you'll, you'll talk to God all right. You'll have some psychedelic experiences, and Christians will call that, I talk with the Lord. No, it's just a psychedelic experience that mushrooms have on your mind. 
but we see them, uh, we see this magic mushroom, which is Amanita muscara, this particular one that's very potent for giving the brain a whole new experience on uh, taking this. And so we see it used everywhere. Many, many religions in the Middle East and in India and Africa, uh, you know, depend on the magic mushroom and the effect it gives in the human mind to put you into an altered state of consciousness. So, now there are many symbolisms connected to all of the stories coming out of the Old Testament about Moses. One of, one of the symbols that I think is interesting is the headdress that uh, people and royalty and people in the Middle East use, which connects directly to the uh, idea to Moses uh, introducing the magic mushroom. Because so many of the priests were you know, priests of the mushroom. There have been many books written about the fact that they were called priests of the mushroom. They wore mushroom headdresses. Mushroom headdresses were actually rather prevalent in the ancient times. So Moses was uh, involved in a lot of things, a lot of stuff in the Bible that Moses is involved with. We just don't understand the implications of it. I'm Jordan Maxwell, and thank you for watching. Right, have a secret legacy of Moses. Come back if you want to hear some more Jordan Maxwell. Alright, welcome back. We're doing a a uh, binge fest with Jordan Maxwell, and this one's called Solar Worship. On Gaia, thanks for 331k. Just had a jump, biggest spike I've ever had. I don't know exactly what it's from, but who knows? Maybe Jordan Maxwell. Sun has always held a prominent role in theology, religion, and spirituality since the beginning of human civilization because of the many cultures that worshipped the sun and applied it to their own gods and religious practice. Solar worship may be the greatest story ever told. Jordan Maxwell discusses concerns that may consider controversial to conventional religious doctrine, but it is important to understand how ancient cultures viewed the sun as it moves through the zodiac and the way they symbolize its powerful influence upon the This is Secret Life of Symbols. On this episode, I'd like to talk a little bit about the sun and its symbolic importance in the whole story of the zodiac. Now, as we begin the story of the sun and the ancient religions of the world and how much the sun has dominated civilization for as long as we have records, we need to go back to the very beginning. And that's a long time ago. Let's go back to Egypt. We'll start in Egypt because that's one of the oldest civilizations on the earth. And we will see how Egypt developed the concept of the importance of the sun in relation to theology and spirituality and religion. Now this is an ancient symbol for the sun, prehistoric, that the ancient peoples drew 
to represent the you sun. Know, I did a it's painting. An equal arm cross. I did this painting. It's the same. It's the same symbols, and um, that's so interesting that it's a symbol of the sun. But yeah, it's a it's a painting of Tristaland, this place, and kind of put him. It puts him in court quadrants. It's it's a like an X and a circle. It could thought it could be like being in the crosshairs or the uh, uh you, like a target, you know. But I'm glad that it it uh, means that. That's very interesting. Within the circle. It seems kind of like an unconscious, subconscious thing. And I've always, well, I've, ever since I've come back here, I've become the steward of this beautiful place, Reiki Southwest. It struck me that how much of a kind of druidic, layout this place has. It seems to me like a big oval and also like a ship, like a Noah's Ark. Here is a artifact that was found in England. It's on hinge. It's on a golden circle, which represents the sun. And then you'll see the cross in between. And this is about 4,500 years old. Almost 5,000 years ago, ancient mankind drew pictures of what they perceived the sun to be as an equal arm cross. And you will see it also in the ancient religions of the Near and Middle East, the different ancient gods in the Phoenician, Canaanite, Sumerian systems. They all had the equal arm <laughs> cross. But it's important to remember that mm. the sun was never perceived as a Three, god. Six, it was six. perceived to represent the spiritual qualities of God and that it brought life to the earth, it brought warmth to the earth, it brought energy grapes. for us to live. So grapes. all of the good things about God and his creation was best represented by the symbol of the sun. Sometimes the sun actually even looks like it has an equal arm cross in the heavens. Mm. The reason why it's four equal arms on the cross is because there are four equal seasons six. of the year. We have north, six east, arms west, and picture. south, the four corners. Then each one of those like four corners wheel. represents a season of the year, spring, summer, autumn, winter. This is why you have four Gospels, four Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because they're talking about the life of the sun. The ancient peoples, like us today, we draw a circle, a round circle, and we divide it into four equal parts. Quadrants. And so now you have an equal arm cross inside of a circle. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spring, summer, autumn, winter. There's a lot of symbolism in the Bible that we have misunderstood and mistaken. The whole idea is the four lodging places of the sun gives us our four seasons of the year. You will find the equal arm cross all over the world. 
every race and creed and color has mm. the same symbol for the ancient sun. The Nordics had the symbol, the Vikings kept the symbol, ancient France used the symbol. The symbol was on rocks and carvings and paintings. Even in India, you have the equal arm cross, the Celtic and the Celtic Druids in Europe and England and Ireland had an equal arm cross. Native mm. Americans used it, mm. Central America, and especially in Mayan and Inca and some of the ancient religions in South America have used the equal arm cross. So it's super interesting taking pictures and make make like uh... and especially in Mayan and Inca and some of the ancient uh, religions in South America have used the equal arm cross so it became known around the world that the equal arm cross within a circle represented the old 5,000 year old petroglyph concept of the sun Today, people see it everywhere, and so it has become not really important because it's just a general symbol that people realize is a cross. Here is a picture of the ancient Nordic peoples that were preparing for what we would call today the Easter sunrise service. Here, the ancient peoples in Europe realized that the sun was coming back to the northern hemisphere. And it would bring with it the warmth, the food, and life. And so they all gathered with their sun symbol to welcome back the sun that had died in winter and was coming back to the northern hemisphere. It became known as what we call today Easter. The circle on the cross is not a man dying on a cross. It's the sun on the northeast, west, and southern parts of the earth. The idea being, of course, is that when the sun dies in winter, and then when it is reborn on December 25th, the sun actually begins uh, to move northward. Uh, and when it does, that tells the world that the sun is now northward. coming back to the northern hemisphere, bringing back the sun to us in the northern hemisphere. Because for us in the northern hemisphere, the sun was dead to us because it was in the southern hemisphere. But now it's being born again and coming back to the northern hemisphere. That's the whole story in itself, is the vision of the sun going southward and dying on the cross and then being reborn on December 25th when it moved one degree northward and now is coming back and sort of springing back to life. And so on the, in the spring, we call it springing back to life. Well, you will have the symbol everywhere, and even the European agency for the Euro uses the same equal arm cross to represent the new Euro establishment. You will always find in royalty throughout the world, royalty and governments always use this equal arm cross. The Nazis used it. Even in the parade of the Nazis used the swastika, which is a symbol of the sun also. But you will see also that they are using the equal arm cross. Coptic Christians 
even the kings and rulers like the uh, emperors of Europe always had the equal arm cross on their staff, equal arm cross with the sun god and churches. In September, mid-September, around the world, Christians will gather in schools and universities to worship their, their god Jesus, who died on a cross, and when they call this ritual, uh, see you at the pole. See you at the pole means that Christians will gather around the flagpole at their colleges and schools to uh, venerate and to worship Jesus, God's Son, the light of the world. Well, of course, the Son is the light of the world. But here are Christians gathering to worship Jesus, never realizing that they are actually meeting around a very ancient symbol of the old petroglyph cross. But this symbol of an equal arm cross within the circle represents an old ancient idea of how to picture the sun. And it's really extraordinary to, to notice that all churches use that same symbol. And all over the world, people do not realize that this cross that they think represents Christianity is actually over 5,000 years old. It's an ancient, prehistoric symbol of the sun. Jesus has always represented the sun, the S-U-N, not S-O-N. Jesus is my friend. The etymology of the word for the sun. You see that sun can be S-U-N or S-O-N, depending on how it's used. S-O-N and S-U-N are used interchangeably in Christianity. Illustration. In the Christian church, you will see they're all actually a realm glowing sun. Not a young child or a baby or a man, but the S-U-N. There's two words, S-U-N and S-O-N, but the Christianity and Judaism are based on the worship of the S-U-N, not S-O-N. That's a misunderstanding. That misunderstanding is part of the history of the English language. Because if you go back into the King's Old English, you go back into the history of the English language, there is a phenomenon which in English class you will learn is called the lazy O. The lazy O is a phenomenon in English which means that translators always translated son, S-O-N and S-U-N, all in the same sentence. And so it became known as the lazy O. They were talking about the S-U-M, but they used S-O-M because they were lazy. They just used either one. The mother of Jesus is Mary, which is actually Mari, M-A-R-I, not M-A-R-Y. Mari means pure. And therefore, the mother of Jesus is a virgin or Virgo, one of the 12 signs of the zodiac is a Virgo, the Virgin. So here is Mari, or Mary, the Virgin, Virgo, holding the baby Jesus, or God's Son, the light of the world. 
today we still have Jesus as God's son in the heavens, and he became now a great sun god. But the question you need to ask yourself is, who owns the sun? You will assume that the sun must be owned by someone. Well, mankind doesn't own the sun. If anything, you would say maybe God owns the sun. So if it's God owns the sun, then it's God's sun, and he's the light of the world. Of course the sun is the light of the world. Looking at the communion host, the Catholic communion host, you will see it always looks like the old ancient petroglyph sun. You see that the sun and Jesus' hand represents the S-U-N. The Holy Eucharist represents the sun. This is why the priests in the church on Sundays will raise the, the, the sun, they will raise it. And why? Because that's what the sun does, it rises. So the sun rises. La, this is why we have the symbols on the post in the Catholic Church is always the old petroglyph sign. Jesus means God is with us. And you will see the priest is representing Jesus <laughs> how? As a son. All of this sun goes wafer. back many, many <laughs> thousands and thousands of years before Christianity ever existed. And it has nothing to do with Christianity Snack, at all. Wafer, snacks. It has to do with exactly what Church it's showing. Snacks. Sun worship. And today we're still doing the same thing. We're worshiping the sun. And you will see the sun is prominent in all of Catholicism. Everywhere you look at Catholicism are worshippers of the sun. Now here we have a picture of Jesus giving to the children a part of his body. And what is he giving them? A little round sun disc. We're told that we should all take part of his body at the First Communion. In a communion in the Catholic Church, you're taking part of God's son's body. The whole idea is very obvious what's being talked about here. We're just talking about sun worship. The idea that the sun dies on a cross goes back to the old petroglyph cross. And so that's where we see it now all over the world, all Christianity. You'll see the sun is always dying on a cross because in the southern constellation, when you go down south, when the sun reaches the lowest part in the sky in southern hemisphere, there is a constellation of stars that look just exactly like a uh, cross. And so we say the sun, when it dies in December, it goes down and dies on the cross. The cross is called the Southern Cross. When he was dead, but now he's coming back to the Northern Hemisphere because he promised he would return. And he is returning again in the spring. Solar symbolism of the sun going southwards each, uh, each day until it finally reaches uh, December 22nd when it's, it's its lowest point in the southern sky. It's down south now. It's gone south. But on December 22nd, the sun goes as far in the south as it's going to go, and it stops going southward on December 22nd. It doesn't go any further southward. Then on the 23rd and 24th, it rises 
on the same degree. And therefore, for three days, it doesn't move at all. It stays at the same degree. So we say, and the ancient people said, that Jesus, or God's Son, died for three days. Why? Because it was moving every day, and now it's not moving for three days. So for three days, the sun was dead, and on December 25th, the sun moves one degree northward, which indicates, our, our, and even the United States Navy will show you on their instruments, that it indicates the sun is now alive again. He's born again. Now he's going to work his way back to the northern hemisphere. Because he said, God's son said, I will, I will return. Well, he does. He returns every year. So what do you see? Do you see a man on this cross? Do you see a man dying on the cross? No. This is what is actually meant by dying on the cross. It's the sun. During the summer, when the sun is in the northern hemisphere, it is in the constellation of Leo, so he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then when he dies, he dies in Capricorn down south when he goes south. And so now he dies in the winter. And then he comes back and springs back to life. And when he comes back to the northern hemisphere, we call it spring. But when it crosses the equator, the sun will have to cross the equator coming back to us in the north. When it crosses the equator, it is said to have passed over the equator. So in the Hebrew religion, when the sun passes over the, the, the coming back to the northern hemisphere, they call that celebration the Passover. But for Christians, they're worshiping the sun also as it passes over, but they refer to it as the resurrection. God's son has been resurrected. He's come back. It doesn't matter how you say it, a resurrection or a Passover. It just means the sun is coming back to us in the northern hemisphere. Sun worship is a very old religion dating back thousands of years before the Roman Empire. But in Rome, the sun god was called Mithra. Mithraism was the main religion in the Roman Empire at the time that Christianity was coming into, coming into play in the Roman Empire. Emperor Constantine was a follower of Mithra. And Mithra uh, was God's son who died on a cross. Not he was Constantinople. He rose again. Emperor Constantine was famous for starting the, the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church was not started by Jesus. It was started by a Roman emperor. And it was, and it was headquarters in Rome, not the heaven. <laughs> he was mixing Judaism and Mithraism and some of the other religions of the, of the uh, Arabic world that also worship the sun, and brought all of these different religions together in order to confirm the power of Caesar in Rome under one religion and one government, who it was actually a world government, supposedly, at the time. Catholic means universal, meaning whatever, air is Catholic because air is all over the world. Water is Catholic. Anything which is all over the world is Catholic, because it's a Latin word that means universal. 
Constantine was trying to unite all the religions of the Roman Empire into one. Religious divisions are very dangerous, and they, are, and they can also harbor treason and, and anti-government. And so Caesar realized if he could bring all the religions into one religion and call it Christianity, and yet it would have all the parts of everybody else's religion. It would have Judaism, uh, worship of, of the sun. It would have Yahweh as a part of it. It would have Mithraism as a part of it. So that everyone could agree to follow one religion which Caesar would rule from. He would rule from. And so it was a political move. That's all. But the point is that Constantine, the Roman emperor, founded the Roman Catholic Church. This is a Sumerian picturing uh, the sun on the altar. In the ancient world, uh, the Phoenician, Canaanites, Sumerians, uh, the Hittites, all of these ancient cultures always uh, had helmets. Their military wore helmets with the rising sun symbol. The rising sun symbol is still used even today around the world on helmets and military. Here in Rome, you'll see the Romans wearing the rising sun. Again, you will see it here where the Romans. I didn't know that was a rising sun. Rulers of the people, but their symbol was the rising sun. And so now let's look at the sun worship today and its ancient foundation, which was the cult of Solus Invictus. Solus Invictus is Sol, which is the sun, and invincible. The sun was but said by the Romans, it was invincible. Why was the sun invincible? Because every year it came into its power in, in the summer, and then it would die in the winter to the, to the northern uh, hemisphere. But it would come back every year. It would come back to the northern hemisphere. So it may die in the winter, but it's coming back. It's invincible. You can't keep it down. And so we see today the, the pictures of Saul, and he's the sun riding across the sky. The sun was pictured in Rome as uh, riding on a chariot across heaven. And so the sun was that lucky old sun riding around heaven all day, roaming around heaven all day, on a, on, obviously on a chariot. And here is Solus Invicti, or uh, this is a picture of Mithra, and it shows us the sun spokes, the sun rays around his head, the sun god of Rome. Now, in the doctoral theses, there's a very important book called The Cult of Solus Invictus. And in it, it, it shows you all of the connections with the Roman government, the Roman religion, the Roman commerce, the entire state of Rome. And the ancient Roman Empire was all based on the sun. And you'll see like the mm. sun cult uh, up to the first century of the empire, the political background of it, the establishment of the cult of Solus Invicti, the dogma, the teachings of the ancient the religion. Solus Invictus is the true Roman sun god. Of course, the Roman sun worship can be traced back to the ancient Egyptian. Sun, sun god Amun-Ra. So Amun-Ra was, we, say, we use the word today, R-A-Y, Ray, Sun-Ray. 
but the ancient Egyptians called their god Ra, of which that's where Ra comes from. So it was, it was called the cult of Ra, oh, no, or the cult of the sun Ra. And so here is Amun Ra, the official name of the sun god in Egypt. Amun Ra, A-M-E-N hyphen R-A. Here's Amun Ra again. Now, when you see Amun Ra, the Egyptian sun god was the supreme god of the universe, as, car, as, as, a, as said by the Egyptians. But what is important to remember is that Amun-Re, uh, today, in our supposed modern-day world, in our Christian church, both Catholic and Protestant, they refuse to give up the old pagan sun cult of Amun-Re. And so today, this is why when you pray to God, you end up by saying, Amen. Because you're sending your Pagan prayer to God's sun, son, God Amun Ra. The Catholic Church is replete with all kinds of sun symbols. You'll always see the Pope wearing large sun symbols. Uh-oh, I hope I didn't lose it. Solar worship. It's on his hand, it's on his uh, gloves, it's on the outside of churches, it's at the top of churches also, implying the sun is risen and uh, the sun rays are dominating the, uh, the Catholic Church all over the world. So here is uh, paintings on the on the wall of the Vatican showing the angels, uh, showing the the worker, the common man, the worker, to look to the sun for his food and for his life and for everything. That God's sun is the light of the world, and so Catholic Church or the Vatican is promoting sun worship. Everywhere the Catholic Church and Christians meet, you will see the sun. This is a convention held in the United States for the Pope and, and, and to honor the Pope and to honor the Catholic presence in America. But you will see that there is a sun in the middle representing Christianity, God's son, the light of the world. The Savior is born. Here are pictures from uh, modern-day uh, you know, magazines of Christians. The Savior is born. Is there a child? Do you see a child there? No, you see the sun. And so the sun is always golden, so the little the Son of God has the spokes of the, of the uh, ancient uh, cross behind his head. You will see he is always pictured as a blonde or the sun baby. And here's the mother uh, holding her son. And here in the Vatican is a very interesting uh, a picture of, this is a sculptor in the Vatican. And it is showing a Jesus' mother, the Virgin, which is Virgo, As the Virgin sunlight. of the Zodiac, holding her newborn son, S-U-N. <laughs> and this is in the Vatican, both baby Jesus and the grown-up Jesus are trying to show you what it's all symbolizing. It's symbolizing sun worship. Here you have the baby Jesus showing you the sun. Here are the sun worship in the Jerusalem temple, the uh, ancient Hebrews worshiping the sun. 
Today we have the Pope, uh, you know, all over the world carrying the sun symbol for the sun. This is not a man on a cross. This is obviously sun worship. And you will see the sun everywhere here, the Pope. This is what is being promoted throughout the world as Christianity, but which is in fact sun worship. Now the ancient Egyptians pictured the, the sun had wings. And uh, we see it, and, and the sun is rolling across heaven. The sun in, in India and the Hindu worship of the sun. Now here we have the Inca priest kneeling on an altar and, and offering up the wine in the altar to the sun god. The same you will see in Japan. You'll see in England, they're singing praises in a hymn to the rising sun, the wood carving uh, picture of the Jews and, and worshiping the sun. And here again is the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are writing about their savior, the sun. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is spring, summer, autumn, winter. The four seasons are symbolically represented by four gospels. This is a very important book showing that the sun in the church today, cathedrals are solar observatories. Now, of course, in, in India, the most important sun god in India was Krishna. Uh, we know that the Jesuits, when they went into India, Hare Krishna, Hare Hare. they learned very quickly the whole religion of God's son, the light of the world in India, who was Krishna. And they came back and infiltrated those teachings and concepts into what we call Christianity. This is the work of the church borrowing the stories from the ancient world of sun gods who died on the cross. Now here is an ancient Babylonian king, and his name was Shemesh, and he was a Babylonian sun king, and you'll see the altar in front of him has the sun. But this is very important, a Babylonian king being worshipped, and his name was Shemesh. It's because in the Hebrew language, or in the Jews, Shemesh is the sun in the Jewish language. Hmm. Here we have 37 of what we call sons of God from the ancient world to the modern. And they all have the same identity and the same stories that go with their lives. They were born of a virgin. They, they died on a cross. They were dead for three days and then was resurrected and came back. Their, their father was a carpenter. And they had 12, almost all of these had 12 followers or 12 apostles. They had the same story that we have in Christianity 37 times over. So it's a continuation of the same story coming out of the ancient world. And today we call it Catholicism or Christianity. So the reason why these things keep repeating themselves is because it is what is called the greatest story ever told. I think it is the greatest story ever told. That the son is born each morning and ultimately dies at night and then emerges the next morning and bring life back again but then dies again. And so the whole story is on the subjects 
of the whole universe and how our skies work and how the planets work. I think that the idea that there are 37 major gods, sun gods, and each have the same kind of a story where they died the, the, you know, and were resurrected and they had a virgin birth, it seems to imply that there was some sort of an ancient, really, truly ancient culture that developed this idea and this story for the world, and therefore it has become known as the greatest story ever told, because it is, the, is in fact, the greatest story ever told, because so many ancient cultures have picked it up and applied to their own selves, their own gods, who had the same story of dying on a cross and being resurrected. There will not be any Messiah coming back for the Jews, for the Christians, or for any other religion on the earth. It's all based on ancient concepts of the prehistoric and ancient world of the sun representing light to the earth. So there won't be any Messiah coming back because there was none to start with. It's all based on the sun being the giver of light. So now that we have the, the technology today that we have, uh, where we can talk to the world uh, through the, 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 the system of technology, we can now begin to show the whole world where all of this has come from, all of these ideas and concepts and gods and sun gods have come from. We're now able to do that with the technology we have today. So, so many people today are now beginning to see that their ancient and highly venerated religions are merely part of a world continuation of a same story, the greatest story ever told. I'm Jordan Maxwell, and thanks for watching. Sunroof, da na 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 na. That was solar worship, solar cult, solar worship. Okay, uh, this part of the secret life symbols. This is Maserat ordinance of heaven, but we're gonna come back to that. Bueno, we'll come back. We're currently doing a Jordan Maxwell binge fest on Gaia. Ooh, Saturn and Secret Societies, World of the Occult, those are coming up. Let's see, I guess we'll do in order. World of the Occult, check it out, man. It means hidden. Okay. Occult. We live in a world filled with occult symbols and the signs are all around us. Jordan Maxwell takes us on a journey through time and the human mind to reveal his understanding Jordan of Jordan Maxwell has been on the cutting edge of new thought for over half a century. This is Secret Life of Symbols. Reveal his understanding of the secrets behind many of the symbols we see in our world from astrology to alchemy, Freemasonry and secret sciences. These emblems have been blazing coins we and flags in many ancient cultures. We are getting better each day. And we uh, have come from a more primitive society, but we are getting better every day and becoming more superior in knowledge and technology, when actually, in point of fact, we are digressing 
we are moving away from what we were thousands and thousands of years ago. And I am of the opinion that our history has been vastly changed and so that we don't really know the history of mankind on this earth. We are finding that there are temples on the ocean floor, pyramids, Machu Picchu, Chichen uh, Itza, incredible structures of temples and knowledge which is displayed about the universe, about astrology, and the astronomical truths about the universe. The ancient, truly prehistoric and ancient people, they knew all about it. We're trying to catch up today to what they knew tens of thousands of years ago. We are finding everything that we think we know. It's already been here tens of thousands of years ago. There was a higher life forms on this earth than we are. I have a vision of from the ancient world were not what we would refer to as humans. I think that they looked like us maybe or in some ways like us. They were far superior. Uh, the people, whoever they were, that built the Great Pyramid of, of Egypt had an God. extraordinarily brilliant understanding of the Earth, of our solar system, of the galaxy we're in, and all of the esoteric and profoundly important knowledge about light and the spirit of man and where we've come from and where we're going. And so it all implies that there was a far higher civilization all around the world. And the best science we have today are admitting <clears throat> that we're just trying to catch up with what the ancient peoples they already knew. These ancient brilliant builders and teachers, they didn't grow into that. They came in fully developed. When you look at Egypt, Egypt is a, is a classic example. If you go to the very beginnings of Egypt, it was already, it came in as an extraordinarily brilliant society of builders and knowledge, and then eventually devolved into what Egypt is today. But there was a time when Egypt was in its prime when it was founded. So it didn't kind of work up to, as we say, we're working up to uh, some kind of a, of a wonderful future. But Egypt didn't do that. It came in at its pinnacle. How is that possible? The only way it's possible is because when whoever we call, whoever this was that we call the ancient Egyptians, they were not of this world to start with. They came here knowing all that we still are trying to find out. So it implies that they were not from here. They came in fully understanding the whole universe. And they were able to do things with their temples and with the way that they laid out the pyramids. They knew things we didn't know and we still don't know. And we're still trying today in metaphysics and in occultism uh, religion, we're trying to find the bottom line that the ancient peoples, they already knew. There is obviously a high science behind the life period. 
and all of the, the best of the best in our human life, like astrology and alchemy and all of the other, what I call sciences. Others would say, no, they're just belief systems. No, they're sciences, because when you really look into them, you begin to see that they're telling you things that scientists are just now beginning to realize. There's a higher occult or hidden. The word occult simply means hidden. And so there's obviously a higher science or occult science behind mankind's ability to contemplate the spiritual aspects of life on the earth. There's lots of ancient people already knew what we're trying to find out today. We know that, uh, that the pyramids, say in Mexico, in Central and South America, along with uh, the great temples around the world, were solar temples, they were the center for astronomy. And so the ancient peoples were not looking for spiritual uh, answers as such. They were looking at the actual universe and trying to figure out where we are, what we're doing, and what is the universe. And so from that uh, inquiry into the actual setup of the way the universe operates, then from there, they began to suspect that there was some kind of an unwritten, powerful laws in the universe that guided the sun, the moon, the planets, and the whole uh, of the solar system. They start off scientifically just looking for answers to what the moon, the planets, and the whole uh, of the solar system. They start off scientifically just looking for answers to what we're doing here. What is this? And from there, they begin to develop religions or philosophies, alchemy, uh, astrology, medicine, and then human interrelationships. And then from there, you get into all the other metaphysical pursuits. And that's why today the world is half scientific and yet half spiritual. But the spirituality did not come first, just the regular interest in how the world works. That's what the ancient peoples built those great uh, observatories for. They just wanted to study the heavens. But in doing so, it didn't take long till around the world, mankind that was viewing the heavens for science began to suspect that there's something else going on here. And now comes the, the world of spirituality. As I said, the word occult simply means hidden. So there are many hidden sciences that the really bright people who are looking into these things know about. But generally speaking, the world of mankind is not really well informed about alchemy and about these sciences of, of spirituality. But that's growing now, too. So people are beginning to wake up to the spiritual relevance to your life of spiritual subjects. I think that there is something there that needs to be looked at, this whole idea of where man has come from, where he is right now, and ultimately, where is he going to go with his knowledge and with his life? experiences what is the reason why we're having 
the experiences that each of, each of us do have each day, we're all growing, and hopefully we are growing far more intelligent and, and insightful and looking at the spiritual aspects of our life. That's a very important feature of being alive, is to not just live for the material world today, but start asking serious questions about where were you before you were born, and where will you be after you leave here, this earth, and what is the reason for our human life, and why are we learning so many hard lessons the hard way? There seems to be some sort of an overshadowing presence in the universe that men have called God, or some sort of an ultimate a spiritual presence that is leading or directing our evolution. And if that be the case, which it seems to be, then maybe there is some hope yet for the human race. If enough people begin to wake up, spiritually speaking, and begin to look at their lives spiritually, then there might be hope for us yet, because this is why we are in the shape we're in today because we are living in this me generation. And this generation that only cares about feeding itself and taking care of itself and enjoying itself, never realizing you have responsibilities to the world that you live in and to help, to help your fellow man to, to grow and to help educate other people. I can speak for myself in relation to the idea of why do we seek wisdom and spiritual knowledge. I have always understood that I have questions within myself that others can't answer. And for me, looking at these questions, uh, they make a lot of sense to me. Why this and why that? Why did this happen? So I, I have learned that to think deeply on these spiritual questions of life opened me up to a whole world of knowledge because I realize how much I don't know. And I am also well aware of the spiritual implications of the laws in the universe around us. There are certain things you can do in this world and things you cannot do. And you will pay. You will pay a terrible price for doing the things you're not supposed to do. And I am totally convinced that there is some sort of an overshadowing force in the world that wants us to grow. And this concept is even in Christianity where you're talking about, you hear talk about good angels and bad demons and bad angels, uh, implying that there are good forces, unseen forces out there, and then there are bad. And we know that there is something called good and bad, and there are certain things in all society, which are known to be bad and evil. I tend to think that there is something to this idea of reincarnation. And I, the reason why is because it is pretty much agreed upon by so many of the ancient religions and philosophers and great teachers of the world. My gut feeling is that we do come into this world with baggage from other lifetimes. And, and this is why we begin to become who we are because of who we were before. 
Another part of that story is that we, before we came and incarnated on this earth, that we chose a particular lifestyle, we're told and uh, given to understand, and that we chose our own parents before we came here. I understand the spirit world enough, enough to know that it's very possible that we, and we were in a spiritual state and then we incarnated into a physical state. Now, the rest of it is uh, up for speculation. I'm totally convinced that there are very legitimate and real uh, otherworldly, I choose to call it, otherworldly forces, spirit forces, demonic forces. There, of that, there is no doubt in my mind about because I've had too many personal experiences that tells me and proves to me that somebody's watching us, somebody's watching the human family. The very history Could of it how be America was founded and the founding mm -hmm. fathers, so to speak, what vision they had when they were putting together the idea to found this country. What was their vision? You know, what were they thinking? And what were they actually working toward? And now that gets into the, uh, the, the subject of Freemasonry, to the secret sciences like alchemy and political. There's a lot of political stuff in there too. You have to be careful about secret societies because these different societies become very powerful, very wealthy, but they have an agenda. They have a particular agenda that they're trying to uh, create or to uh, bring into being, and therefore they will build the whole world around you. And you accept what, you know, when you're a child or a baby, you come into the world and you just accept everything. And if you don't grow up, you just, as a grown person, you just accept whatever there is because that's the way it is, but that's not the way it is. And you keep in mind that there were secret societies that were involved in founding this country. Who were they? And what were they trying to do? You have to know secret societies to understand why there are so many different symbols and emblems in Washington, D.C. and around the world. Because there's different groups, societies, that are working towards certain agenda, and they are putting symbols out that represent their agenda. We know that even in gangs, that when you describe to neighborhoods like Los Angeles, and there are scribblings on the walls of gangs, those symbols mean something. And if you're in a gang, you know what those symbols mean. They're telling you something. Whoever is controlling that area, that's their symbols. And that's a whole study that you need to get into, studying the occult symbols of power in this world. They're used to, as a means to communicate and to influence you or to connect you with the spiritual world that they represent. So let's start with a religious symbol, and that is an ancient Phoenician god that was very important in the Middle East some 5,000 years ago. That god was called Dagon, D-A-G-O-N. <coughs> Dagon was a fish god. Interesting how he has evolved into today's world of religion. 
Dagon is still very much alive with the world today. First of all, everyone knows that Christianity is founded on the worship of Jesus Christ that is accepted around the world. And most people believe that the Vatican is the center for the worship of Jesus, the God of Christianity. Uh, however, millions of people also believe uh, is that the Pope of Rome is leading the Christians to worship Jesus throughout the world. But my question is, who is the Pope leading the worship of? The first symbol that I want to talk about is the headdress that the Pope or the Bishop of Rome wears. Uh, that headdress is very interesting and has one, uh, quite a history to it. That Pope's headdress is called a uh, Pope's mitre. The Pope's mitre, uh, we've seen it in many different shapes, but they're always basically the same shape, the Pope's mitre. It's an official headdress worn only by the Pope, or supposedly only by the Pope. But we need to understand that that symbol goes back at least 5,000 years. So what we need to know and what we need to keep in mind is that this strange and interesting headdress of, of hat that the Pope wears is impacted by a, a god named Dagon. Dagon was a god of the Philistines, and Dagon comes from the word dag, which means fish. So Dagon was a fish god. And here we have pictures of another fish god named Anis, same god, but was worshipped in different countries under different names. So we have, we have a god who is half fish and half man, or men who wear the garbs of a fish in their, in their religious uh, celebration. So here in the Jewish Encyclopedia, under the heading of Dagon, you will see a picture of uh, the priest of Dagon or the god himself, and he's wearing a fish head and the body of a fish down his back. So now we see the Pope's headdress. On the top is the Pope's mitre. But when turned, you then see he's actually wearing a fish head, the fish god Dagon because he's representing the worship of an ancient Phoenician god. So this is why today Christians on the back of their cars, you will see, have a fish symbol. I'm thinking that uh, that's to denote them as Christians worshiping Jesus. No, it's a fish symbol because it's denoting Dagon, the fish god. The significance is Dagon was a very important mystical god to the ancient peoples in the Middle East, in Babylonia, Sumeria, Phoenicia, Cana. And that very powerful mystical god is still dominating the spirit and the intellectual thinking of religion even to today. So it's not Jesus that's influencing the Vatican and the Pope. Uh, it's Dagon, the fish god. That's the importance of this. The point being is that religion is, comes to the world in the age of Pisces, and Pisces is, of course, the two fish of the constellation of Pisces. But Dagon is 5,000 years old. 
Another one of the symbols that I find to be very interesting that's used quite often around the world today, but a lot of people don't know uh, the, how it's connected to the religions of today, and that is a magic wand. Magic wands, we've, we've heard in stories galore from children from childhood days about magicians who use a magic wand. Well, the magic wand is just what it says. It. It's a, it's a, some sort of a branch of a tree that has been consecrated and, and made holy by blessings from, from the, the priest. And now it has a magical quality that can do things that other that humans can't do. The Druid priests, they use the wood of a holly tree. They use Hollywood. And that's what we get the term today, Hollywood, in the magic of Hollywood. Today we have Hollywood. Uh, we have Mickey Mouse waving a magic wand. On the left side, we also have actual real magic wands as they are made today in Europe. And of course, orchestra leaders and orchestra conductors, they, they lead the, the music with uh, a magic wand. And a lot of people haven't thought about that, but that's what it is, a magic wand. Just so here that. we have a picture of Moses, where he is conjuring up the spirits and the universe with a magic wand. That's very interesting, Moses with a magic wand. In uh, the ancient Roman Empire, the most important god uh, at the height of Rome's power in the world was a god named Mithra. Mithra was a sun god. And according to the Roman explanation of their god, he was not only a sun god, but he did his miracles with a magic wand. Now here we have Jesus raising Lazarus from the tomb. And you will see that Jesus is using a magic wand. How many Christians know that all throughout Europe and around the world, Christian churches have Jesus working his miracles with uh, magic wands. A lot of people don't know that. You know? So we, we hear all about the, uh, the magical things that Jesus was able to do. But here in the actual churches, we see that Jesus is doing his miracles with a magic wand. The importance of this is to point out that people do not realize that in Christianity, uh, the understanding in the ancient world and in the medieval world was that these religious figures like Jesus were doing their, their miracles with magic wands. But it's actually legitimate, du jour, real, magical system of controlling people's minds and directing their spirits and their hearts and, and being able to direct our, our civilization through magical symbols and magical words. Another symbol that uh, I find to be very interesting is uh, in Star Trek there was a Mr. Spock. And if you remember, Mr. Spock was always giving a hand sign and he was said to be a Vulcan. First of all, his hand sign was actually a religious symbol in Judaism, uh, in which it was a blessing to the congregation in Judaism. It's called the Kohen symbol. This symbol is a Jewish blessing symbol. But where did it come from? It comes from the split hoof of a goat. 
it goes back to the split hoof of a goat because we're talking about the age of Aries, the ram. When the Jews were under the age of the ram, the ram or the lamb of God. And so that's why today we call Jesus the Lamb of God. We're going back to the constellation of uh, Aries, the Ram. Nebo even said that he accepted that sign and used it but because it was a sign from his rabbi. And he thought it was a very interesting symbol, so he just used it in Star Trek. I'm sure he probably knew the, uh, the, the meaning of the sign, but that's where he said he got it from. Another subject which is interesting and very relevant today is a symbol called the fasci or the fasces. On the back of it, uh, on the back of an American dime, you will see a bundle of sticks tied together, and it has an axe head with it. That is uh, called a fasci, and that's an ancient Etruscan symbol that was adopted by the Roman Empire to symbolize Rome's power. It's an old ancient Etruscan symbol, but it's very important to the Roman Empire. Rome said, ancient Rome's philosophy was, if it's just one stick, and you, can, you can beat somebody with a stick, but it's not gonna hurt them really. But if you got two or three sticks, now, it, it, now it's gonna be a, a little bit heavier deal. But if you get five or six sticks and tie them together as one, now you've got serious strength now. Now when you beat somebody with uh, six or eight sticks tied together, that's, that's serious. And so then they put a hatchet head on it because uh, an axe head always represented in almost all the ancient cultures of the world accepted that the axe head represented the presence of God. God was the great hatchet, the, you know, he's giving you the axe. And so the hatchet head represented God, and the bundle of sticks represented a coalition of troops. So when Rome would go into some uh, to another country to overtake it, they would take troops from this group and troops from that group and put them all together. Now you've got a strong force, it's not just Romans. It's all kinds of other countries are, are with you. And so that's what we hear today, when we hear the presidents talking about during the Middle East, they have a coalition uh, of, of countries, not just America, we have uh, other countries with us, it's a coalition. Coalition is another name for fasci, which is a symbol for world fascism, where you can get all the countries together and, and have them all, you know, all doing the same thing, all of the countries uh, watching to the same tune, now you've got a strong military force. The fasci was, was usually carried officially behind Caesar. He would be on, in the front of the parade or whatever, and there would be what is called lectors behind him, and they would be holding the fasci, symbolizing Caesar's power over life and death. He is the man. He's the boss, and so the lectors would be standing on both sides of Caesar on the altars when Caesar was speaking, <clears throat> holding those fasci, so that the Roman people know he is, he has the right to life and death. So here you see in World War II, uh, with Mussolini on the left, and his symbol for his government, a fasci. Well, of course, he's Italian, and that goes back to the Roman Empire. And so here we have 
uh, a Nazi, as you'll see, the swastika, and they had a Nazi eagle, like the American uh, bald eagle. Uh, but you'll see the two fasces on each side of the swastika. This is because Germany was in league with Italy during the Second World War. Mussolini had in mind to do the same thing Adolf Hitler wanted to do, was to create a new world order. And so Mussolini saw that new world order as being Catholic, as to be Roman. While, uh, while Germany saw it to be uh, German and, and uh, not Italian. But the two together, uh, I suppose they figured they'll, they'll work that out once they take over the world. Well, Mussolini actually, according to history books, actually thought of himself as Caesar. He saw himself in his position of power at the time of the Second World War as Caesar of the ancient Roman Empire. And therefore, it would be right that he would pick the symbol that Caesar used to show his power. And so that's why the, the fasci became so fashionable in Italy. But the two fasci, you will also see on the uh, wall behind the, um, where the Speaker of the House sits when the President's making a, a speech. The United States has, uh, has a secret societies uh, in their government and behind the government are very powerful secret societies that see itself, these societies see themselves as the, as the promoters and, the, and, the, and to generate a new world order. All countries copy each other. The fascists copied the Etruscans, uh, the Romans copied the Greeks, and the Greeks copied the, the Egyptians, and that's just the way humans are. As much as we change, uh, the more we stay the same. We're all still adopting the same symbols that we adopted under the Egyptian Empire. We're still using those symbols today, pyramids. Let's talk about the pyramid. And we all recognize that there's uh, three beautiful pyramids on what is called the Giza Plateau in, in Egypt. But my question is, there's only one of the three of those pyramids is referred to as the Great Pyramid. First of all, you need to know that the pyramid that's directly behind the Sphinx uh, is not the Great Pyramid. It is a Great Pyramid in Egypt, but it is not the Great Pyramid. This is the Great Pyramid of Egypt. How many sides does the Great Pyramid have? Well, you would think if there's four sides, and then there's the bottom as a side, so it would be five-sided pyramid. But actually, in point of fact, no, the Great Pyramid is... We're going to pull up. Bundle of sticks represented a coalition of troops. So when Rome would go into some uh, to another country to overtake it, they would take troops from this group and troops from that group and put them all together. Now you've got a strong force, it's not just Roman. It's all kinds of other countries are, are with you. And so that's what we hear today when we hear the presidents talking about during the Middle East, they have a coalition uh, of, of countries, not just America. We have uh, other countries with us. It's a coalition. Coalition is another name for fasci which is a symbol for world fascism, where you can get all the countries together and, and have them all, you know, all doing the same thing, all of the countries 
marching to the same tune, now you've got a strong military force. The Feshai was, was usually carried officially behind Caesar. He would be on, in the front of the parade or whatever, and there would be what is called lectors behind him, and they would be holding the Feshai, symbolizing Caesar's power over life and death. He is the man. He's the boss, and so the lectors would be standing up both sides of Caesar on the altars when Caesar was speaking, holding those fasci, so that the Roman people know he is—he has the right to life and death. So here you see in World War II uh, with Mussolini on the left, and his symbol for his government, a fasci. Well, of course, he's Italian, and that goes back to the Roman Empire. And so here we have uh, a Nazi, as you'll see, the swastika and the, and the Nazi eagle, like the American uh, bald eagle. Uh, but you'll see the two fasci's on each side of the swastika. This is because Thank Germany you. was in league with Italy during the Second World War. Mussolini had in mind to do the same thing Adolf Hitler wanted to do was to create a new world order. And so Mussolini saw that new world order as being Catholic, as to be Roman, while, uh, while Germany saw it to be uh, German and, and uh, not Italian. But the two together, uh, I suppose they figured they'll, they'll work that out once they take over the world. Well, Mussolini actually, according to history books, actually thought of himself as Caesar. He saw himself in his position of power at the time of the Second World War as Caesar of the ancient Roman Empire, and therefore it would be right that he would pick the symbol that Caesar used to show his power. And so that's why the, the fasci became so fashionable in Italy. But the two fasci's you will also see on the uh, wall behind the um, where the Speaker of the House sits when the President is making a, a speech. The United States has, uh, has uh, secret societies uh, in their government and behind the government are very powerful secret societies that see itself, these societies see themselves as the, as the promoters and, the, and, the, and to generate a new world order. Fascism. All countries copy each other. The fascists copy the Etruscans. Ah. Uh, the Romans copied the Greeks, and the Greeks copied the, the Egyptians, and that's just the way humans are. As much as we change, uh, the more we stay the same. We're all still adopting the same symbols that we adopted under the Egyptian Empire. We're still using those symbols today, pyramids. Let's talk about the pyramid, and we all recognize that there's uh, three beautiful pyramids on what is called the Giza Plateau in, in Egypt. But my question is, there's only one of the three of those pyramids is referred to as the Great Pyramid. First of all, you need to know that the pyramid that's directly behind the Sphinx uh, is not the Great Pyramid. It is a Great Pyramid in Egypt, but it is not the Great Pyramid. This is the Great Pyramid of Egypt. How many sides does the Great Pyramid have? Well, you'll 
think if there's four sides and then there's the bottom as a side, so it would be five-sided pyramid. But actually, in point of fact, no, the Great Pyramid is nine sides. Why? Because on the first day of the spring equinox or the fall equinox, if you are in the right place at the right moment when the sun hits the pyramid, you will see that each side is divided down the middle, but so subtle that when you are there at the pyramid, you don't notice it. But on the first day of spring and autumn, you will see the Great Pyramid is divided down the middle. And so here again is another picture of the pyramid from above on a special day, a special mm. hour, when the sun's hitting it just wow. right. And so each side is two sides. Nine sided. Therefore, if uh, you, you've got not four sides, but eight, plus the bottom side makes nine. So how many people know that the Great Pyramid of Egypt has nine sides? It's strange, but it seems as that no one really knows why the Egyptians took so much effort to divide <clears throat> each side of the pyramid so perfectly and so brilliantly and such uh, that you would not see it until a particular day at a particular time. We call it the Great Pyramid because there's a lot of important stuff uh, implied in that, in, that, in that pyramid. And the other pyramids do not even come close. They don't have anything like what's in that Great Pyramid. That is one act by itself, the only one. That's why we today call it the Great Pyramid. Uh, the next subject we'd like to look at for a moment is the cornerstone in the Christian religion. Christians will tell you that the church, uh, that in the church of Christianity, Jesus is referred to as uh, the, the, the cornerstone of the church. But that's not exactly correct. The actual scripture says that he's not the cornerstone. It says Jesus is the chief cornerstone. A cornerstone is what it's said to be, just a stone at the corner of a building. But wherever you set that cornerstone up, you're going to line all the other stones up with it. So it's the first one that decides where this building is going to be aiming. And so Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. But Jesus is actually referred to as the chief cornerstone. And that's important because a totally different understanding of the word chief cornerstone. Chief cornerstone means a triangle placed on top of a pyramid. A little, if you take a perfect flawless pyramid triangle and you cut off the top, it itself is a pyramid, but it's a tiny one that sits on top of the big one. That tiny little pyramid is called a pyramidion. A pyramidion is a tiny pyramid sitting on top of the big pyramid. That's what the Bible says Jesus is. He is a pyramidion. He's not a cornerstone. He's a chief cornerstone, which is on the top of a pyramid. That was the genius of the ancient Egyptians. And so today, the more we have changed, the more we stay the same. And so we use the same symbol that Caesar used. We use the same symbol that the Babylonians used. It's because... Mankind is hardwired, so to speak, to realize the importance of very powerful symbols to represent your civilization and who you are. 
where you come from and what your destiny is. It's everywhere from religion to governments to military, commerce, banking. Symbols is a way to communicate with the world. I'm Jordan Maxwell, and thank you for watching. Looking great. Secret life symbols. He passed away in 2022. Great man. Great scholar. Da da dee dee da 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 Jordan Maxwell died oh, on great. March 23rd, what? 2022. Oh, shit. He just died last year. Yeah. 81. Fucking, fucking A. Hometown hero. Jordan Maxwell biography on IMDb. Known for spinning image. 2020, the truth is out there. 2011, and metaphysia. 2012. So, well, that's a bummer. I'm sad. Um, so, let's go to Gaia. Well, I still have the subscription. I need to renew it. <clears throat> so it doesn't fire <sighs> bummer creating man in our image who made us who made who who made you popular interpretations of the bible tell us that god made man in his image however jordan maxwell brings forward translations of biblical texts which suggest something far different than what many people believe what he shares may redefine the history of humanity this and reveal our true place in the universe. Biblical reference at the end of this episode is found in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. Creating man in our image. If we go back to Genesis 1, the very first chapter in the Bible, Genesis 1, so many people today believe and have been told, and that's why they believe it, that God made us, God made man. In him, in and they will point to image. the scripture that says God created Adam and Eve. And then they will say, see, there it is. God made man. But that's mm. not what the Bible says. It doesn't say that God made man. In the beginning, the first chapter of Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that's not what it says in the Hebrew. This is why we are emphasizing that it says God created the heavens and the earth. But in Hebrew, the word God is El, E-L. So if we were to read this first chapter, the first verse, uh, in Hebrew, it would say, in the beginning, El created the heavens and the earth. But that's not what it says in Hebrew. It <laughs> says, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, not El. In the beginning of the heavens the and the earth, which are now. I came across this many, many years ago, talking with a very impressive, uh, well-known rabbi. 
he was the one that put me onto this when I was very young, that uh, God did not create, he said, God did not create man. There's nowhere in the Old Testament or what you call the Old Testament where it says God created man. No, it just doesn't say that. And so I began to look at this, and he gave me all the, the ideas you know, a long time ago. So the first thing we need to look at is, as I said, the word is incorrect. God is El in Hebrew, but it's Elohim. And Elohim means the gods in the plural, more than one God. So the correct understanding of Genesis 1-1 is that in the beginning, the gods created the heavens and the earth. We need to define our terms first about God. And what does the word God mean in the Old Testament Hebrew? Uh, here it is uh, for you. This is God in the Hebrew is Elohim, gods, more than one. So in uh, Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So it's more than one God. But here's the important part. We'll see it again. This is from another Bible translation where the word God shows up, and then it says in Hebrew, it's Elohim, which is plural, more than one. So, God Elohim is plural. The word Elohim, on the top it says the word Elohim is a plural word. In Hebrew, the plural form of the noun ends in M-I-M-O-T. Elohim is a plural form. On the bottom it says it is interesting to note that even though Elohim is plural, the Hebrew dictionary still translates it God instead of God's. This is what has confused people around the world, because the actual word in the Bible is God's. And this is why you will see in a lot of the reference works, they will make the distinction and show you this, the plural form of L. Now, when you go to the actual scriptures in the Hebrew Bible and the Jewish Bible, it says Elohim, we shall make man in our image and after our likeness. But it actually says in Hebrew, Elohim said, we, W-E, meaning more than one, we will make man. Remember the Moses with the Ten Commandments, uh, where Moses receives the law and the Ten Commandments from God. And what is the first commandment? The first commandment says, I am the Lord your God, who have brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage, and you shall have no other gods before me. He didn't say there are no other gods. He just said that you will have no other gods before me. The emphasis I was told many years ago was, uh, Rabbi pointed out, is that God is saying to the Hebrews, uh, people with the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God. You pick me. So uh, I, there's a group. What I'm saying is that picture of, say, 12 or 14 different gods, and each one is equal to, the, uh, to every other one. But if you pick one and you make a deal with that one god, then you have a relationship with that god. And so this is why uh, God says to the Hebrews, I am the Lord your God. And I shall not have any other gods before me. So, basically, it's like a young man telling his fiance, you know, there are many other young men out there like me. 
but I'm supposed to, you know, I, I'm going steady with you, so I don't want to have any other young men in my place. So God was a jealous God, but I, you know, it's understandable that there were many other gods. So, uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He didn't say there weren't any. Now, if you read from Exodus 20, verse 3, this is just some of the ways that it is expressed in different translations. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yes, have no other gods. Then in the uh, Hebrew, or the third one down is from the, uh, from the Hebrew Bible, and it says, Thou shalt have no, uh, no Elohims uh, in my presence. So uh, the ancient Hebrews realized that the word was uh, mentioning more than one God. But it's the Christianity today that has uh, caused that Elohim to be brought down Purposely to a singular Purposely mistranslated. Term. And there's a lot of um, talk about this now. And it's starting to come out that, that there's a lot of question about what does Elohim mean. Mm-hmm. Well, it just means more than one deity. Judaism is said to be a first monotheistic religion. Mono meaning one, theistic meaning uh, the study of God. But in point of fact, uh, Judaism is not a monotheistic uh, religion. It is, it's the correct term is Heno, H-E-N-O, Heno theology. Uh, Heno theology means picking one God out of a group. And so if you pick, as I said, if you pick one God out of the group, then he is your God and you are his people. It doesn't mean that that's the only God in the whole universe. No, it's just your God. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 11.16 says, But be careful not to let yourselves be seduced, so that you turn aside serving other gods and worshiping them. Hmm. So the Jewish God, the God of the Jews, was telling them, Yes, there are other gods, but don't, <laughs> but don't be worshiping them. First, you need to know that the people we call the ancient Hebrews were not Hebrews as such. They were, in fact, Phoenician or Canaanites. And this is where the you can trace back in the encyclopedias in the, in the dictionaries about ancient Cana and the ancient area we call today Israel and Lebanon, that whole area. Moloch. Canaanite Moloch. Here we have another article. This one was from... Hey, stop it. Yeah, we call today Israel and Lebanon, that whole area. They were called Canaanites. Here we have another Judaism. article. This one was from a Jewish magazine. It talks about it is the faith of the people of Judah and it's the developed faith of the Semitic people known as Hebrews or Israelites. It is recognized as the first religious tradition noted for its monotheism. Then it goes on to say, the Hebrew tradition did not begin as monotheism. So then we find out that all the people of the Middle East were anything but monotheistic. They were, the so-called Hebrews were, in that time, henotheistic, meaning picking one God out of many. Here at Liberty University, they had articles about henotheism toward the assessment of a divine plurality in, in the Hebrew Bible. 
I'm hoping to show you that this is understood in many Bible reference works, the word henotheism, and what it actually means. The God of Israel and ancient people's growing understanding from henotheism to monotheism. We see this happening with the human race for thousands of years. Things change. You, you know, one religion begins and has a, a particular understanding of God, and give it a thousand years, and that changes, and add another thousand years, and it changes again. Until today, we have a whole new understanding that there was only one God in the universe, and he created man, which in point of fact is not true. The one article in the middle that was read, it says... Um, we have previously established that the mighty ones are the sons of God, the assembly of assembly of messengers, and that Yahweh was a part of these messengers. These two phrases simply confirm this: He that sacrifices uh, sacrificeth unto any god, save until save unto Jehovah only, shall be utterly destroyed. Exodus twenty-two twenty. Grammar of constructs in Hebrew is well established and well the translators will correctly translate the phrase Yahweh with the English Yahweh of hosts. They completely ignore the construct of Yahweh Elohim and translate as Yahweh gods. It's another attempt to make the text appear as a monotheistic text. Note these two phrases Yahweh of the armies and Yahweh of the mighty ones are identical. In construct and in meaning, there are synonyms. Interestingly, the words seva, sevot is a feminine plural, while Elohim is the masculine plural. This is seva, seva, seva what? Seva of. This is Yahweh is not the seva of, but a part of it. So too, Yahweh is not Elohim. Rather, he is part of the Elohim. School them. Messengers, and that Yahweh was a part of these messengers. So this is another uh, another thought being expressed that Yahweh was one of the many gods. So again, it's important when you see here in the scriptures in the Hebrew it says Elohim said we shall make uh, man in our image. Now it's interesting too is that when Elohim are the gods said come let us make man in our image after our likeness uh, as I was told many years ago this was a mis a misunderstanding of the sentence you should not read it that God said come let us make man in our image after our likeness and then that would prove that God made man no it, the correct way to understand it is that the God says come let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Not make man, but let's make him in our image, after our likeness. Well, that, of course, implies that we have been uh, tampered with, with our DNA. This is maybe a long time ago, but nonetheless, we were, we've been tampered with, and we still are today. We're still, even as humans, we're still tampering with our own DNA. If you go to the encyclopedias and reference works, you will see a lot of articles on Hebrew henotheism. I'm saying this is because it is a well-established fact that, that, that the ancient Hebrews were not a monotheistic religion.
This is in the book of Psalms 82, where it says, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty, and he judgeth among the gods. And we see God in the, in the Hebrew tradition is one of the many gods, and he's in standing among all the other gods. Let's see how the other Bible versions say it. God takes his stand in the divine council, or Elohim God stands in the divine assembly, where there are other Elohim. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. So the point is that, that there is more than one God, and that the Hebrew God was just one of them. That's in the Old Testament. But even the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says basically the same thing. In 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, For though there may be called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be gods many and lords many. Then in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, it says, For although there may be so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, and there are many of them. So let's go on and move on from there. We're going back to Genesis 1.26. And this is where we, we see the scripture talks about when God is creating man or recreating man. And so it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so there's a big difference between God making man or remaking him in their image and likeness. And what does that mean? Let's see how other Bibles put it. The Good News Bible says, then God said, and now we shall make human beings and they will be like us and they will resemble us. Here in the New Living Translation of the Bible, it says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Common English Bible says, then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us. This is a far better understanding of a scripture to start with. Here's the complete Jewish Bible that says, then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in the likeness of ourselves. So let's begin to open up a whole new understanding about why we appear on earth as we do, it begins to look like that we are looking today like our creator. The creators who created us are messed with our DNA and caused us to begin more and more to look like them. So that opens up the whole new can of, uh, of worms also to show that there's more than one God. And so we look like the gods that created us. The reason I'm showing so many scriptures, I want you to understand, all Bibles are saying basically the same thing, that we look like the creators that created us, the Elohim, more than one. And in Genesis 3.22, and it said, The Lord God said, Behold, man has become one of us. Now he's become like us. He looks like us. He's acting like us. And he is very destructive like us, having wars like us. So the Holy Bible basically says, now let us make man like us. God did not make man as you will see. The word in Hebrew for man is ish. I-S-H in Hebrew is man. 
But the Bible says God made Adam, A-D-M, not Ish. But if you go back to the Hebrew Bible and read it, it says in this Hebrew Bible preface, it says according to this, the Hebrew word for woman is Isha, comes from the Hebrew word for man, Ish. Here's another uh, reference word that said, interesting, the words for man and woman in Hebrew is identical. Man in Hebrew is pronounced ish and looks like this. But the Bible does not say God created ish. It says God created A-D-M, and this is important too. It doesn't say that God created Adam. The letter was A-D-M. We we humans added, make it to be Adam, but it's not Adam, it's A-D-L. Here we have the Hebrew translation going back to Hebrew. It says, we, again, we shall make Adam, A-D-L, which means a different kind of creature, Adam, A-D-L, not Adam. And and we will make him in the image of us, A-D-L. Like so many other humans do, even ADM, Adam made human or male offspring. Look how the Bible describes it. In Genesis 5, Genesis 5 chapter, it says, And Adam lived 130 years, and he begat a son in his own likeness. After the image, and called his son Seth. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own image and likeness. So we are seeing that the man is now doing what the gods did also for us. They created us to look like them, and we now have the ability to create uh, other offspring, and we have a son who looks like us. There are many examples in the Bible that show that the gods look like us. No. We look like them. They look what they look like to start with, but we were made to look like them. As an example, a classic example is found in the story of Abraham's meeting three visitors that came to visit him. This is in Genesis 18 and 19. We're told that Abraham and Sarah were in their tent and that three men come walking up to the tent, three visitors. And when Abraham saw the three men, he went out and bowed down to them and said, what is my Lord saying to his servant? So we're told that Abraham knew this was the Lord, God. But he looked like another man. Well, that's what the scripture says. God said we will make men to look like us in our image. In chapter 18 in Genesis, it said, The Lord appeared unto him, this was Abraham, in the plains of memory, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And when Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, lo, there were three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran out to meet them at the front temple door and bowed himself to the ground before these three men. And here he is bowing before the three men that Abraham obviously knew was God coming with uh, two of his assistant angels. And so it says that uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham. And then in Genesis 18.2 it says, And he lifted up his eyes and looked and the three men uh, were there. And so we're told that Abraham then 
asked the three men to stay for something to eat, to have lunch with him, and then they could go on. And the Lord said, no, he was, they were on their way to take care of some business, and they didn't have time. Hmm. And the scripture says that, uh, that Abraham went out and insisted that they stay for just a short time to have lunch. And God then said to Abraham, all mm-hmm. right, then do that, but make it quick because we're in a hurry. <laughs> and so the scripture goes on to say that Abraham's wife, Sarah, fixed uh, a lunch for the three men. And now we are told that Abraham went out and sat under the tree with the three men as they had lunch. Now, after eating, two of the three men got up to be on their way, while the third man stayed a bit longer to talk with Abraham. So now we got a guy sitting under the tree talking with Abraham. They just had lunch. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. So we're told that the men that left, they were on their way to somewhere, so Abraham quickly got up and escorted them a short distance on their way. Well, they were on their way to Sodom. And it says, and then in Genesis 19, the next chapter, the two men that were having lunch with Abraham, and then they got up and walked towards Sodom, That's in chapter 18. But in chapter 19, it goes on to say, And there came two angels to Sodom and at evening time. And Lot sat at the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing these two angels, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face to the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, and I pray you to come and be in my home if you're going to be here. And the men said, again, we're interchanging angels and men. And so the men said to Lot, no, uh, we won't won't stay at your home. We will just stay in the city and we'll be all right. But it keeps interchanging men with angels, okay. So the point in this, according to the Bible, the word for God is Elohim and means the gods, plural, more than one. And they make us to look in their image and their likeness. We look like them. So that's why your male offspring looks human like you. So here's Abraham meeting the three men with Sarah, uh, offering them to stay for lunch. Then we see this is portrayed in many paintings in the Bible of the three men, which are actually three angels. It implies also that the third man, was actually the Almighty God because it's capitalized in the Bible. So this is the Almighty God who looks like a man and stays and has, has lunch with uh, Abraham. So this is why the Christian New Testament has the Apostle Paul saying in the Bible, he says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware meaning that if you see someone, another man, be careful because it might not be, in fact, another man. It may be an angel who you look like, but he looks like what he looks like to start with, and you were made into looking his image. You were made to look like him. So just be careful when you're talking to other people. Show respect because you never know who you're talking to. Here again in, in the book of Hebrews, Chapter 2, 
talking. This is uh, our Apostle Paul again. And it says, remember to welcome strangers in your homes. There were some who did that and welcomed angels without knowing it. Very interesting that we're beginning to see God didn't make a man. God remade man. He began to change, and this is why the scripture says it that way. Come, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So today, what I'm saying is that we look like the gods who created us. And so this is why Abraham going to go out and feed the, feed the three men, and then you find out, no, those are the angels that went into Sodom. All of this is actually very important in understanding theology and religion from the Bible's standpoint. This is something that most people have never heard before, that we look like the gods who created us, gods more than one. So when we go back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens. No, it wasn't God, it was plural, Elohim. And Elohim, plural, gods, comes, we give the term henotheistic, meaning more than one God. And it is also interesting to understand that in Islam, in the Quran, everywhere God is talking to man, it's weak. You look it up in the Quran, you will see everywhere that God is talking to his people, he keeps saying, we, we would did this, we are going to do that, we had you do this, we, we created you. And it actually says that in the Quran, we created you. So indeed, there are many different gods. God is gods, and the gods made ADM, not Ish, which means they, have they saw Ish, and then they took Ish and remade him into Adam, and we call it Adam. No, the gods came here, they saw this man, and therefore the man must have been like a Neanderthal man, or some, uh, some ancient creature, a hominid, and the gods said, let us make him look like us. Let, him, let us make him in our image. So that's what I'm saying. God did not create man because man is Ish. It doesn't say he made Ish. Ish was already here. So the three visitors to Abraham were three men, but Abraham realized they were gods. They, they were the creators. And uh, the gods were always pictured as either men with uh, angel wings or not. After the flood of Noah's day, chapter 9 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. When I talked to the rabbi many years ago, I said, Is this a correct translation that says, uh, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth? re means to do it again and he said well obviously if there were people here on the earth and god decided to destroy that civilization of that time and now there's nobody on the earth except uh, noah and his sons and their wives if you're going to have people on the earth you're going to have to replenish the earth obviously so i said sorry right. so therefore replenish is correct yes yes and the reason why I'm asking that is because re means more, do again. Well, if you go back to 
It was again the, in the Bible, in the Jewish Bible, talks about Elohim, and Elohim said replenish. Okay, this is important because if you go to Genesis one, where God is uh, is creating Adam and his wife, it says this is in Genesis one twenty seven and twenty eight. It says, God created man in his own image. After the image of God created he, male and female created them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. So it's not to be understood. We're not to understand that God created man as the very first creature. No, when he created, when these gods created us, they said to replenish the earth implying that that some terrible catastrophe had happened on the earth and that so much of life was lost and so now the gods who created us say go out now and redo it again so how many people in the world have ever thought about adam and eve were not the first creatures on the earth there have been civilizations here for millions of years genesis 1 2 says and the earth was without form and void that is an incorrect translation. It doesn't say that. Here it is again. Genesis 1-2, and the earth was without form and void. The English words in Genesis 1-2, without form and void, is mistranslation of the original Hebrew words tohu vavohu. The word tohu vavohu means not without form and void. If you go back to the uh, original Hebrew, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then in Genesis 1-2 says, and the earth became a waste and a desolation. The earth became a waste and a desolation. It wasn't created without form and void. Obviously, if God's going to create something, it's got to have a form, and it's not going to be void, whatever that's supposed to mean. So, therefore, the correct understanding is Genesis 1-2, the earth became a waste and a desolation. What are you talking about, the earth became a waste and a desolation? We find that in, in the Bible, uh, again, it keeps telling us, all of these translations keep telling us that it's actually became. It wasn't a form without, without form and void. It was formed the way God formed it. But it became a waste and a desolation. And here's another uh, translation of the scriptures where it actually says the earth became a waste. Now, when you understand that the earth became a waste, not without form, you can go back to the reference works in the uh, King James Bible, and it will explain to you that the words are tohu vavohu. And it gives you all the understanding right there in the Bible itself, but most people don't even don't even look at the uh, the, you know, the reference works on this. The Hebrew words tohu vavohu is only found twice in the Bible. The second place in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, one twenty three where it says, I beheld, now Jeremiah is talking about, and this is in the Old Testament, and Jeremiah says, I beheld, well, first of all, Jeremiah is saying that he was on his bed, and that God gave him a vision. The Lord gave Jeremiah a vision of the old ancient world. 
and he said, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. No, it's, I beheld the earth, and it became a waste and a desolation. And the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. And I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities that were broken down in the presence of the Lord and in, the, and in his fierce anger. For thus hath the Lord said, The whole land shall be desolate, and yet will I make it full end. So here we're seeing that God's showing uh, Jeremiah the earth in its earliest beginnings, when it was a beautiful, it says, all the cities there were broken up. But it says also in 25, there was no man. So now you have to wonder, well, who was building all the beautiful cities if there was no man? So it implies that something else was going on on this earth a long time ago that we have no idea about. But there was a massive destruction that happened to this planet maybe thousands or tens of thousands of years ago, if not maybe millions of years ago. And that... Uh, Adam and Eve were told to go forth and do it again, start all over again. So when you begin to see how these words are put together, we begin to see that God did not make man. God came here and saw what the Hebrews call Ish, which was the ancient man, these ancient hominid creatures. And they said, come, let us make these creatures to look like us and be like us. Now we begin to see the actual truth is that God did not make man. He remade the, the creatures that were here that we call hominids, and that's where we have come from. We look like the gods that created us. I'm Jordan Maxwell, and thank you for watching. Very excellent. Well made. I think you made this point pretty well. Uh, Creating man and creating man in our image. Hi there, welcome back. We're on a Jordan Maxwell binge fest on Gaia. This is called Maseroth. Ordinances of Heaven. Da da dee 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 da 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 ba da 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 da. Jordan Maxwell, thanks for 331k. It's had a biggest spike I've ever seen on my podcast. Glad law enforcement's learning something. Fuck you, pigs. This Give is me back my animal. Hook shot, bitches. Mazel tov or Maseroth. So it's much Maseroth, of the world today is ill-informed about symbols and signs. That's what I do. I try and help people to understand the symbolism, the signs, the hidden indicators of where we are in the period of time and where we're going and what's coming. Because actually today there's so much violence 
and hatred among peoples and different groups because no one seems to understand we're all one people on the earth and we all have one history of the earth in the times in which we're living and so we need to realize that all the different religions sin are basically telling us certain things Catholic about the ordinances of heaven i think it will help the world and where we're going if we all stop looking at symbols and emblems and educating ourselves to what these things mean. Edumification is the answer. In Job 38, 33, where it says, God is saying to Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? The Pleiades is one of the um, constellations in the heavens. And so here God is saying, can you bind the uh, chains of the Pleiades? Can you lead forth the constellations in their season? And then it says in 33, do you know the ordinances of heaven? The ordinances simply means a decree or law or directive. It's the law to understand. So God is asking Job, do you understand the laws that govern the heavens? I'm asking the same question today. First of all, in order to know the ordinances of heaven, you must know the most important part or feature of the laws of heaven. The word in the Bible is Maserat, the ordinances of heaven. If you go to Job 38, 32, you will see the word Maserat. And in the footnotes, it's... Now, a lot of people think that the Zodiac should not be connected to Christianity or the Bible at all. Actually, in point of fact, the Zodiac is the basis for both Old and New Testament. When you consult Bible references like the Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias, you look up the word Maserati and will tell you it's the 12 signs of the Zodiac. We are given to understand in the Bible that God created the Zodiac. And that may sound strange to a lot of people, because most people think of the Zodiac as something evil, especially in Christianity. But no, the Zodiac is the basis for much of our learning today, much of our symbolism today, especially in religion and politics. I mean, even the watch you wear uh, is 12 signs of the Zodiac are the 12 signs that go in a circle. And that's what the word zodiac means, the 12 signs. We talk about the kingdom of God all the time, but most people don't realize what the kingdom really is. We humans put uh, different life forms into different uh, categories. We say fishers, stools, cattle and herds. What kind of life forms are we? humans say are in a kingdom if it isn't animals animals kingdom the greeks came up with uh, the idea that the zodiac was a kingdom of animals that circled the earth and so when we say in our prayers even in the uh, roman system that gave us a lot of our understanding of the zodiac today we say in our prayers uh, our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name, let thy kingdom come, and let thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. We are living our lives 
in the zodiac. All cultures in the world recognize that the zodiac is important in their theology and their belief system. And when you go to our uh, Bible bookstores or Bible seminaries, go into the large library, and you will begin to see that there are so many books that are written by Christian and Jewish theologians and people who study religion. Uh, Wycliffe Bible Commentary talks about to qualify as a director and judge a man's life on earth, one must be able to govern the heavenly bodies that rule the earth. Note the repeated mention of the influence of the atmospheric or astral heavens on earthly affairs. We're talking astrology. Here in the New Interpreter's Bible, it says uh, some connection between what happens in the heavens and what happens on earth is presupposed in the question that Job is being asked by God if he knows the ordinances of heaven. Being asked that question obviously means that God has assigned uh, ordinances in heaven, and we're calling it the zodiac, Mazarot. Let's go back to Genesis 1.14 while we're on this subject. And in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the first page says, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs. Another Bible translation says, and God said, let there be light holders in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from night, and let them be for signs. The word signs means things to come in Hebrew. The word for signs, the word is oth, O-T-H. This is a Hebrew word which is translated in the Bible as just things to come. Well, that's what the Zodiac uh, purports to do. It tells you about things to come. All Christians are aware that Jesus says to his apostles that in my father's house are many mansions. Dictators and, and kings have always felt that there's a mansion in heaven for them. Well, it's a misunderstanding. The incorrect way is to say, in my father's house are many mansions. But other translations say, in my father's house are many abodes. Abodes is where you live, and where you are is in your abode. In my father's abodes are many dwelling places. Oh, now we're getting to it. Because the heavens is where God is, and if God is in heaven, the scripture says that in my Father's abode are many houses, are many resting places for the sun, houses of the zodiac. Basically, it boils down to this, that both the Old and New Testament are based on astrology. The 12 signs of the zodiac is, is part of the number 12 in Christianity. There were 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 brothers of Joseph, the 12 breastplate stones on the high priest, and then those 12 apostles. Look in the Bible, and you will see how many times 12 is used. It's all based on the 12 signs of the zodiac. There was no 12 tribes of Israel. Each one of those signs in the 12 tribes of Israel was an astrological indicator as to what each month represented in the ancient Jewish religion. And the ancient Jewish religion understood this. It's people today who are not studying theology 
do not understand that the whole of the Old and New Testament is a metaphor. HarperCollins Study Dictionary says the Lord made the constellations, the Pleiades and Orion. I don't know how one could read something like this and not see that the Bible is saying God made the constellations of the Zodiac. New International Bible says he, God, is the maker of the bear and Orion and the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. So if you want to find a fault with astrology, then you'll find your fault with the ideas and concepts that God has put into the heavens as laws. Many philosophers have talked about that foolish people, ignorant and foolish people, are dominated by the zodiac. They don't know that their personalities and things that happen to them are because of the stars and the moon and the, and the influence of these heavenly signs. But that wise people are guided uh, by these signs. And so I, it occurred to me that, that for thousands of years, mankind has navigated around the world on the high seas by a knowledge of the stars. And so the Bible is saying you should navigate your life by the stars. Here we have a typical publication in Christianity talking about astrology as satanic. And that's why I'm spending so much time talking about the biblical reference for it, saying that no, it is created by God. It's not satanic. If you really are interested in theological and spiritual subjects, especially in relation to the Bible, you need to get the Companion Bible by Kriegel because it's an astounding work where it gives one half of the page is the, is the scripture. The other half of, of each page are the footnotes. And the footnotes will actually blow you away because it tells you the truth about what these symbols really mean and where they came from. In the back of the uh, Kriegel Bible, it talks about the word and where it came from in the Hebrew and what it means. And it, it basically is saying that it is uh, telling you about things to come, astrology. Bible. So here we see the four seasons, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, writing a story about their risen Savior. And what do we see them all four writing about? The Son. This is why Jesus had 12 apostles. Jesus represents God's Son. Not S-O-N, S-U-N. Jesus is a metaphor in the New Testament for the Son. And he was our risen Savior, of course. The sun rises each morning. You'll see this famous painting where there are 12 apostles. And to Jesus' right, there's the first apostle to his right, is a woman. A lot of people do not know that one of the 12 apostles of Jesus was a woman. Why? Because there is a zodiological sign called Virgo. Virgo was a virgin. That's why you have to have one woman in there to represent Virgo. The 12 apostles are the 12 signs of the zodiac. Now let's look at some of the zodiac symbols used in religious history. 
and we'll start with Taurus the bull. The age of Taurus was the age of agriculture when the cows and, and animals that we were now beginning to use as food, that was just one of the qualities of the age of Taurus. The age of Taurus is between 4400 and 2200 BC. And keep in mind that Taurus the bull was recognized all over the world by all governments and all religions of the world. Everybody knew what it meant, except us today. <laughs> so hmm. this is why you have words like holy cow, and the cow is still holy in, in, in India today. We see the Egyptians worshiping the sun between the, the horns of the bull. The sun is very important to the 12 signs of the zodiac. Most people do not realize that Taurus, being in the, in the heavens as a constellational sign, was very, very important to Judaism. Here is Taurus, the cow, the bull, and he's in heaven. You see the sun behind him, so the sun is in the age of Taurus, the bull. And, of course, we have many stories about the, the Jews worshiping the golden calf. People don't understand what that story is all about. Moses goes up to the mountain to talk with God because it is time for God to change the ordinances of heaven. And it's important here to remember that each sign of the constellation last 2,150 years. Every 2,150 years, the world changes completely. All the great religions of the world realize that. And now Moses comes down with a new beginning of a new way to worship God. A new time when God is going to be worshipped in a different way. And so Moses goes up to find out what that new way of worship that God wants people to do. And so we have the story of the golden calf. Golden, well, because the sun is golden. And calf is a bull. So we have the golden calf, or the bull, Taurus, and the sun in the age of Taurus. Today, Israel is trying to bring back the good old days of bull worship. But it's, it's impossible because Taurus is gone. We're in the age of Pisces. And they want to go back to the old days, the way we worship God in the old days with the, the golden calf. We're in Pisces, and we're at the end of Pisces. That's why the Christians talk about the end times we're living in, the last days we're living in. The last days of what? The last days of Pisces. So now we have to find the perfect bull. The Temple Institute says that you need to find a red heifer that's born in Israel, and it has to be a particular bull. The Israeli government is planning a new temple coming in Israel. And of course, it will be assumed that they're going to go back to all of the old ways of the tourist to bowl. Well, so therefore they got this Jewish girl picking fleas off of a cow 
because they want to make sure the ball is going to be completely clean, look his best, smell good, so that they can cut his head off and bring about the dispensation of Taurus the bull again. But the same bull and Christian churches also, Christians are equally as ignorant and ill-informed about their foundations of their religion. Now you'll see this one shows in the yellow square the bull. They, the, the Catholic Church in the Vatican realizes that there was a time, 2,150 years long, when God was ruling the earth through Taurus the bull. And this is where we get our idea of holy cow. Let's look at another zodiac symbol in religious history. This is very important in relation to Jewish history. Aries the Ram is the next constellation after Taurus the Bull. The Jewish system of theology understood that 2,150 years has passed. Now we move into the next age that Moses brought us into. Because Moses brought us into a new dispensation. And when the Jewish people would not accept the idea at the time, we're told in the Bible that Moses became so frustrated he threw down and broke the law. So he was the first lawbreaker. The astrological time of Aries was from 2000 BC to 180. That's a 2150 year uh, period of time that the Jews were now to worship their God in the age of Aries, the ram. In Egypt, of course, they have the ram. You'll see the, uh, the, the sun in the age of Aries, the ram. The ram god is, is very famous all over Egypt. And Aries, the ram, is very important not only in Egypt, but in the Old Testament Hebrew. You'll still see it today, Aries, the ram. That's why Jews blow the ram's horn. Instead of parading around with the golden calf and the bull, now today they blow the ram's horn. And so they don't realize that not only the Jews blow the ram's horn, but there are many cultures around the world that blew the ram's horn during the age of Aries the ram. That's why today we have the shofar or the ram's horn. You go back to the Vatican and you will see the same painting uh, that was with Taurus the bull. Then you go back and see it's uh, Aries the ram. Uh, since A.D. 325, we have been living in the sight of the age of Pisces. Pisces, the two fish. Christianity is the focal point of what we call Pisces. Pisces represents religion, a different kind of religion. Before was Judaism. Now there's Christianity dominates the world. And so it has nothing to do with the Christians uh, fighting Jews or the Jews hating Christians. It has to do with the symbolism in which the world is living. And we happen to be living in the age of Pisces, the two fish. So Pisces is the age of a new religion. And if you remember that God's son, Jesus, S-U-N, fed his followers 
in the Bible with two fish. This was in John 19, the two fish that the, that the young boy who brought to Jesus five loaves of bread and two fish. It's a symbol of the age of Pisces, the time of Christianity to dominate the world. And then here it is again in the Vatican. You will see Pisces, the sign in the zodiac. Even in Cardinal's Cathedral, the stained glass windows in the great church even says Pisces. The fish of the early 3rd century appears to be the most ancient Christian inscription. And what do you see in the inscription but two fish? Pisces. Even in the Islamic religion today, uh, recognizes the zodiac symbols are from God. The Islamic world has many beautiful paintings of the 12 signs of the zodiac. So they understood that the zodiac is from God. And they have a very good understanding going back to their uh, ancient history of the symbols of the, of the zodiac. Then there is a discovery in the oldest Christian church, and this is really interesting. There was an old Christian church found, and it's called, it was referred to as the oldest single Christian church ever found in Israel. And it was a big story at the time it came out that in the area called Megiddo, Israel was going to build a wing onto an existing building. And so they had the people go out and clean off this area where they're going to build the new wing for the building. And they wanted to dig down to put the foundation. And when they dug down, they, they hit a floor. They hit a, a mosaic floor. And so they, they discovered when they started to clean the floor off, what did they find? Well, here they are when they cleaned off the area. And what do you see on the floor? But the two fish the two fish of Pisces. And you'll see the round circle of the sun, and the little spoke going around the circle is, of course, the sunburst. And in the middle of the sun is the two fish of Pisces. So Israel is saying this is the oldest church ever done and ever built. Well, there's Pisces, the beginning of Christianity. Christianity today is simply the sun in the age of Pisces. There are so many articles talking about the zodiac in relation to Jesus. They don't realize Jesus is the sun, a metaphor, S-U-N. And it's talking about his 12 apostles or his 12 followers or the 12 sons of the zodiac. Jesus with his 12 apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four seasons. And this is why there are three months in each season. Christianity today is replete but saying, that we are living in the last days. We're living in the end times. Of course we're living in the last days of Pisces, which means the next one coming is going to be the age of Aquarius. Aquarius is the water bearer. Very important point here that proves what we're talking about as astrology. We are now facing the next 2,150 years when the sun will officially be in the constellation of Aquarius, the water bearer. And so in the New Testament, 
in the book of Luke 22, the apostles are asking Jesus, now that you're going to die, where are we going to go? We are your 12 followers, but where are we going to go? And so Jesus answered them in, in the book of Luke 22:10, where Jesus said unto them, Behold, when you enter into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters in. It's the house of Aquarius. And it's Aquarius is the water bearer. But we know that this was talking about an astrological sign. Why? Because men never carried water ever. In the ancient world, that was something that a man would never do, is to carry water. That was a woman's job, period. So why did Jesus say, look for the man with the water pitcher? That's an astrological sign. The whole of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is a metaphor, as a symbolic story that the theologians have known for, for hundreds of years. But nobody is telling the public. That's why I think it's important to bring this out, that people need to know there's nothing wrong with the Zodiac. The Bible, both Old and New Testament, says God created it. So if you're calling down evil upon the Zodiac as a work of the devil, that's not what the scriptures say at all. And like the scripture says in the Bible, when God said to his people, do not call down evil upon something I have cleansed. When I make something, don't you call it evil. Well, this is what I'm saying that we need to keep in mind today. When you talk about astrology and the zodiac, God made that according to the scriptures. So we see the man with the water pitcher is all over the world in Christian churches. But the Christians don't know that. They don't understand what these symbols mean. The idea that most people have about the coming age of Aquarius is that it will be an age where there will be a lot more openness to society and people will be far easier to find information and have new ideas and new concepts. What we're talking about is trying to educate the people of this world to the fact that the zodiac dominates, as we showed in the beginning, dominates the earth and our heaven. And we need to know the ordinances of heaven. And the ordinances of heaven are basically the zodiac. It rules the heavens over the earth. I hope we've been able to open your eyes to some of the symbolic meanings that we find in life.
This is Secret Life of Symbols. If we go back to Genesis 1, the very first chapter in the Bible, Genesis 1, so many people today believe and have been told, and that's why they believe it, that God made us, God made man. And they will point to the scripture that says God created Adam and Eve. And then they will say, see, there it is, God made man. But that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say that God made man. In the beginning, the first chapter of Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that's not exactly what it says in the Hebrew. This is why we are emphasizing that it says God created the heavens and the earth. But in Hebrew, the word God is El, E-L. So if we were to read this first chapter, the first verse, uh, in Hebrew, it would say, in the beginning, El created the heavens and the earth. But that's not what it says in Hebrew. It says, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, not El. In the beginning of the heavens and the earth, which are now, I came across this many, many years ago, talking with a very impressive, uh, well-known rabbi. He was the one that put me onto this when I was very young, that uh, God did not create, he said, God did not create man. There's nowhere in the Old Testament, or what you call the Old Testament, where it says God created man. No, it just doesn't say that. And so I began to look at this, and he gave me all the, the ideas you know, a long time ago. So the first thing we need to look at is, as I said, the word is incorrect. God is El in Hebrew, but it's Elohim. And Elohim means the gods in the plural, more than one God. So the correct understanding of Genesis 1-1 is that in the beginning, the gods created the heavens and the earth. We need to define our terms first about God, and what does the word God mean in the Old Testament Hebrew? Uh, here it is uh, for you. This is God in the Hebrew. It's Elohim. Gods, more than one. So in uh, Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So it's more than one God. But here's the important part. we see it again. This is from another Bible translation where the word God shows up, and then it says in Hebrew, it's Elohim, which is plural, more than one. So God Elohim is plural. The word Elohim, on the top it says the word Elohim is a plural word. In Hebrew, the plural form of the noun ends in M-I-M-O-T. Elohim is a plural form. On the bottom it says, it is interesting to note that even though Elohim is plural, the Hebrew dictionary still translates it God instead of gods. This is what has confused people around the world, because the actual word in the Bible is gods. And this is why you will see in a lot of the reference works, they will make the distinction and show you this, the plural form of El. Now, when you go to the actual scriptures in a Hebrew Bible, in the Jewish Bible, it says Elohim, we. 
shall make man in our image and after our likeness. But it actually says in Hebrew, Elohim said, we, W-E, meaning more than one, we will make man. Remember the Moses with the Ten Commandments, uh, where Moses receives the law and the Ten Commandments from God. And what is the first commandment? The first commandment says, I am the Lord your God, who have brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage, and you shall have no other gods before me. He didn't say there are no other gods. He just said that you will have no other gods before me. The emphasis I was told many years ago was uh, Rabbi pointed out is that God is saying to the Hebrews uh, people with the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God. You picked me. So uh, as a group, what I'm saying is that picture of, say, 12 or 14 different gods, and each one is equal to the, uh, to every other one. But if you pick one and you make a deal with that one God, then you have a relationship with that God. And so this is why uh, God said to the Hebrews, I am the Lord your God, and I shall not have any other gods before me. So basically, it's like a young man telling his fiancée, you know, there are many other young men out there like me, but I'm supposed to, you know, I'm going steady with you, so I don't want to have any other young men in my place. So God was a jealous God, but I, you know, it's understandable that there were many other gods. So... Uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me. It didn't say there weren't any. Now, if you read from Exodus 20, verse 3, this is just some of the ways that it is expressed in different translations. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yes, have no other gods. Then in the uh, Hebrew, or the third one down is from the, uh, from the Hebrew Bible, and it says, Thou shalt have no other uh, no Elohim uh, in my presence. So uh, the ancient Hebrews realized that the word was uh, mentioning more than one God. But it's the Christianity today that has uh, caused that Elohim to be brought down to a singular term. And there's a lot of um, talk about this now. It's starting to come out that, that there's a lot of question about what does Elohim mean. Well, it just means more than one deity. Judaism is said to be a first monotheistic religion. Mono meaning one, theistic meaning uh, the study of God. But in point of fact, uh, Judaism is not a monotheistic uh, religion. It is, it's the correct term is heno, H-E-N-O, henotheology. Uh, henotheology means picking one God out of a group. And so if you pick, as I said, if you pick one God out of the group, then he is your God and you are his people. It doesn't mean that that's the only God in the whole universe. No, it's just your God. Deuteronomy 11.16 says, but be careful not to let yourselves be seduced so that you turn aside serving other gods and worshiping them. So the Jewish God, the God of the Jews, was telling them, yes, there are other gods, but don't, you know, but don't be worshiping them. 
First, you need to know that the people we call the ancient Hebrews were not Hebrews as such. They were, in fact, Phoenician or Canaanites. And this is where the you can trace back in the encyclopedias in the, in the dictionaries about ancient Cana and the ancient area we call today Israel and Lebanon, that whole area. They were called Canaanites. Here we have another article. This one was from a Jewish magazine that talks about it is the faith of the people of Judah and it's the developed faith of the Semitic people known as Hebrews or Israelites. It is recognized as the first religious tradition noted for its monotheism. Then it goes on to say the Hebrew tradition did not begin as monotheism. So then we find out that all the people of the Middle East were anything but monotheistic. They were, the so-called Hebrews, were in that time henotheistic, meaning picking one God out of many. Here at Liberty University, they had articles about henotheism toward the assessment of a divine plurality in, in the Hebrew Bible. I'm hoping to show you that this is understood in many Bible reference works, the word henotheism, and what it actually means. The God of Israel and ancient people's growing understanding from henotheism to monotheism. We see this happening with the human race for thousands of years. Things change. You, you know, one religion begins and has a, a particular understanding of God, and give it a thousand years, and that changes, and add another thousand years, and it changes again. Until today, we have a whole new understanding that there was only one God in the universe, and he created man, which in point of fact is not true. The one article in the middle that was read, it says, um, we have previously established that the mighty ones are the sons of God, the assembly of messengers, and that Yahweh was a part of these messengers. So this is another, uh, another thought being expressed, that Yahweh was one of the many gods. So again, it's important when you see here in the scriptures in the Hebrew, it says, Elohim said, we shall make uh, man in our image. Now, it's interesting, too, is that when Elohim, or the gods, said, come let us make man in our image after our likeness, uh, as I was told many years ago, this was a, mis a misunderstanding of the sentence. You should not read it that God said, come let us make man in our image out there our likeness, and then that would prove that God made man. No. It, the correct way to understand it is that the God says, come let us make man in our image out there our likeness. Not make man, but let's make him in our image out to our likeness. Well, that, of course, implies that we have been uh, tampered with, with our DNA. This is maybe a long time ago, but nonetheless, we were, we've been tampered with, and we still are today. We're still, even as humans, we're still tampering with our own DNA. If you go to the encyclopedias and reference works, you will see a lot of articles on Hebrew henotheism. I'm saying this is because it is a well-established fact that, that, that the ancient Hebrews were not a monotheistic religion. This is in the book of Psalms, 
82, where it says, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty, and he judgeth among the gods. So we see God in the, in the Hebrew tradition is one of the many gods, and he's in standing among all the other gods. Let's see how the other Bible versions say it. God takes his stand in the divine council, or Elohim God stands in the divine assembly, where there are other Elohim. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. So the point is that, that there is more than one God, and that the Hebrew God was just one of them. That's in the Old Testament. But even the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says basically the same thing. In 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, For though there may be called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be gods many and lords many. Then in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, it says, For although there may be so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, and there are many of them. So let's go on and move on from there. We're going back to Genesis 1.26, and this is where we, we see the scripture talks about when God is creating man, or recreating man. And so it says, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And so there's a big difference between God making man or remaking him in their image and likeness. And what does that mean? Let's see how other Bibles put it. The Good News Bible says, Then God said, And now we shall make human beings, and they will be like us, and they will resemble us. Here in the New Living Translation of the Bible, it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Common English Bible says, and God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us. This is a far better understanding of the scripture to start with. Here's the complete Jewish Bible that says, then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in the likeness of ourselves. So it begins to open up a whole new understanding about why we appear on earth as we do, it begins to look like that we are looking today like our creator. The creators who created us are mess with our DNA and caused us to begin more and more to look like them. So that opens up a whole new can of, uh, of worms also to show that there's more than one God. And so we look like the gods that created us. The reason I'm showing so many scriptures, I want you to understand, all Bibles are saying basically the same thing, that we look like the creators that created us, the Elohim, more than one. And in Genesis 3.22, and it said, The Lord God said, Behold, man has become one of us. Now he's become like us. He looks like us. He's acting like us. And he is very destructive like us, having wars like us. So the Holy Bible basically says, now let us make man like us. God did not make man as you will see. The word in Hebrew for man is ish. I-S-H in Hebrew is man. 
But the Bible says God made Adam, A-D-M, not Ish. But if you go back to the Hebrew Bible and read it, it says in this Hebrew Bible preface, it says, according to this, the Hebrew word for woman is Isha, comes from the Hebrew word for man, Ish. Here's another uh, reference word that said, interesting, the words for man and woman in Hebrew is identical. Man in Hebrew is pronounced Ish and looks like this. But the Bible does not say God created Ish. It says God created A-D-L, and then this is important too. It doesn't say that God created Adam. The letter was A-D-L. We, uh, we humans added, the, make it the, to be uh, Adam, but it's not Adam, it's A-D-L. Here we have the Hebrew translation going back to Hebrew. It says we, again, we shall make Adam, A-D-M, which means a different kind of creature, Adam, A-D-M, not Adam. And he will, and we will make him in the image of us, A-D-M. Like so many other humans do, even A-D-M, Adam made human or male offspring. Look how the Bible describes it. In Genesis 5 of, of uh, Genesis 5th chapter, it says, and Adam lived 130 years, and he begat a son in his own likeness. After the image, and called his son Seth. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own image and likeness. So we are seeing that the man is now doing what the gods did also for us. They created us to look like them. And we now have the ability to create uh, other offspring, and we have a son who looks like us. There are many examples in the Bible that show that the gods look like us. No, we look like them. They look what they look like to start with, but we were made to look like them. As an example, a classic example is found in the story of Abraham's meeting three visitors that came to visit him. This is in Genesis 18 and 19. We're told that Abraham and Sarah were in their tent and that three men come walking up to the tent, three visitors. And when Abraham saw the three men, he went out and bowed down to them and said, what is my Lord saying to his servant? So we're told that Abraham knew this was the Lord, God. But he looked like another man. Well, that's what the scripture says. God said we will make men to look like us in our image. In chapter 18 in Genesis, it said, The Lord appeared unto him, this was Abraham, in the plains of memory, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And when Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, lo, there were three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran out to meet them at the front temple door and bowed himself to the ground before these three men. And here he is bowing before the three men that Abraham obviously knew was God, coming with uh, two of his assistant angels. And so it says that uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham. And then in Genesis 18:2 it says, And he lifted up his eyes and looked at the three men, uh, was there, and so we're told that Abraham then 
asked the three men to stay for something to eat, to have lunch with him, and then they could go on. And the Lord said, no, he was, they were on their way to take care of some business, and they didn't have time. And the scripture says that, uh, that Abraham went out and insisted that they stay for just a short time to have lunch. And God then said to Abraham, all right, then do that, but make it quick, because we're in a hurry. And so the scripture goes on to say that Abraham's wife, Sarah, fixed uh, a lunch for the three men. And now we are told that Abraham went out and sat under the tree with the three men as they had lunch. Now, after eating, two of the three men got up to be on their way, while the third man stayed a bit longer to talk with Abraham. So now we got a guy sitting under the tree talking with Abraham. They just had lunch. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. So we're told that the men that left, they were on their way to somewhere, so Abraham quickly got up and escorted them a short distance on their way. Well, they were on their way to Sodom. And it says, and then in Genesis 19, the next chapter, the two men that were having lunch with Abraham, and then they got up and walked towards Sodom, that's in chapter 18. But in chapter 19, it goes on to say, And there came two angels to Sodom and at evening time. And Lot sat at the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing these two angels, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself uh, with his face to the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, and I pray you to come and, and be in my home if you're going to be here. And the men said, again, we're interchanging angels and men. And so the men said to Lot, no, uh, we, won't, we won't stay at your home. We will just stay in the city and we'll be all right. But it keeps interchanging men with angels. Okay. So the point in this, according to the Bible, the word for God is Elohim and means the gods, plural, more than one. And they make us to look in their image and their likeness. We look like them. So that's why your male offspring looks human like you. So here's Abraham meeting the three men with Sarah, uh, offering them to stay for lunch. Then we see this is a, a portrayed in many paintings in the Bible of the three men, which are actually three angels. It implies also that the third man, was actually the Almighty God because it's capitalized in the Bible. So this is the Almighty God who looks like a man and stays and has, has lunch with uh, Abraham. So this is why the Christian New Testament has the Apostle Paul saying in the Bible, he says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Meaning that if you see someone, another man, be careful because it might not be, in fact, another man. It may be an angel who you look like. But he looks like what he looks like to start with, and you were made into looking his image. You were made to look like him. So just be careful when you're talking to other people. Show respect because you never know who you're talking to. Here again in, in the book of Hebrews, Chapter 2, 
talking. This is uh, our Apostle Paul again. Uh, it says, remember to welcome strangers in your homes. There were some who did that and welcomed angels without knowing it. Very interesting that was beginning to see God didn't make a man. God remade man. He began to change, and this is why the scripture says it that way. Come, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So today, what I'm saying is that we look like the gods who created us. And so this is why Abraham can go out and feed you feed the three men, and then you find out, no, those are the angels that went into Sodom. All of this is actually very important in understanding theology and religion from the Bible's standpoint. This is something that most people have never heard before, that we look like the gods who created us, gods more than one. So when we go back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens. No, it wasn't God. It was plural, Elohim. And Elohim, plural, gods, comes, we give the term henotheistic, meaning more than one God. And it's also interesting to understand that in Islam, in the Quran, everywhere God is talking to man, it's we. You look it up in the Quran, you will see everywhere that God is talking to his people, he keeps saying, we, we did this, we are going to do that, we had you do this, we, we created you. And it actually says that in the Quran, we created you. So indeed, there are many different gods. God is gods, and the gods made ADM, not Ish, which means they, have ta- they saw Ish, and then they took Ish and remade him into Adam, and we call it Adam. No, the gods came here, they saw this man, and therefore the man must have been like a Neanderthal man or some uh, some ancient creature, hominid, and the gods said, let us make him look like us. Let, him, let us make him in our image. So that's what I'm saying. God did not create man because man is Ish. It doesn't say he made Ish. Ish was already here. So the three visitors to Abraham were three men, but Abraham realized they were gods. They, they were the creators. And uh, the gods were always pictured as either men with uh, angel wings or not. After the flood of Noah's day, chapter 9 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. When I talked to the rabbi many years ago, I said, Is this a correct translation that says, uh, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth? Re means to do it again. And he said, Well, obviously, if there were people here on the earth, and God decided to destroy that civilization of that time, and now there's nobody on the earth except uh, Noah and his sons and their wives. If you're going to have people on the earth, you're going to have to replenish the earth, obviously. So I said, it's all right. So therefore, replenish is correct. Yes, yes. And the reason why I'm asking that is because re means more, do again. Well, if you go back to, here is again in the, in the Bible, in the Jewish Bible, talking about Elohim. 
and Elohim said, replenish. Okay, this is important because if you go to Genesis 1, where God is, uh, is creating Adam and his wife, it says, this is in Genesis 1, and 28, it says, God created man in his own image, after the image of God created he, male and female created them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. So it's not to be understood. We're not to understand that God created man as the very first creature. No, when he created, when these gods created us, they said to replenish the earth, implying that, that some terrible catastrophe had happened on the earth and that so much of life was lost. And so now the gods who created us say, go out now and redo it again. So how many people in the world have ever thought about Adam and Eve were not the first creatures on the earth? There have been civilizations here for millions of years. Genesis 1-2 says, And the earth was without form and void. That is an incorrect translation. It doesn't say that. Here it is again. Genesis 1-2, And the earth was without form and void. The English words in Genesis 1-2, Without form and void, is mistranslation of the original Hebrew word tohu vavohu. The word tohu vavohu means not without form and void. If you go back to the uh, original Hebrew, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then in Genesis 1-2 says, and the earth became a waste and a desolation. The earth became a waste and a desolation. It wasn't created without form and void. Obviously, if God's going to create something, it's got to have a form, and it's not going to be void, whatever that's supposed to mean. So, therefore, the correct understanding is, Genesis 1-2, the earth became a waste and a desolation. What are you talking about, the earth became a waste and a desolation? We find that in, in the Bible, uh, again, it keeps telling us, all of these translations keep telling us that it's actually became. It wasn't a form without, without form and void. It was formed the way God formed it, but it became a waste and a desolation. And here's another uh, translation of the scriptures where it actually says the earth became a waste. Now, when you understand that the earth religions, world government, world finance, even in the Islamic world, they still have the same symbol as we do. Basically, it means the two mountains will go, go back to the ancient Egyptian with the two statues, and that opens, that uh, welcomes the sun each morning, and there were two large statues, and when the sun came up in front of them. The rising sun of the morning is called the dawn. So when spirituality and intellectual enlightenment comes into your heart and your mind, we say things like, oh, it just dawned on me, <laughs> what you were saying. Oh, it just dawned on me. Dawn implies the sun has finally uh, you know, brought light into your life, and you see now something you didn't see before. If you can go back to uh, Christian New Dawn and, and do some research on that, 
you will see that Easter is referred to as a new dawn when the sun is rising again. Even in the Kabbalah, there's an article about the Kabbalah, talks about the fragrance of Eden, where the one who is caught between the suns of a dying and a dawning day, watch the way these term new dawn and dawn of a new day keeps playing itself into all the political rhetoric going on all the political speeches and politicians are using this term bush uh, sees a bright dawn emerging uh, brown calls for a new world order uh, here the american catholic uh, weekly magazine calls it a new world coming a congressional record, the proceedings of, and debates here. of the 76th Congress. And here it basically says, let me call your attention to the fact that on the reverse of the great seal of the United States, which appears on our dollar bills, you will find the exact symbol of the British Israel World Federation movement. This symbol is also carried on literature of other organizations promoting a world government and a world religion. And at the bottom of the circle surrounding the pyramid, you will find the wording, Novas Ordo Seclorum, which is the new order that was uh, uh, advocated by Clinton Roosevelt several hundred years ago, and recently by the book Philip Drew, and is now being followed in this government, the United States by the executive. The book is called Philip Drew, uh, that really explains what is all of this symbolism means. It was written by a Colonel Edward Mendel House, and he was a very close confidant of President Woodrow Wilson. Edward Mendel House wrote a book about his ideas about world government, and here is the President, uh, President Woodrow Wilson. And on the left-hand side, you will see Woodrow Wilson's friend, Colonel Edward Mandel House, who incidentally happened to be a member of the Illuminati. And here is Colonel Mandel House. Here he is with his wife in England. Here in the table of contents, you will see one of the it's chapters as a prophet of a new day. Another chapter was the, the exalted conspirators, the administration of the rich. republic, talking Selling about a new administration Thor, here in America for the republic. Uh, Drew outlines his intentions, a new era in Washington. Of the republic, and another chapter was called an international crisis. Another one was the reform of the judiciary, a new code of laws for America. We can see that there's already a long time ago, at the time of the First World War, there was already a conspiratorial apparatus coming out of England to set a whole new agenda for America. And in the book, The Masonic Orders of Fraternity, written by Manly Palmer Hall, he's talking about the Illuminati and the secret societies, and he said, these were the men of towardness, those sons of tomorrow, whose symbol was a blazing sun rising over the mountains of the east. While it is difficult to trace the elements of a pattern never intended to be obvious to start with, (laughs) the broad shape of a design is dimly apparent, an invisible empire taking over the world. Oh my God. An invisible empire which was not supposed to be uh, understood to start with. 
But if you really study it, you begin to see that there is a conspiratorial apparatus to guide the destiny of America. And they were the men of towardness. Here we have the men of towardness, building a new world. George Bush and the communist leader. Here we have a new order of the nation. This was uh, published by the United States military. Here's another book called America and the New Order back in 1949. Here's New York, and then New York is referred to as the Empire State, which is the new British Empire or the new actually Roman Empire. And so the new empire is here in New York. So New York is the center for incredible treason and all kinds of secret societies and mm. money and all kinds of political machinations are going on in New York against the American Republic. <coughs> We begin to see that all of this is connected behind the scenes by secret societies that want to be the uh, the directors of our Change destiny Empire State as a building country, to the as a people. American we need to look at a book by a man named James Republican Billing. Building. He wrote a book called <laughs> Fire in the Minds of Men. <laughs> James Billington is probably one of the finest historians America has ever been able to produce. James Billington today is the chief librarian for the Library of Congress. He is considered to be a master historian around. He's, he's taught history in England and America throughout the world. He's an incredible writer, fascinating uh, his views on the ancient history and the history of the world today. He wrote a book called Fire in the Minds of Men, The Origins of the Revolutionary Faith. And in it, he explains all of the machinations going on in the minds of the guys who are putting this conspiracy together to overthrow the United States. In the introduction, he explains something very important. This is the introduction, one of the introduction pages, where James Billington says, quote, a recent mythic model for revolutionaries, early romantics, and young Karl Marx, and the Russians of Lenin's time was Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods for the use of mankind. <laughs> the this. Promethean faith of revolutionaries resembles in many respects the general modern belief that science would lead men out of darkness into light. But there was also a more pointed millennial assumption that on the new day, that was dawning, the sun would never set. Early during the French upheaval or the French Revolution was born the idea of a solar myth of revolution, suggesting that the sun was rising right, on a, a new era for the world in which darkness would be vanished forever. The image was implanted at a level of... Dawn of a new day. Okay, I need to take a picture of these cute little pictures. You will find the exact... Hey there, welcome back. Um, I see that my Matrix and, and uh, Decoded, Hollywood Decoded and Titanic and Avatar podcast already has five views. That's cool. Um, 
so uh, I just saw a really good little clip by Jordan Maxwell on freedom versus liberty. Pull liberty. You don't have freedom. America's actual okay. liberty. Actually ring up as third. America's not the land of the free and the home of the brave. We're not free or brave. We're ill-informed, entertained, We're not free and or totally brave. ignorant to the powers that be on this earth and how it works. Let me give you an example of how the law of water works. When you go into a court, why do you have to go to court? As I said, you play tennis and basketball on a court. The whole idea of a court is to put the ball back in the other guy's court. So consequently, this team stands up and throws the ball at that team, and that team stands up and throws the ball back to the other and the judge sits here, and that's what he is, a judge. He's the referee. He doesn't care who wins or loses. Somebody's going to pay. And he's going to get paid, so he doesn't care who wins or loses. He's only there to make sure that the game is played correctly. It's called commerce, because the whole world is commerce. Look up the word commerce in a law dictionary. It'll tell you sexual intercourse. Marriage is a partner. Partner is a term that's used in business. If you're business with your partner doesn't work out, you're not going to God, you're going to the law of money, it's called the law of water. This is why, incidentally, the Statue of Liberty could not be put on American land, it was put in the harbor, because the Statue of Liberty is a maritime amplity symbol. It's called the Statue of Liberty, not the Statue of Freedom. There's a world of difference between freedom and liberty. Liberty means you ask your father if you can use the car. If he says no, you don't use it. Liberty is what a sailor gets when he pulls into harbor. He asks the captain if he can leave. If the captain says yes, and he most likely is not going to, but if he says yes, that means you have the liberty. You pull liberty. You don't have freedom. America is not the land of the free and the home of the brave. We're not free or brave. We're ill-informed, entertained, and totally ignorant to the powers that be on this earth and how it works. Let me give you an example of how the law of water works. When you go into a court, why do you have to go to court? As I said, you play tennis and basketball on a court. The whole idea in a court is to put the ball back in the other guy's court. So consequently, this team stands up and throws the ball at that team, and that team stands up and throws the ball back over there. And the judge sits here, and that's what he is, a judge. He's the referee. He doesn't care who wins or loses. Somebody's going to pay. And he's going to get paid, so he doesn't care who wins or loses. He's only there to make sure that the game is played correctly. It's called commerce, because the whole world is commerce. Look up the word commerce in a law dictionary. It'll tell you sexual intercourse. Marriage is a partner. Partner is a term that's used in business. If you're business with your partner doesn't work out, you're not going to God, you're going to the law of money, it's called the law of water. This is why, incidentally, the Statue of Liberty could not be put on American land, it was put in a harbor, because the Statue of Liberty is okay, a maritime so, apple. So now we're going to go uh, to Gaia and see what they have on Jordan Maxwell. They have some pretty good stuff. Thanks for 326k. There was a little spike when the law enforcement had to, well, got a Super Bowl break. They got a little Super Bowl break, so it's my podcast spiked. So I'm glad to teach the pigs something. You know, it's good, good for the pigs to learn something from time to time. Let's see, Secret Life Symbols. Oh, here we go. That's a, This sounds great. The Life and Trials of Jordan Maxwell. Dawn of a New Day, Creating Man in Our Image. Incorporating America. Secret Legacy of Moses. Hmm, that sounds good, too. World of the Occult. Hmm. Saturn and Secret Societies. Ooh, Solomon's Ar Temple in the Ark. That sounds, sounds like we need to do a Jordan Maxwell binge fest. 
Some great stuff. Shout out to KAMP Student Radio with the University and Everstone and Kippy Wanty, Pesquayaki, Travel Radio, Travel Radio on the Res with Trista Show. Tribal Radio with George Norrie. Welcome to Beyond Belief. I'm George Norrie. What we're going to talk with you about tonight could scare you because <laughs> you're going to hear about things that you may not have heard Life about and of ever before. <laughs> but there's hope. There's a way out. There's a light. My special guest is a preeminent scholar and researcher. His name is Jordan Maxwell. Jordan, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, George, for being with me. What if he's still alive? Allow me to be here with you. Jordan, give us an example of what you call hidden knowledge. The word human being means, in law, a monster. A monster? In the law dictionary, it says a human being is a monster. And you look up a monster, and a monster is, is an entity that similar to a man, but does not have the same standing Characteristics in law. It doesn't have the same standing in law as, as a man. Monster? There's what a difference the between a man and a human being. I'd rather be called a man then, right? Yeah, that's right. Because hmm. as a man, you are the ultimate authority on the earth. Because when you were born, only God had a, a deal with you, you know, and so, uh, but then later on, government comes in, religion comes in, commerce comes in, and before you know it, you know, every every agency in the world got control well, of the government. How does this hidden knowledge work? What are they trying to do? Well, let me give you an example in commerce. For instance, did you know that in commerce, you do not, in America, pay a bill? You cannot pay a bill. You can discharge a debt, but you cannot pay a bill. And so we say we have to pay this bill or that bill. Right. No, you it's don't pay a bill. a bill. You discharge a debt. How? For instance, if you were a but painter. I give you a bill to pay off this debt. Well, suppose you were a building contractor, and I call you to paint my bedroom. And you come over and give me a price, say, of $100 to paint the bedroom. Now, that's, we're talking commerce now. We're just talking business, right. all right? When you're through with the, uh, the painting job, you come to me, and what do you do? You give me a bill, yeah. and the bill is for $100, right? So I reach in my pocket, and I pull out $100, and I give it to you, and I paid you. No, I did not pay you. I did not pay you anything. You gave me a bill for $100. I gave you a $100 bill. If you give me a bill for $20, I'll give you a $20 bill. Get it? All right. I'm discharging a debt. I'm giving you back your debt. You charging me $100? No, I'll charge you $100. I'm giving you a $100 bill. You owe me $100. Now, let's look at hidden knowledge for a second and how that relates to all of this. Who planted it there? Oh, brilliant minds. Brilliant minds a long time ago. The, the system that we live under, under government, our system in America is directly under Rome. It's a Roman government. Still. Still, absolutely. And so in the, old, in the history books, we say things, you'll read things like uh, Caesar, when he would officiate over his government, he would go, quote, up on the hill. And it was called Capitoline Hill or Capitol Hill. And he would officiate over his senate up on the hill. 
And that's what all the sounds reference like Washington, was doesn't and it? So, sounds like Washington, D.C. Yeah, but, but is that know. hidden, or is that right out there for everybody to see? Yeah, of course it is, but nobody ever thought about it. <laughs> that's what the history book says. Caesar went up on the hill. But I don't see anything sinister about that, do you? <laughs> it's just the government. It is based on Rome, and it's founded. And now you begin to understand the importance of, of the Vatican in relation to America. And America being the new Rome. Hmm. And when when Caesar was ruling during the Roman Empire, when he went into Britannia, or what we call the UK today, right. his, uh, his base of operation was called York, England. That was the basis for Rome's power in, in the UK. Sounds like the movie The Gladiator. Precisely. And today, uh, in our country, which is Rome, <clears throat> we have, now have... The basis for power is New York, like York, England. Mm -hmm. And so our New York is the Empire State. Empire? What empire? And so you begin to see there's a lot of hidden words and terms that we consider to be just normal terms that you use on the street. No, you need to understand when you go into a court, you better know what you're talking about. You better use the right language, and if you don't know it, get on an attorney who knows it. We've got a lot of celestial objects that are tied into religion as well. How yeah. about? Well, especially Saturn. Saturn is very, very important to world religions. Is All it? world Why? religions. It's very important uh, because Saturn was the inhibitor, and he was referred to as the Lord of the Rings. Well, of course, Saturn is Lord of, Lord the, Rings. of the Rings. Right. They're still making movies in Hollywood about Lord of the Rings. And so today, uh, you know, uh, did, did the celestial objects lead religion into the direction that it's gone into? Or well, vice versa? I, I think that somebody, somebody led us into this. And I believe, it's my personal opinion, that we have extraterrestrial or other world, uh, other world knowledge that's been given to us. Overlords. Nikola, Nikola Tesla said that. He said that all of his uh, uh, inventions, uh, he would leave a, 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 a pad and pencil on his, by his bed at night, and the next morning would be a, an invention. Right. And so somebody was leading him. Well, somebody is leading us and telling us about the gods and the planets and who they are and what they do, and we call it astrology. No, no, where are we getting this information from? Somebody is guiding our destiny, and we don't know who it is, but we're just following. We just, as people do, they just follow. We're sheep. We're sheep. And somebody is guiding our destiny because we don't understand. Do you we don't know who do that, our homework. Do you know who that somebody might be? Well, uh, the, the scriptures talk about, I have a video <laughs> called Cosmocraterus or Cosmocrat. <laughs> and it's dealing with this very subject of who these entities are who are leading the destiny of the whole world. The mm -hmm. Illuminati? The Illuminati, so to speak. Angels, are they symbolic? Cosmocrat. No, I think angels, angels simply means messenger of God. The L in Hebrew is God. And so angel is a messenger of L or a messenger of God. What God? Who's got? You know, now you open up a can another of worms. Yeah. Can. Eric Von Donneken talked about angels. Exactly. We speakers like angels. An angel, in our normal, normal knowledge, is a being, a messenger coming from God, down from the sky. 
we represent angels with, the, with wings, with halos around their head. But these angels were not fine guys. These angels had sex hmm. with some humans. These angels were no spirits. These angels had war among each other, described in other texts. So we must change the word angel into the word extraterrestrial. <laughs> and an archangel is one of the leaders of one of the group of the extraterrestrials. We must change only about 10 words in the old so-called holy writings and we change the complete meaning. And exactly this takes now place in our time. Are they extraterrestrial, George? Yes, they have to be. You ask any child, do you believe in God? Yes, where is God? He's out there. Up there. Well, if he's out there, it means he's not from, from Ohio. He's, he's out there. That's extraterrestrial. And then you believe in angels. Yes. Well, where are they? They're out there with God. Where are we headed as humans? Well, first of all, we have no understanding at all about religion and theology. You hear it talk about Lucifer. Everybody thinks uh -huh. Lucifer is the devil. Well, actually, in the book of Revelation 22.16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, I am Lucifer. I didn't say that. He said that. It's in the Bible. i got to look for that. Yeah, it's in Revelation 22. It's the last, last uh, chapter in the last book of the Bible. Is there hope for mankind, George? In your opinion? Well, it's going to, it, 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 you see, there's only going to be a small people who are awakening, who want to know. Most people don't want to know. They're having too much fun just being human, going to parties and kicking footballs and <laughs> having fun with whatever they're doing and running sure. after material possessions. And nobody wants to know until it's time to leave this world. And when you finally are ready to leave this world, now you're thinking about where am I going? Well, now it's a lousy time to start thinking about that. You should have thought about that a long time ago and figure out who you are, where you come from, and now where are you going? And why were you even here to start with? So how do we create a better world for people? I think... I think, first of all, it's going to require the whole human family, which is, sounds impossible. The whole human family is going to have to take another look at what is called humility. You're going to have to be humble enough to admit you don't know everything. Maybe you should understand religion, understand government, where the courts come from, where, who, why do we have police, why do we have the world we have today? It's because we don't understand where things come from. Then why do you have police? Or why do you have to go to court? You play basketball on a court. You play tennis on a court. How do you play tennis on a court? You play with a racket. Come on. Once you understand words and terms, you begin to see how the system that we live under is set up. And it's been set up a long time before your grandmother was ever born. And you born. may not like the way it's set up. That's too bad. You came in the last five minutes of the movie, and you don't know what the whole story of the, of the movie is all about. And so you need to sit through the next show and see how it came about and how you come to understand and believe what you do. Can we make it better? Can yes, we, we can this? make it better. If, we were, if we're humble enough to... Uh, this is very important. We can make it better if we're humble enough to agree we don't know everything, and that our religion isn't the most important religion on the earth. God is too big for one religion. And 
when you understand that when you talk about God, like my one professor said, you need to define the terms. What are you talking about? Because when you use the word God, that may not be what I'm thinking about God. And so we need to be humble enough to understand you don't know everything. You need to start researching and reading and studying and go back if you care to do that. Unfortunately, most people don't care to know that. They don't. And so I feel I have said so many times to change mankind ultimately is like trying to empty the Pacific with a cup. Because there's only a handful of people who really care and want to know. But the masses of, of, of the earth, they don't know anything about it and couldn't care less. As long as they're eating and watching television, and they're happy, they're happy. As long as their belly is full. You have stepped on toes because I remember when you were on Coast to Coast with me years ago. Right. The phone went blank. You were gone. Yet you could still hear people on the other end That's right. talking about maybe you'll get the message now. It's like they clipped your line. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I was scared to death because I, I didn't know what was happening, and I, but I didn't hang up. I wanted to wait and see what happened. And then I could hear some people walking around in an office, and it was obviously a very small office because I could hear the reverberation yeah. of them walking around talking. Well, to set the scene, Jordan, for what we're talking about today, 2004 came with the movie National Treasure about government secrecies. What was the secret? A treasure. A treasure beyond all imagining. A treasure that had been thought over for centuries by tyrants, pharaohs, emperors, warlords. Every time it changed hands, it grew larger. And then suddenly, it vanished. It didn't reappear for more than a thousand years, when knights from the First Crusade discovered secret vaults beneath the Temple of Solomon. You see, the knights who found the vaults believed that the treasure was too great for any one man. Not even the king. They brought the treasure back to Europe and took the name the Knights Templars. Yeah, where'd they the put it? Century, they 2004. It they formed a new brotherhood called the Freemasons in honor of the builders of the Great Temple. The war followed. By the time of the American Revolution, the treasure had been hidden again. By then, the Masons included George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Paul Revere. Never care, Ben. The Freemasons among our founding fathers left us clues like these. The unfinished pyramid, the all-seeing eye, symbols of the Knights Templar, guardians of the treasure. They're speaking to us. What does that mean, that... <laughs> half-built pyramid in that all-seeing eye. The all-seeing eye represents the Messiah in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it represents Jesus, the Messiah. Mm -hmm. In point of fact, the, the, the triangle on top of a pyramid uh, with the eye is a symbol for the Messiah. So in, the, in the movie, uh, National Treasure, the family was called Carroll, C-A-R-R-O-L-L, -L, mm -hmm. the Carroll family. 
when I was growing up, my mother used to tell me all the time, she would say, remember, you're from the Carroll family. That's your family. You're, we was, she would say, my family. On her was, side? On her side. She said, my, my family is the Carroll family, and you remember that. Don't you ever forget that you're the, of the Carroll family and of the Washington, D.C. Carroll. Huh. And so she said that to me so many times, and of course, as a kid, that means nothing to me. But it was not until just a few years ago when I was reading the book called Rulers of Evil by Tupper Saucy, in which he was talking You're about the founding yeah. of the United States, and that the only Catholic in this, I was born and raised Catholic, and, and in the book, uh, Tupper Saucy says the only Catholic signing the Declaration of Independence was a Carroll of the Carroll family Whoa, in Washington. You related to them. That was my mother's family, the Carrolls, and he actually signed on the Declaration of Independence, and that was my mother's family. Why do you think, Jordan, so much seems to be locked into codes and mysteries? I think that that's the way, well, the Scripture says in the Old Testament, something to the effect that uh, it is the work of God to hide in mysteries, and it is the glory of a king to find him out. And so the idea is, is that God does not make things easy. So, so you're not just going to sit down and have a quick drink and read the Bible and know all about it. No, no. These are all hidden. All hidden. And the word for hidden is occult. O-C-C-U-L-T. Occult. Occult is not evil. It does not imply bad or devil or anything or like paranormal. that. Paranormal. No, it just means hidden. So if you put your hand in your pocket, dictionary definitions, your hands are caught because it's hidden. And so therefore, the powers that be in this world do not figure that this is the kind of knowledge, a hidden knowledge is something you need to know about. You just do what you do and don't worry about running the world. They will run the world for you. I have, in the years I've interviewed you, picked up some kind of concern or fear that you have. I just relayed the story about what happened when you were on the show and your phone right. line got clipped. Why? What are, you, what are you concerned about? I am being watched, and I've been told that, by, by military people, by government people. I could tell you stories you would not believe about people that I know in, in government that are very high up, and I do mean very, very high up, who tell me, we're watching you. You need to watch what you say in public. And I've been told that the, the, the one time that you and I were on the stage together, and I was late getting there. Yes, you, I remember right? that. And then when I got there, there was a, a, uh, was a government agent came in, the back, uh, came in the back, and I was sitting there with you, and I saw him come in, and I just knew he was government. He just looked it. <laughs> and then uh, as we were finishing, just before we were, we were through, he walked up to the front and stood in the corner. Waiting. Waiting. And I knew, because I'm coming off the, the stage this way, and we were looking at him. And so when I came off, walked off the stage, I looked at him, and he said, you? Yeah, come here. <laughs> and I knew. Well, there it is. I knew. Did you go <laughs> talk to him? Uh, yeah, I did. And uh, What did he want? Thing. Uh, it, it was a very, very interesting conversation, but he didn't say anything to me at first. Nothing. He said nothing. He reached in his uh, uh, coat and pulls out a long, oblong uh, wallet, uh, heavy, heavy 
wallet and hands it to me. I opened it up and there's two very impressive looking badges. I mean, very legitimate right. badges. And then two IDs. And uh, this is the real deal. He's the real deal. And I looked at it for a few moments. I studied it because I've never been this close to the real stuff. And so I looked at those badges and the ID and then I closed it up and I handed it back to him. I said, okay, so talk to me. And he said, well, government sends me around to the big conferences to see how much the people don't know. Don't know. That's right. But he knows you know. And he said, I was told to talk and come and see you, listen to what you say in public. And uh, then he began telling me some things which uh, I'm not at liberty to talk about right now. But uh, he began telling me some really strange stuff. Do they want to shut you up, Jordan? I, I don't think they want to shut me up. Because he said to me, your government is not going to be your enemy. We, we know who you are. You believe that? Uh, I think so. And he said, your government is not going to be the one to harm you. Uh, there are others who are looking to, but there won't be us. It won't be government. And he said, because we appreciate what you're trying to do. You're just a teacher and trying to educate people. And so we, we understand that. We don't see you as a threat. But uh, others do. And so you need to be careful what you say in public because you're being watched and you're being followed. And we know that. Let's talk about that subject that is dear to a lot of people but also controversial, that of religion. Yeah. You believe that there are hidden meanings within Change religion. Subjects. Oh, yes. Tell me about that. Well, for instance, as a Catholic, I was taught as a child, like all Catholics, is that if you are evil and you and you die and you will... Uh, uh, you know, a sinner and you died, that you will go to hell where your soul will burn forever. Yes, scaring well, the living daylights out of love. <laughs> I was raised a Catholic too. So one day, I was at nine years old, I'm in Catholic school at nine years old, and the nuns told us, now tomorrow night at, at the church service, it's, it's, uh, it's what we call the confirmation. And, he said, and she said, now tomorrow night at confirmation service, the bishop will be here, and after the confirmation service is over, uh, the, the bishop might possibly, maybe not, but he might possibly ask if you children have any questions, and uh, he'd like to answer them for you. And so remember, if he says that, if he's asking you, you do not have any questions. You keep <laughs> your mouth shut. You have no questions. So that, Which is next, not easy for you. No, I came in looking for trouble. Yep. And so, uh, and so that night after the service was over, the bishop did uh, say to the children, if you have any questions, I'll try and answer them. And everyone knew you're not going to have any questions. So I stood up. <laughs> I stood up to make sure they know who I am. Yeah. And I said, yes, bishop, I have a question. And I said, my father worked with torches, uh, like a welder. And uh -huh. I said, well, if I had a torch and it was on fire and an angel appeared to me, <laughs> Could I hurt him if I burned the angel with the torch? And he says, no. And I said, why not? And he said, well, something to the effect that, well, fire is a natural thing. You have to have paper or wood or plastic or something to burn. You can't burn an angel. <laughs> yeah. And I said, why not? And he said, well, first of all, you can't even see an angel. There's nothing to burn. It's a spirit. And <laughs> you can't burn a spirit. And I said, well, then why am I concerned about going to hell when my spirit will burn forever if you can't burn a spirit? Ah. Well, you and set so, him up. Yeah. 
and, and there was an old Irish priest standing very close, and he, he said to me, "You, yeah, sit down and shut up." And, and I, I noticed in the uh, around the church, everyone looked at me like a deer in the headlight. Nobody had ever thought about that. Exactly. It's so simple. It is. And so I, at that point, I began to suspect. Fucking the adults angels, around me angel. are playing the game. They're just mouthing and uh, you know, regurgitating. Some and don't know any better. Some they don't know any better, and they're, they're just telling you what their grandmother said, or what the priest said, or what the rabbi said. Yeah, they don't know. They just trusted what they said. Regurgitate. There's, there's a lot of symbolism, Jordan, in the art in religion. Oh, very absolutely. Only someone who rubbed shoulders with the poorest people in Rome could produce painting like this. Christ grabs doubting Thomas's wrist, guiding his finger deep into his wound, burying it in his body until Thomas believes. Caravaggio says, you don't just look at my pictures. You don't just stare, you feel them. Okay, we say. Okay, we feel it, we believe, we believe. He doesn't do it just for effect. It's because no one else painting in Rome takes the message of Christianity more seriously than this sinner. Christ says the wretched of the earth can be saved, and they are what Caravaggio gives us. The gospel is happening right here, right now. When people come into church and see them, they are thunderstruck. Their lives change, their eyes open, their hearts pound. In the presence of sacred dramas, so vivid, so physical, they think they can stretch out and touch them. The most hardened sinner, the worst sneerer, believes. <laughs> This was the painter the church had been waiting for. Here's St. Paul flat on his back, his eyeballs scorched yellow by the blinding light of revelation. Next to him, St. Peter bears his load of cowardly guilt, crucified upside down, unworthy, he says, to be martyred the same way as Christ. No one could touch Caravaggio, for capturing the sheer weight of the Gospels. His faith is carnal. The bodies in his masterpieces are trapped in flesh, even when they're the son of God. But wasn't that the point of the Gospel? Christ's presence on earth, not as a weightless angel, but in the flesh of man. That kind of depict a lot, didn't it? Was there really? much code there? Oh, yes, yes. Well, but, but, yes. I am of the opinion that the uh, the whole of the New Testament story about Jesus, mm -hmm. the whole of the New Testament is a metaphor. The entire really? story is a simply it is a symbolic metaphor telling you truths that have always been known by mankind for thousands of years, and it's just being retold to us in what we call the New Testament, mm -hmm. and it's a metaphor. And once you understand the symbols that are talked about, and, and understand the symbolism, it all begins to make sense. For the first time, you're not seeing it as history, you're seeing it for what it is, an encoded story, a metaphor. Is everything coded? 
just about just about everything. I've talked with so many rabbis, and they said, "Yes, there are many codes in the Bible we we don't tell you about." Dan Brown, the Bible code, right? Yeah, that's right, the Bible code. But that's just one. I was told by rabbis that there's at least seven codes in the Old Testament. There's a Torah code, the Torah, the Torah code. And so, a, a classic example is when you're looking at the story of the Holy Ark, uh, Indiana Jones, the, the Ark of the Covenant, of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Well, the Lost Ark is supposedly the Lost Ark of the Hebrew, the Jewish Lost Ark. Correct. So this is Jewish story. Right. Well, why did Steven Spielberg have Indiana Jones go to Tibet first? Good point. When he was looking for the Ark, and then from the when, from Tibet, where did he go? Uh, once he got what he was looking for, uh, where did he go to find the lost ark? In the Holy Land? No, Egypt. And he found it mm -hmm. in Egypt. Why? Because the whole story is based on an Egyptian story. It was called the Ark of the Contract. Well, the contract can be called the Covenant. So, therefore, the Hebrews call it the Ark of the Covenant. No, it was originally called the Ark of the Contract. And it's an Egyptian story, not Hebrew at all. And it has its beginnings in Tibet. Well, Steven Spielberg is a lot of things. <laughs> Where did he get the information from? Well, this is my point. Steven Spielberg is a lot of things, but stupid is not one of them. He right. knew what this story is really all about. And in order to get the understanding of the lost ark of the Hebrews, you've got to go to Tibet. And from Tibet, you trace the, you trace the conceptual idea to Egypt. And the whole thing is an Egyptian story directly from Egypt. Did, did it happen? Well, I don't think so. But it was a story in Egypt, and it was based on something that goes back to Tibet. And I don't know. I wasn't there in either place. I mean, some say the Ark of the Covenant is in a church in Ethiopia. Yeah, well, that, that Who I... knows? No. Stormed the church. All right, let me explain something to you. First of all, where do we find out about the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it's in the Bible. It's well, in the if, Bible. You know, then if it's in the Bible, what does the Bible say about where the Ark of the Covenant is? It says, it tells you exactly where it is. In the book of Revelation, it says, God took the Ark of the Covenant to heaven. Mm -hmm. And it's in heaven. It's not in Ethiopia, it's in heaven. That's what the scripture says. You believe that? Well, I mean, but or is there a code there too? There's a code there too. But the point being, it's not in Ethiopia. That's a, you know, that, this goes back to the black Israelite stories and the British Israel stories and the Masonic uh, you know, Knights Templar stories. It, it's, all of these are ancient stories that are just circulating and it gets into motion pictures and movies. I tend to agree with you there, too. So, or they would have gone to that church and they would have found it. Of course. Even if it was buried somewhere, they would have found it. Right. Keep in mind, too, when you talk about uh, when you talk about motion pictures, uh, what we call the Caucasian man or the white man, so so to speak, comes from Europe, northern, mm -hmm. eastern, western, and southern Europe. So anything happens in anything in northeast, west, or south is news. So in in Europe, before the Roman Empire existed, in that area, northeast, west, and southern Europe was already a, an establishment of, of civilization. They were referred to as Druids, and the Druidic culture, they were the, they always, their symbol for power in the Druidic culture was a magic wand, like Merlin the Magician with the magic mm -hmm. wand, or the orchestra leader <laughs> with the magic wand. Right. And you play the tune his way, not your way. 
Magic wands were always made out of the wood of a holly tree. It's made out of holly wood. Get it? <laughs> yeah. And then you begin to say, oh, I see what's going on in holly wood. It is a druidic magic, but it's a legitimate magic. It's not sleight of hand like the magician. No, no. There's something else going on. It has to do with the other world. Other world entities are guiding and directing the destiny of the human world, and we don't know it because we're so ignorant, ill-informed, and self-centered that nothing would, we would never follow anything. Why are these messages all hidden, George? I mean, people like you decipher them, find them, but most people don't. I know most people are not interested. Well, they don't. They don't see right. They don't see on their. And, their and, and I always say, you know, they're not interested. So why why look for something they're not interested? But you see, I've always. Even when I was a child, had other world experiences. I grew up seeing things and experiencing things other children didn't. Jordan, we are on a roller coaster <laughs> of life. Greg Braden from his uh, Gaia television show, Missing Links, tends to agree. Yeah. It's causing these extremes in our world. Why are they happening right now? Well, it's all about cycles, cycles of time. Scientists now recognize that we are living the rare convergence of three massive cycles of change. Cycles of climate, economic cycles, and cycles of human conflict. And I want you to know these are natural cycles, and they follow natural rhythms that we can know, we can predict, and we can calculate. And they appear on a regular basis. And that's what makes today so different. All three of these cycles are appearing at the same time. They're colliding right now, and it's happening in our lifetime. You know, you shake your head at all the things that are happening on this planet today, and it's so frustrating for so many people. It's so chaotic. How do we fix it? How do we really look for some solutions to some of these ills? Or maybe we never can. I hope we can. <laughs> I kind of hope we can, too. But it looks pretty, it looks pretty bad because you've got seven and a half billion people on the earth and out of billions of people there's only a handful of people who've always has been only just a handful who really are scientific in their minds and they're open to everything they're open to research everything to understand where things have come from are they going to be the ones to fix this well they're the ones that are trying to wake up they're the ones that are trying to wake up the world today like yourself and you yeah but without people like you to give people like me an opportunity to speak uh, you know we are kind of a small group and we're trying to help the, the whole human family hopefully there might be some sort of a, a cosmic event in which God so to speak will do something to awaken humanity to who we are where we've come from and what we're doing to our earth and what we're doing to each other, man's inhumanity to man. That would be nice. However, I think we have to do it ourselves. Well, I'm, I'm afraid so, yeah. So that's what we're doing here. We're trying to educate people who want to know. That's all. And this is a very big point. They want to know. Most people don't care to know. And so, as I said, until you get to be at an age where you're looking at passing away from this world, 
then you start thinking about you know, what life is all about and your family, what's going to happen to them, and where you come from, and then you want to know the mysteries. Now it's too late. You should have you should have started a long time ago taking life more serious. And so I, I do the best I can. I traveled all over the world talking about theology and religion. And believe me, once you get into that subject of theology, it opens up a massive world of knowledge you've never heard of, you've never seen, and did know, know, know nothing about. And when you find out where these different religions have come from and how they're connected to government behind the scenes, well, it's an extraordinary story. I mean, we, we, there was a book called "I Will Be Done," and it was on the subject of how the oil companies finance churches around the world to send out missionaries. So many of the missionary movements of the church around the world are financed by oil companies to find more oil, probably, <clears throat> or prepare the people for the oil companies to come in. You prepare them. You get yeah. them, you know, depending Acclimate. on you, and you give them little trinkets and give them money and food and whatever, and then they are ready to accept you. Well, now they're ready to accept Western civilization, your, the way you live, the, your banks and your government and, your, and everything. And so you've slowly, surely moved on and colonized uh, through money from oil companies. So I'm just saying, unless you are prepared to look at the real truth and understand that you don't have the whole truth, and as a matter of fact, most people have no even knowledge of what the truth really is. I want to ask you a little bit about symbolism of ancient gods and how that ties into what we're doing today. What What is happening in that kind of genre? Well, it's really interesting because the planets originally, going back as far back into history as we have written records of and know anything about, there were three basic cults. They turned in, the, after those three basic ones, there are many different concepts and cults today. But originally there was an astral cult which, which was uh, stellar. They call it the stellar cult, mm -hmm. meaning that the, those ancient peoples read the stars. We call right. it astrology. Okay. They read the stars. They were nothing to do with the moon or the sun, but just, just the, the stars. stars. Then there was a solar cult, and they were worshippers of the sun, mm -hmm. only of the sun, nothing else. And then there was a lunar cult, the and moon. they were the worshippers of the moon. And Moses was, was a leader of the lunar cult. And when you begin to see how the lunar cult worked and what it taught, then you begin to see that was the basis for what we call Judaism. However, if you look at the solar cult, you will see that that was the basis for what we call Christianity. And so today, we are still worshiping the same ancient concepts and ideas in our mind. You know, the more we change, the more we stay the same. And we're still worshiping the moon today. We're still worshiping the sun. What do you recommend for people today with everything that's going on on this planet today that is very chaotic? Yeah. People are concerned. People are upset. What do you recommend they, they do to get through with all of this? Well, let me, let me give you an example of something I, I say often in my lectures. Um, if you have a two-story building and you're going to put a lot of weight on the second floor, like printing presses or mm -hmm. storing cars or something, the smart thing to do, for the illustration, the smart thing to do 
is to go downstairs, get on a ladder with the building inspector, go up and remove the ceiling tiles, and look at the floor that you're going to build on. Make and sure see it if holds it's going to hold right. that kind yeah. of weight. And so what you're doing now is you're standing under the foundation to get understanding. That's where the word comes from, to stand under the foundation you now understand. And so if you want to understand what's going on today, you need to go beneath the surface. Don't just look at the, what's being taught and what is believed by everyone, because it doesn't matter what everyone believes. What you see and what happens are two different things. That's it. And what you know. That's why the church was always the enemy of what we call the Gnostics. Because Gnostic in the Greek word meant to know. Someone who's not a believer, but they know for sure. And, and so this is where education and science comes into the picture of theology. And it, this is another story. Boy, when we get into religion, there's theology, and then once you understand what the word theology means, and then you find out what the word church means, uh-huh. yeah, and what saint, and, and people use the word Jesus Christ have no idea in the world what the word Christ really means, where it came from. It's extraordinary stuff when you find out for the first time, you say, whoa, I didn't know. What does Christ mean to you? No, it doesn't matter what it means to me. What what does the word actually mean? Where does it come from? Christ comes from a Christos, in Greek, Christos, which uh, Pillsbury has a cooking oil called Crisco. Right. Not Crisco, Christo. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and so it's an oil. So therefore, the oil goes back to uh, Lord Krishna in India. Lord Krishna, Lord Christos, Hare Lord Krishna. Krishna, or in Latin, Lord Christ, or Christ the Lord. So Christ basically means oil. And so if you're an anti-Christ, you're anti-oil. <laughs> but, uh, and, and it sounds simple and silly, but in actual point of fact, there is something to this.
either we're having a Jordan Maxwell vest and on Gaia. We just listened to the life and trials of Jordan Maxwell. And this is on Sacred Life Symbols, Dawn of a New Day. Let's see if that has uh, Jordan Maxwell on it. Because I did a search on Jordan Maxwell on Gaia. And that's what we're going to do, man. I'm watching my, my chickens and squirrels and wild birds come and feast on this food box I put out right in front of my window. So anybody can come by and grab a snack. What does the phrase dawn of a new day really mean? Jordan Maxwell suggests it's a coded phrase used by secret societies like the Illuminati to convey their secret messages in plain sight. <clears throat> he delves into the origin of this phrase, exploring the occult significance of the sun and its rising. What he reveals may be the signs of an invisible empire rising up to guide the destiny of America as a conspiratorial apparatus of control. Wake up and enter the world of the occult. This is Secret Life of Symbols. First of all, what we are talking about when I say the dawn of a new day, it's a catchphrase that means something to powerful people in the world that we're not supposed to know anything about. Dawn of a new like day. George Carlin said, for a, movie. a big club and you ain't in it. But if you were in the big club, you would already know what that catchphrase, dawn of a new day, really means. So in order to explain this New best World way Order, I can, my guess. we need to go back to the California legislature back in 1953. It's called the 11th Report Senate Investigating Committee on Education, published by the Senate of the State of California. And in it, the lead article talks about the fact that since many intelligent people seem to be unaware of the secrecy of governments and secrecy of things going on that we're not being told. And so the state of California investigating committee back in 1953 said, we would like to make a few things clear to you that communism is rampant around the world. And so as a California state Senate is saying that we would like for you to understand that Communism is not synonymous with Russia. Communism is all over the world. Russia just happened to be the first victim. It goes on to say that communism is actually a self-perpetuating group of people who want to control power all over the world and are using communism to exploit the people. It goes on to say that so-called this is in the California Senate report, and I'm going to read this because it's very important. It says, so-called modern communism is apparently the same hypocritical and deadly world conspiracy to destroy civilization that was founded on the secret order of the Illuminati in Bavaria in 1776 and that raised its hoary head in our colonies here at the time of the revolution. See World Revolution by Nesta Webster. It's a book on that subject. It says the World Revolution conspiracy appears to have been so well organized as to be ever continuing 
and ever on the alert to take advantage of every of every opportunity presenting itself or that the conspirators could create. It is significant in this connection that as early as 1783, when unsettled conditions and dissatisfaction in some quarters, a subversive anonymous sermons were circulated among the colonial army to incite dissatisfaction and rebellion. George Washington immediately called the army together, and in addressing them, he said, My God, what can this writer uh, have in view by recommending such measures? Can he be a friend to the army? Can he be a friend to our country? Rather, is he not an insidious foe, many some emissary perhaps from New York, plotting the ruin of both by sowing seeds of discord and separation between the civil and military powers of the national and of this continent? And what a compliment does he pay to our understanding when he recommends such measures and either alternative it's impractical in their nature. And this was taken from Marshall's life on Washington. He goes on to say, it is plain that George Washington believed that the center of this secret conspiracy to be, so far as this country was concerned, to be located in New York City. And felt it to be his duty to make such a charge. And here it goes on to talk about the recognition of May 1st, 1776 as the founding date of the World Revolution Conspiracy is not difficult to understand when it is realized that May Day is still today frequently uh, celebrated uh, even in the recent times by uh, rioting and bloodshed on a worldwide scale. It's a very interesting story about the beginnings of world communism and where, how it was financed and who actually put this world movement together. In the book, Conspiracy Against God and Man, it says much of what the historians had to say is enlightening. He cited, for example, the explicit testimony of one who was himself in close touch with the inner circle that founded communism and it may be presumed to possess accurate knowledge of its activities. And he was quoting this doctor who in 1914, in April of 1914, in an issue of a French occult magazine called Mystia, under the pseudonym of Paprius, wrote, and this is what this uh, individual doctor who was a member of the Illuminati said, side by side with international politics of each state, there exist certain obscure organizations of international politics. These men that take part in these councils are not the professional politicians or the brilliantly dressed ambassadors, but certain unpretentious, unknown men, high financiers, who are superior to those who in their ephemeral politicians who imagine that they govern the world. So basically this person who is a member of the Illuminati is basically saying the people who think they run the world, the politicians, do not make the decisions, period. Secret societies and subversive movements. 
is a book that came out many years ago by Nesta Webster, in which she really explains and goes into the background of the Illuminati and the general secret societies and fraternal orders that are operating around the world to overthrow governments and to overthrow especially America because America has been the leader uh, around the world and in introducing the concepts of freedom and liberty and justice. And so these secret societies are not interested in the people being educated or being free. So there's a, there's a world of conspiratorial apparatus operating around the world to overthrow the United States and overthrow the whole idea of freedom and liberty and justice. That brings us to the symbolism of the Illuminati, the rising sun, because the sun is very dynamic and it's rising in the morning for all of mankind. It brings light into the world. It brings life into the world. So let's talk about the sun itself as a powerful symbol. We see that the sun lights the whole world. Well, this is why the secret societies are very big on promoting what they call light. You know, they're brilliant, they're intellectually superior, and so they have the right to run the whole world for us. They're called the Illuminati because they're illuminated symbolically by the sun. So we have the sun as a symbol for illumination. And now far back in mankind's history, we can see ancient sun worship. You know, the ancient uh, military used to wear sun helmets. Romans wore, wore sun helmets, and even today we have cultures around the world that are celebrating with headdresses, sun headdresses. So the idea of man being dominated by the sun is nothing new. And one of the oldest symbols of the sun was and still is an eagle. Eagles have always represented the sun, and the eagle incidentally has two wings, left wing and right wing. This is why in America you have something called left-wing politics and right-wing, because of the American eagle represents the sun order. All cultures have always recognized the eagle as the best sun symbol because it flies very high, it watches everything, its eyes are very sharp to see everything, and it dominates the skies. That's all there is to it. And so the sun does dominate the sky. And so the ancient, the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks used the sun symbol and the eagle to represent the sun. You'll see it in Rome. You'll see it in Greece. You'll see it on, on coins. And you'll see this coin is in Italy. Here's the Roman signature. And incidentally, the Roman signature SPQR stands for the Senate and the people of Rome. Fascists around the world. <coughs> I'm uh, rewinding a little bit here so I can take a picture. Boom. You'll see it in Greece. You'll see it on. on. Ah, uh, shit. They don't want me to take a picture of it. It's a picture that it says Lysinitus Constitutus Ultimatum Pagia. Here's the Roman signature, and incidentally, the Roman signature SPQR stands for the Senate and the people of Rome. 
fascists around the world, political fascists, have used the, the eagle. We see uh, it being used everywhere in the fascist world. The Italian Mussolini, uh, one of the, the bringers of fascism into the world was Mussolini. Uh, his insignia was the eagle. And here we have an Italian fascist coin. <laughs> and on that coin, you will see the eagle perched upon the fasci. It's a bundle of sticks with a hatchet head. That's another subject for another time, but a very important symbol. An eagle perched upon a fasci. And so here's another picture of another coin. And on the, on the right, you will see the eagle is perched on a fasci, a bundle of sticks that is, uh, that is tied together. It means something, and it's a very important symbol. What I think is important is that the American quarter is the same identical as the Italian fasci, because uh, America is based on the old ancient Italian Roman fascist system. Mm. And so the Nazis used the eagle. The, the eagle is replete throughout the world, especially uh, in national coats of arms, political seals. And there we have a classic example of the eagle actually representing the sun. This is why you see the, uh, the seal of the President of the United States with the eagle, the eagle on the back of the dollar bill. But this, this particular seal of the President, the, uh, the seal of the President of the United States with the eagle, the eagle on the back of the dollar bill. But this, this particular seal of the President of the United States is just cram filled with fascinating implications when you do the research into the whole seal on the back of the American dollar bill, one dollar bill. It is a very important group of symbols. It's all based on the number 13, the 13 arrows, the 13 berries, the 13 leaves. And here we have 13 stars above the eagle's head, and it's in the, uh, the configuration of all 13 stars is the Star of David as you will see, and the 13 lines, the whole seal is based on the number 13. The sun and its rising brings light into the world, and so it became a very powerful symbol for secret societies, especially Freemasonry, to give the idea that they're bringing light into the world. And that's what the sun does. One half of the earth is in darkness and sleeping while the sun is moving across the earth and waking people up. And so it's a war going on in heaven continually between light and darkness. The sun has always symbolized not only light for mankind to see his way each day, but more importantly, intellectual and spiritual enlightenment of the inner soul and the mind of mankind. So therefore, the sun has always been used for newspapers and magazines that are bringing new ideas and new concepts. So we see so many newspapers and magazines carry the word the sun, the New York Sun, the Sunday Sun-Times, Sun Sentinel, the heart of your community is the sun. So we see that the, the idea of the sun is in almost all newspapers around the world. Why? Because the sun brings light into the world where the <coughs> magazines are, are trailing on that idea that they're bringing light and <coughs> to the world. Here we have the idea of the sun 
rising between two mountains. And this is a very important symbol, the sun rising between, between two mountains. Here we see the, on a ring the sun rising between the mountains of the east. There's a sensational amount of material on the idea of the sun rising between two mountains. And many of the presidents of the United States have said that and used and said publicly that they see themselves as representing the sun rising between two mountains, between the mountains of the east. Well, here we have British Columbia with the sun rising behind the mountains. Here's the uh, Lady uh, Liberty walking toward the mountain. You'll see the sun rising. This particular coin in America is called the dawn of a new day coin, where the sun is rising on a new time, a new day. Now, the Soviet Communist World Movement, when it took over Russia, there were many different smaller countries in Russia, and they all had to accept the idea of the sun rising behind the mountain. And here you will see the idea is always the same thing, the sun rising behind the mountains of the east. And we see it today in all of our advertisements. Uh, here on, on a stamp uh, in, in America, we have a stamp which is almost identical to the Nazi eagle stamp. which is used by the Nazi party. It looks like a Nazi fascist symbol. And you'll see the sun rising between the two pyramids of the two mountains. Hmm. Now in churches and religions in general you will see the Sermon on the Mountain, uh, the sun rising behind the mountain and, and stained glass windows in, in churches. Here's a church in England and the altar has the sun rising between two mountains. You will see it uh, all around the world, this general idea of the sun rising behind the mountain. But what's important about this is that this is an illusion? These secret societies. Hey there, welcome back. And we were in the middle of watching uh, Jordan Maxwell binge fest episode of Dawn of a New Day. Oh, Secret Life of Sybils. Thanks for 326k, even though it's just law enforcement, but hey man, the pigs have to learn something some of these days, some days. So yeah, it's called Dawn of a New Day. Should incorporate that into my political speech. Dawn of a New Day. I'm thinking about like what it would be like to have a woman president. Yay! Fucking yay. Of literature of a very powerful symbol for secret societies, especially Freemasonry, to give the idea that they're bringing light into the world. And that's what the sun does when half of the earth is in darkness or sleeping while the sun is moving across the earth and waking people up. And so the war going on in heaven continually between light and darkness. The sun has always symbolized not only light for mankind to see his way each day, but more importantly, intellectual and spiritual enlightenment of the inner soul and the mind of mankind. 
So therefore, the sun has always been used for newspapers. The magazines are bringing new ideas and new concepts. So we see so many newspapers and magazines carry the word sun. The New York Sun, the Sunday Sun Times, Sun Sentinel, the Sun. So we see that the, the idea of the sun is in almost all newspapers around the world. Why? Because the sun brings light into the world where these magazines are, are trailing off that idea that they're bringing light to the intellectual world. Here we have the idea of the sun rising between two mountains. And this is a very important symbol, the sun rising between, between two mountains. Here we see the, on a ring the sun rising between the mountains of the east. There's a sensational amount of material on the idea of the sun rising between two mountains. And many of the presidents of the United States have said that and used and said publicly that they see themselves as representing the sun rising between two mountains, between the mountains of the east. Well, here we have British Columbia with the sun rising behind the mountains. Here's the uh, Lady uh, Liberty walking toward the mountain. You'll see the sun rising. This particular coin in America is called the dawn of a new day coin, where the sun is rising on a new time, a new day. Now, the Soviet Communist World Movement, when it took over Russia, there were many different smaller countries in Russia, and they all had to accept the idea of the sun rising behind the mountains. And here you will see the idea is always the same thing, the sun rising behind the mountains of the east. And we see it today in all of our advertisements. Uh, here on, on a stamp uh, in, in America, we have a stamp which is almost identical to the eagle which is used by the Nazi party. It looks like a Nazi fascist symbol. And you'll see the sun rising between the two pyramids of the two mountains. Now in churches and religions in general, you will see the Sermon on the Mountain, uh, the sun rising behind the mountain, and the stained glass windows in churches. Here's a church in England, and the altar has the sun rising between two mountains. You will see it uh, all around the world, this general idea of the sun rising behind the mountain. But what's important about this is that this is an Illuminati secret society symbol, which then begins to show you how pervasive the Illuminati and the secret societies are in world religions and world government and world finance. Even in the Islamic world, they still have the same symbol as we do. Basically, it means the two mountains goes back to the ancient Egyptian with the two statues. And that opens, that welcomes the sun each morning. And there were two large statues. And when the sun came up in front of them. The rising sun of the morning is called the dawn. So when spirituality and intellectual enlightenment comes into your heart and your mind, we say things like, oh, it just dawned on me. That's what you were saying. Oh, that just dawned on me. Dawn implies the sun has finally, uh, you know, brought light into your life, and you see now something. You like diaper dawn. 
if you can go back to uh, Christian New Dawn and do some research on that, you will see that Easter is referred to as a new dawn when the sun is rising again. Even in the Kabbalah, there's an article about the Kabbalah talks about the fragrance of Eden, where the one who is caught between the sun and the dying and the dawn of the day, watch the way these words, terms, new dawn and dawn of the day, stimulating himself in all the political rhetoric, all the political politics of the youth term. Bush sees a bright dawn uh, Brown calls for a new world, world order. Love is uh, an action. Uh, uh, and here it basically says, let me call your attention to the fact that on the reverse of the great seal of the United States, which appears on our dollar bills, you will find the exact symbol of the British Israel World Federation Movement. This symbol is also carried on literature of other organizations promoting a world government and a world religion. At the bottom of the circle surrounding the pyramid, you will find the wording, Novas Ordo Seclorum, which is the new order that was uh, advocated by Clinton Roosevelt several hundred years ago and recently by the book Philip Drew and is now being followed in this government, the United States by the executive. The book is called Philip Drew uh, that really explains what is all of this symbolism means. It was written by a Colonel Edward Mendel House and he was a very close confidant of President Woodrow Wilson. Edward Mandel House wrote a book about his ideas about world government. And here is the president, uh, President Woodrow Wilson. And on the left-hand side, you will see uh, Woodrow Wilson's friend, Colonel Edward Mandel House, who incidentally happened to be a member of the Illuminati. And here is Colonel Mandel House. Here he is with his wife in England. Here in the table of contents, you will see one of the chapters is a prophet of a new day. Another chapter was the exalted conspirators, the administration of the republic, talking about a new administration here in America, or the republic. Uh, Drew outlines his intentions, a new era in Washington. And another chapter was called an international crisis. And another one was the reform of the judiciary a new code of laws for America. And we can see that there's already a long time ago at the time of the First World War, there was already a conspiratorial apparatus coming out of England to set a whole new agenda for America. And in the book, The Masonic Orders of Fraternity, written by Manly Palmer Hall, he's talking about the Illuminati Manly. and the secret societies. And he said, these were the men of towardness, those sons of tomorrow, whose symbol was a blazing sun rising over the mountains of the east. While it is difficult to trace the elements of a pattern never intended to be obvious to start with, the broad shape of a design is dimly apparent, an invisible empire taking over the world. 
an invisible empire which was not supposed to be uh, understood to start with. But if you really study it, you begin to see that there is a conspiratorial apparatus to guide the destiny of America. And they were the men of towardness. Here we have the men of towardness building a new world. George Bush and the communist leader. Here we have a new order of the nation. This was uh, published by the United States military. Here's another book called America and the New Order back in 1949. Here's New York. And then New York is referred to as the Empire State, which is the new British Empire or the new actually Roman Empire. And so the new empire is here in New York. New York is a center for incredible treason and all kinds of secret societies and money and all kinds of political machinations are going on in New York against the American Republic. We begin to see that all of this is connected behind the scenes by secret societies that want to be the, uh, the directors of our destiny as a country and as a people. We need to look at a book by a man named James Billington. He wrote a book called Fire in the Minds of Men. James Billington is probably one of the finest historians America has ever been able to produce. James Billington today is the chief librarian for the Library of Congress. Hmm. He is considered to be a master historian around his He's taught history in England and America, throughout the world. He's an incredible writer, fascinating his views on the ancient history and the history of the world today. He wrote a book called Fire in the Minds of Men, The Origins of the Revolutionary Faith. And in it, he explains all of the machinations going on in the minds of the guys who are putting this conspiracy together to overthrow the United States. In the introduction, he explains something very important. This is the introduction, one of the introduction pages, where James Billington says, quote, A recent mythic model for revolutionaries, early romantics, and young Karl Marx, and the Russians of Lenin's time was Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods for the use of mankind. The Promethean faith of revolutionaries resembles in many respects the general modern belief that science would lead men out of darkness into light. But there was also a more pointed millennial assumption that on the new day that was dawning, the sun would never set. Early during the French upheaval or the French Revolution was born the idea of a solar myth of revolution, suggesting that the sun was rising on a new era for the world, in which darkness would be vanished forever. The image was implanted at a level of consciousness that simultaneously interpreted something real and produced a new reality. The new reality that these secret societies in the French Revolution, what they sought was a radically secular and stringently simple idea. The idea was not the balanced complexity of a new American federation, 
but the occult simplicity of its great seal on the back of the, on the uh, top of the pyramid over the words Novas Ordo Cyclonum. What he's saying is that Prometheus was a favorite of the ancient gods with the Illuminati because he brought light into the world. And so today at Rockefeller Center, the main picture and the main thing in the Rockefeller Center is Prometheus, who stole fire from God. Here we have the footnotes for the introduction where you will see that the idea for the revolution, they talk about back in the 1800s, they talk about the year 2000 in New York. I think that's interesting. As far back as the 1880s, they were talking about the revolution in New York in, in the year 2000. Well, that's what, you know, what, what happened in about 2000 was 9-11. This begins to imply that there's a very powerful secret society working behind the, the world governments to overthrow the United States and that 9-11 was part of it. Here's another footnote. In the back of the book, it talks, it says, even speculation about the year 2000 began not with the futurologists in 1960, but the dynamic work written back in 1780, the same figure who invented the word communist. The very idea of communism back in the 1780s, they talked about New York in the year 2000 would be a time when the whole government of America would be overtaken and, and overthrown. Well, it was. 9-11 has destroyed the whole concept of a, a freedom-loving constitutional republic. But most people are not aware of any of this. Now, let's look at some of the symbols of countries that use this rising sun for communist countries. Here we have in Romania, you'll see the rising sun behind the mountains. And this one is uh, Mongolia, Armenia, Arizona, Illinois, Montana. This is Ohio, New York State. So in the book, Flags Throughout the Ages and Across the World, you'll see this entry says, the Soviet coat of arms, which is left, graphically prevents the dawn of a new day for the entire world. Here we have another state arms of a country. The rising sun is a symbol of a new dawn for the country. The sun for Liberia, the sun which heralds a new day. Then you have the red dawn. This red flag represents communism. China has the rising sun. So these are just political symbols, but are all saying the same thing about a secret society's idea about how to overthrow the world of mankind. And you get the people to understand that they are going to be living like kings in a new world order. When, when all of this malarkey is all done away with, with peace and freedom and liberty and justice, and a constitutional republic is all overthrown and done away with, and now we will have a really wonderful world to live in, when we will all be equal, and we'll all live under the dawn of a whole dawn of a new day. And the people buy into it, because they don't know what the words mean. They don't know where it comes from. 
So the bottom line is quite simply that the world that we live in today is totally and completely dominated by and guiding the destiny of America and the world, being guided by a secret society, a most powerful, well-organized, well-financed, highly intelligent secret society that has America by the throat and has the world through the United Nations and all other international organizations, banking fraternities, has the whole world in its arms and guiding the destiny of the human race, and we don't know it. I'm Jordan Maxwell, and thank you for watching. Hmm. Excellent secret life of symbols. Um, dawn of a new day. Right. We're watching Rivoli F live. Right now. As the walls are closing in on Diaper Donald, Jack Smith strikes back. Come on in. How about some pretrial incarceration? At, at, at in the next 40 eight hours um, or so there will be a verdict uh, just to remind everybody New York Attorney General Letitia James has already won on summary judgment as it relates to the dissolution uh, the termination of Trump's and uh, the Trump Organization's business certificates we're now focused on disgorgement as a remedy. Disgorgement means kind of the return of the funds that Donald Trump made inappropriately through his engaging in fraud. That's what disgorgement is, returning it to the state of New York. And there's some also some other remedies as well, including banning Donald Trump from conducting real estate in New York for the rest of his life, banning Trump's adult children from conducting real estate in the state of New York for at least five years or for up to five years, uh, and a more permanent monitorship. There's an independent monitor, Judge Barbara Jones, um, but whether it's retired federal Judge Barbara Jones or somebody like that who would be looking through the books and records of the Trump Organization on a much longer-term basis. He is a monster. These are the people's comments. Post-judgment that can keep on being issued. So the New York Attorney Stop General calling them followers, call them called members. New case, new case, new case. If more fraud is no conditions have been enforced. Right Justice Arthur and Goron and Justice Arthur and Goron can make rulings <sighs> relatively quickly. Has anyone followed through with a threat? To happen quickly. Um, and in terms of He's the making a mockery of the justice uh, system. James, New York Attorney General, requested uh, $370 million or so. Uh, that Why does are not these judges so chicken shit? interest as well as penalties, if you talk about 9% compounding, six-year statute of limitations, period. You can see how that can bring the number up to close to half a billion dollars with the interest plus uh, additional penalties. So uh, I'm going to be looking for, for that. Is there going to be additional sanctions against Alina Abba and Trump's lawyers for their conduct? I'm looking for that. But Karen, as, as we get to this point and the conclusion, of, of this trial, and I want to get your thoughts there, which you expect. I, 
I, I just was looking back at some of these attacks that Trump made on Justice Arthur and Gore on the judge presiding over the case. And so there's the post he made today, when, and he's probably posted close to 300 to 500 things like this, like all in caps, all unhinged, state, uh, Democratic judge, operative, hates me, you know, all this disgusting stuff. It's not even worth, you know, our time be kind of rehashing it anymore. No, he, he posts, uh, Donald Trump posts these conspiracy theories about Justice Arthur and Goran's wife. There was someone on Twitter who had a name that was similar to Goran's wife or was the same. And then all of these kind of right-wing MAGA conspiracy theorists, the same people who are saying that Taylor Swift rigged the Super Bowl to that crew, said that this Twitter account was Goran's wife because they had the same name. Wife. You got Donald Trump posting photos of the judge with the shirt off. Um, you got, uh, I think we have, not that photo, Saltio, though. That, that's the photo of Donald Trump, and I, I, I censored it here with um, attacking Justice Arthur and Goron's law clerk and calling her Schumer's girlfriend. Um, that, that got a gag order against Donald Trump based on that conduct. It was actually the Midas Touch reported that, uh, that, unearthed, that unearthed that. That's from Representative Clay Higgins, one of the MAGA Congress members out there who uh, put the photo of the hitman from uh, Godfather next to Ngoron threatening his life. And then there was that photo that he, that he saw where Trump posted uh, Ngoron's uh, you know, body without a shirt on. And then there's posts of Trump uh, posting about Ngoron's sons. So, and we're talking about hundreds of posts like this, Karen. I mean, Getting on the ballot and my face. <laughs> your illustrious legal career, both in public and now kind of private practice. I mean, the the behavior like this is so unhinged, so lawless. Perhaps you can speak to that first, and then kind of your overall views and assessment of of, of what's going to happen. Well, like any other defendant, which, and I, I sound like a broken record because I've said this a million times, but I think it's worth saying, any other defendant who behaved the way Donald Trump behaved would be locked up, period, full stop. He would be put in jail. You cannot, you cannot threaten people. You cannot encourage violence against people. You cannot dox people, which is essentially what he's doing by bringing in other people's family members. You know, there's been enough people who have responded to his clarion calls for violence, not just, not, um, I call it 9-11, January 6th, but it's, you know, such a dark, it was the other dark day in our, in our, in our lives, you know, because it almost killed our democracy. Um, but not just January So lock him the right? fuck it up was, already, it, get it, me on the ballot for sheriff in Tucson, Arizona, be, get a search, I mean, wasn't I'll get a Judge warrant Warren for his arrest, and, smiley and face. Wadding, you know, during this trial, and and it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's Letitia James or Alvin Bragg or Jack Smith, they all are all getting death threats. They're all being accused of of um, being racist and all, all the other terrible things that that Donald Trump says. And his 
followers. He, he, he knows. He said to Caitlin Collins on CNN and during the infamous town hall that his oh, listeners uh, and followers, they listened to him like no one else. So he knows, he's aware, and he's admitted it. And if he was anybody else, he would be put in. Do you remember Sam Bankman-Fried, who was um, who was the uh, prosecuted here in the Southern District for the fall of FTX, the cryptocurrency? He took one tiny misstep and was going to publish a a letter that um, that that uh, his girlfriend, who's a witness in the case, uh, gave to him. And guess what the judge did? Put him in. He was put in until he went to trial. That was it. Because each time, Donald Trump is a criminal defendant in four different cases. That means he has, was arrested and he was released from being arrested from custody. He was released with conditions. And those conditions require him to behave. They require him not to break, laws. To break the law. Yeah. And every time he threatens somebody, it's not just words. These have consequences and actions, and and that's that's how Donald Trump is being treated differently than other defendants. And and at some point, people will stop allowing that. But I, I don't know when or how how that will occur. But I expect that what that what Judge Angoran does hopefully will include some kind of whether it's a restraining order or something that is permanent that a lot that does not allow. Donald Trump to go after his family, go after his law clerk. Um, you don't have a First Amendment right to do that. You don't. You know, there's there words aren't. You can't just say when you say when you say something in words. You can't just say oh First Amendment, First Amendment, right? Um, there's 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 hundreds of years of of body of law that that says when it, when it crosses the line into conduct, it's no longer protected by the First Amendment, and and so. I think somebody is going to uh, hopefully make him finally stop. And maybe that's Judge Angoran. I don't know. But, uh, you know, taking away his businesses in, in Manhattan and, and potentially half a billion dollars, I think that I think he'll hear I think he'll hear that loud and clear. And that's going to send a huge message to him. So go ahead. I was going to say he's going to have to also post uh, bond equal to the amount of the judgment, right, or have some collateral, and time's already ticking on the E. Jean Carroll uh, necessity to post a bond if he wants to appeal there, $83.3 million bond to match the um, amount there, and I don't think, I guess there are some times where a judge could be accommodating when it comes to the type of collateral that could be posted, but the collateral is fruit of the poisonous tree, which is the actual fraudulent collateral. That's the basis of the lawsuit. I, I, I think that judges who have been attacked the way they have by Donald Trump will be less uh, susceptible to uh, finding leniency in arguments about creative forms of collateral. What, what do you think there, Karen? Yeah, I mean exactly. Why why would Judge Angoran do anything for him if and and bend over backwards for him when he's done nothing but torture him and his family? I mean, he's the worst defendant that I've ever seen, right? He's and and I've had difficult defendants. I've had very difficult defendants and Donald Trump takes the cake. So he he's just one of those he, he's just he's really doesn't listen. He he thinks the the world should treat him differently. So I agree with you. 
And then this ongoing independent monitorship, like I think the headlines are ultimately going to be the verdict amount, 370 million, half a billion dollars. But the, the legal geek in me is very interested, Karen, in the r- other remedial kind of measures there. And like one issue, the ongoing independent monitorship, you have someone like uh, retired federal judge Barbara Jones, who's been the independent monitor for the past 14 months. She sent this letter to Justice Agoron before the verdict, um, you know, about two weeks ago at this point, saying things like, look, my powers don't allow me to do more than flag these issues. But let me tell you, over the past 14 months, I found incomplete, erroneous, um, and inconsistent financial statements. And I've even identified a $48 million loan from some entity Trump claims to be 100% owner of, where the money just simply doesn't exist, which you know could potentially even be something as serious as a kind of unlawful debt parking scheme. So with that type of ongoing monitorship, the power there and I'm not sure if, if, if you've seen this from, from personal practice there in, in something in something in New York. The New York Attorney General would not, as I understand it, be required to have to keep on filing lawsuits that take years. You get the judgment and then an independent monitor now can go back to court and say, look what I found, make an order. Look what I found, make an order. So this isn't the end. You know, this is kind of the beginning of a whole new process even after Trump gets hit with this monumental verdict amount. I think that's the true power of this, right? Is is he can impose certain conditions on Donald Trump. And there's other defendants, if you recall, um, in the case. So so let's back up a second and talk about what Judge Ngoron is going to find and not find on Friday if that's when the decision comes down. So so he's going to have to make an assessment as to each of the other defendants, including uh, two of his adult children, his sons, who are also defendants. And I think that I think Judge Ngoron might not um might not find them liable. And the reason is number one, he signaled that he didn't see their intent. But number two, there's I think six or seven charges on that that he, they were charged with, and count number one is what what you referred to, that um, this persistent fraud, uh, this persistent business fraud under in under the executive law in New York sixty three twelve. Judge and Goron already found that, that that Donald Trump and others violated that. The rest of the charges have an added element. It's 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 the persistent fraud plus. The elements of certain criminal statutes, and um, and I'm not sure they will have met that burden on as to all the counts or as to all the defendants. And so I think Judge Anguan is going to look at each defendant and each charge and make individual rulings as to each. And and the good, I mean, first of all, that's what he's obligated to do, and that's what a trial is for. And and what I think is is going to be the added benefit of that is that it it will sh- it will insulate the judge on appeal because one of really Trump's main argument and what he says all the time and he said in that tweet that he issued today was that this is a judge that hates me he already had his mind made up against me 
end and he doesn't listen and this was just a sham, et cetera, et cetera. If the judge doesn't, if, if he makes those individual rulings and he, he doesn't find every single count against every single defendant, that's one way of insulating it that argument because the court of appeals will say no that's not true he did listen and this is what he found and it also i think interestingly what the fact that those charges are harder to prove than the persistent fraud charge i think it also highlights why alvin bragg who got a lot of flack for not bringing that case because it was exactly the same case, only a higher burden of proof. It would have had to prove those elements beyond a reasonable doubt. But when you have banks coming in and saying, we, would, we didn't rely on this. We didn't rely on this information. We didn't, it didn't matter. We weren't the victims of this. I, think, I don't think you could have gotten over the beyond a reasonable doubt hurdle. Whether you're going to get over the, um, the lower preponderance of the evidence hurdle, I think, I think he will have it. I, I think for sure that some of those will be found uh, will be found against Donald Trump. But I think the trial really highlighted why Alvin Bragg went with the Stormy Daniels first election interference case rather than than this case because because this case require requires a lot more um, a lot more. So I think that's what you're going to see with the verdict. I think you're going to see some of the defendants, like some of the kids. It won't be all the charges against all the kids, but I think you're right that the ultimate verdict because it kind of doesn't matter. Um, the judge is going to is going to because the persistent fraud is there. That count one is there. The top charge. You are going to see a sweeping sweeping verdict that I think will be protected on appeal. Well, look, we could be heading into March where Trump having to post a bond of somewhere near $500, $600 dollars. Um, and then, as we talked about earlier on the show, a trial date being set in the Manhattan District Attorney criminal case. And there's a world where by the time we approach the summer, Trump is a felon. Trump owes close to half a billion or more in judgments. And I'm sure when we started Legal AF and we told the Legal AFers and the Midas Mighty out there that that's where we saw this going. Um, and if we said that's what was going to happen, I think we'd probably have a lot of doubters then. But I think it's important that we follow the data like meteorologists follow the weather patterns and we can have some pretty reliable predictive measures. You know, court is a is a human process. It's not an algorithm, though. So sometimes strange things, quirky things happen. But, you know, we've done our best to try to hide everybody where we think this uh, is is happening. Speaking of which, when we get back, I want to talk about what's going on in the Washington, D.C. federal criminal case, Donald Trump seeking an application for a, a stay with the United States Supreme Court. He filed that on February 12th, which was that last date that the D.C. Uh, Circuit Court uh, gave them. We'll talk about that. And special counsel Jack Smith filing and you and I thought that was going to happen, Karen, special counsel Jack Smith filing his reply, even though the Supreme Court gave Jack Smith until um, the 20th, six days early. Yeah. You know, we, we said Jack Smith will file that within 24 to 48 hours. And that's exactly what he did. We'll talk about Jack Smith's response. We'll talk about um, uh, Trump's filing. Uh, we'll talk about all of that when we come back from uh, our last quick break.
January is coming gone, but it's not too late to start your New Year's resolution. And no, I'm not talking about getting tangled so up in an elliptical or eating some depressing food. <laughs> Here's one that will stick, which is comfort food. Yeah, I gained a lot of weight during the holidays. Very depressing. Without my uh, spirit animal, Dr. Baker, service dog. And the rest of my animal family. So uh, make sure you get me on the ballot so I can get them back. I think uh, if I win this election, I should be able to get my service dog back. It was a cruel summer. Cruel. It's, uh, it seems to be like freezing. Well, I noticed there's like the biggest spike I've ever seen, uh, um, like 3,500 in one day, which is, um, that's new records. So thanks for that. I don't know exactly what it was. Maybe it's a combination. I've been doing some pretty groovy programming lately. Did some Gaia mind control, Donald Marshall and Hollywood. Jordan Maxwell. So the hits just keep on coming, man. Um, <clears throat> I just and uh, use them as a means to kind of reach out to the community, like he did uh, one on the <clears throat> Mount Sinai and how Moses was tripping balls. <laughs> Brendan Mazaroth. Ordinance of Heaven. I'll be posting that shortly. Solomon's Temple in the Ark. Hmm. Did I do that yet? I don't think I did. Jordan Maxwell. I'm having a Jordan Maxwell binge fest. I wonder if I had created that word. I invent that word, binge fest. It's a cruel summer. This is Secret Life of Symbols. The Ark of the Covenant and King Solomon Temple, two of the greatest mysteries of the ancient world, leaves many baffled when searching for proof of their existence. Jordan the Lost Ark of the Hebrews is today referred to as the Lost Ark of the Covenant. It was a nice, very nice picture of what the Lost Ark of the Covenant of the Hebrews looked like. But here we have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant carried by the priest of Israel. It's a large chest with uh, two angels sitting on the top of the chest. And incidentally, the chest was said to be so important and so holy that one could not actually touch it. You would not want to touch it for you will die. And so God said to put ring eyes on the side of the chest and put poles through it so you could carry it without touching it. So that's interesting that this is a general idea about what the Ark of the Covenant of the Hebrews Radioactive, there, there, there. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbolic connection between God and the Hebrew people.
the, the things which both God and the Hebrew people held to be so sacred to their relationship. So the idea was is that both God and the Hebrew people agreed on certain things were so important that they would put it into this chest and protect it and keep it together. And so it represented God's connections with the ancient Hebrew people, uh, the most important symbols. We're told in the book of Revelation uh, what the items were, and we'll get into that later, but because it's actually written in the Bible what was in the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't used as a weapon as such, but we're told that it, it was able to kill you. It was able to strike you dead if you touched it. But I don't know if it was actually used as a weapon, but it was a protection. A generator. There was a generator. That, that if you touched it without Apparently it fits the... you could die. Today the we have thingy. pictures like this showing the, uh, the uh, Israeli the priests, the, the ancient priests of Israel, and uh, showing how much they adored and this he powered the pyramid. Uh, an important Ark of the Covenant. Here's a picture of King David. Uh, bringing the lost Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and everyone not in the procession is on their knees, realizing that the Ark was representing the very presence of their God in their presence. And these were very holy symbols to the Jewish people. There have been many books written about the lost Ark of the Covenant, of course, and two books in particular that... that deal with the point I wish to make. Uh, one is called Lost Secrets of the Sacred Ark. And of course there have been a lot of lost secrets relating to the Sacred Ark. Sir Lawrence Gardner in England, which was Sir Lawrence Gardner, he had been knighted by the Queen and he was an expert on these arcane subjects like the Ark of the Covenant. And then there's another one called Secrets and Mysteries of the Lost Ark. So, the reason why these two are important to my conversation is because I want to emphasize that there were a lot of secrets and mysteries in relation to the Ark that maybe people still don't know today. So, the most important secret of all concerning the lost Ark of the Hebrews is that it was not Hebrew at all to start with. There was no Hebrew Ark in history. The whole idea of an Ark of the Covenant, covenant simply means contract, and so the whole idea of the Ark of the Contract or Covenant was not Hebrew at all, it was Egyptian. And mm -hmm. so let me show you what I'm talking it's about. from the pyramid. If you go to Bible dictionaries and look up the word Ark, you will see that even the Bible dictionaries tell you that the very word Ark comes from uh, the Egyptian, and then it shows you a typical Egyptian Ark. And then if you go to another Bible dictionary, it talks about the Egyptian Ark, or the sacred chest. And so now you begin to see, when you start doing the research on the lost Ark of the Covenant, you begin to see that uh, a lot of pictures have come out of the ancient world showing you that the Egyptians had an Ark, not the Hebrews. And here is an Egyptian Ark and an Egyptian priest in an Egyptian museum. So my point in showing you this is the fact that the lost Ark of the Covenant was borrowed. The idea was borrowed from the Egyptians. Here's an ancient Egyptian priest uh, with their golden Ark uh, on an ancient Egyptian wall uh, painting showing the priest carrying the golden Ark. And this particular one picture is on the temple 
of Ramesses at Abydos in Egypt. And you will see there is the lost, there is the ark, and the ark of the contract, the ark of the covenant. But you don't see Hebrew priests carrying it. You see Egyptians, because it was an Egyptian ark to start with. Uh, it's an Egyptian god Anubis on the left, uh, sitting on, on the right on his holy ark. Egyptian ark Anubis was, a, was pictured as a dog because it represents the star system of Sirius, the dog star. And so Sirius, the dog star, when, in order to honor the god of, in Sirius, they, they made it into a dog. So because Sirius is referred to as the dog star. But the point is, on the right-hand side, you will see the dog star uh, sitting on the Holy Ark of the Covenant in Egypt. And here is, uh, here is that same ark when it was originally found by Lord Carnarvon in Egypt many, many years ago. Uh, if you'll remember in the movie, Indiana Jones has to find the lost ark in a tomb in Egypt. The very word, uh, the lower paragraph says, the very idea of the Ark of the Covenant was copied from the Egyptians. So this is what you'll find in most all reference work. It will tell you, even in Bible dictionaries, will tell you there was no Ark of the Covenant in Israel, but there was an original Ark of the Contract in Egypt. So here we see on the left-hand side the Egyptians carrying their holy Ark, and on the right side, the Hebrews carrying the, uh, the, the, the Ark, which was the borrowed story. And so the original Ark and the mythical Ark. This is very important to keep in mind. Because when you look at the lost Ark of the Covenant, it supposedly is a very important symbol to the Hebrew religion. But now we're finding out that it's actually an Egyptian symbol. It had nothing to do with the ancient Hebrews. <laughs> Even National Geographic did... Uh, a, a piece on a, a video show on the Ark of the Covenant <clears throat> in which they entitled it Many Legends but No Evidence. The idea of having a holy chest or a holy ark is an Egyptian idea. It's an Egyptian concept. The point being is that it would have been a copy of an Egyptian ark. And so today, incidentally, in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, in Ethiopia, they claim to actually have the original Ark of the Covenant of the Hebrews at that church. But they go on to say that the object is currently kept mm. under strict guard in the treasury of the church. And so you can't come in to mm. see it. But they've got it, but you can't see it. Which mm. is, of course, convenient because you don't know if they have it or not. Mm. If they have it, you can't see it anyway. <laughs> There are many mysteries surrounding the ark, many questions about what is it and where is it and who actually owns it. Uh, but I don't believe that the Ark of the Covenant uh, ever existed. From my, from my understanding, it never existed. It was borrowed from day one, the idea from the Egyptians. However, there are many other mysteries and strange things in relation to the ark in the Holy Bible and the New Testament, the last book of the Bible is called the Book of Revelation. And in the Book of Revelation, it tells you why no one has and no one ever will find the lost ark. And it says, the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen the ark 
of the covenant, the Ark of the Testament. Now, the next subject I would like to share Temple with you of is God about was the in heaven. King Solomon in the Bible. A very important name in the biblical history of the Hebrews was King Solomon. And incidentally, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem today is preparing, and they've already spent $27 million, we're told, on preparing uh, a building for the rebuilding of the Jewish Temple, the Old Temple of Solomon. Uh, the first thing we need to know about the ancient temple of King Solomon is that there was no ancient King Solomon to start with. And he didn't have a temple either. Huh. There are some reference works out there about the temple showing that it was, uh, it was just a story and that there was no temple. And today there are very lot of academic books being written about the whole idea of King Solomon as a king, as a myth, huh. a king that never existed. And so here's, here's one article called The Myth of Solomon. Uh, this is written in the Department of Classical and Near Eastern Studies in Melbourne, Australia. Another book called The Templars or The History of the Myth from Solomon's Temple. Ultimately, uh, Solomon became king because his father was King David. So when, when his father uh, left the kingship, it was given to King Solomon, his son. King Solomon was very famous in history for being a very wise man and, and very, very highly you know, intelligent and very interesting. Uh, he was a very wise man, wise King Solomon. Yeah, the we're told that he built a whole, uh, a whole nation uh, and, and great temples and all kinds of marvelous things that this King Solomon did for the Jewish people. But in point of fact, today, uh, reference works coming out of Israel say that there's no evidence that King Solomon ever lived. And for sure, there's no evidence a, a great civilization or, or temples or anything at all was ever erected to King Solomon. They've never heard of him. Donald Rufford, an author and leading authority mm. on the era, uh, writes in frustration about the absence of anything to verify or uh, to prove the Bible stories. He writes, such topics as the foreign policy of King David or his son Solomon, Solomon's trade in horses and in his marriage with Pharaoh's daughter must remain themes of the Midrash and fictional treatment because it was a fictional story. Midrash is the commentaries uh, of the ancient rabbis, commentaries written about stories that we read in the Old Testament Bible. Here's Philip Davies uh, in search of ancient Israel. He discounts in any possibility, he says, quote, a Davidic empire administered from Jerusalem, the range of indices uh, considered by Jameson Drake, make it necessary for us to exclude the Davidic and the Solomonic monarchies let alone their empire and a non-biblical history of Palestine. So what the article is saying is that it's very difficult to prove there ever was a King Solomon or a King Solomon's reign of, in Jerusalem. There's just no proof of it. Nothing can be unequivocally attributed to Solomon, nor is there any trace of a great culture that he developed. 
Hazar, Megiddo, Gezer, they have been widely excavated and palaces, temples, and fortifications have been found, but none mentioned Solomon. People believe such myth and they succeed in their purpose because they are attractive stories and convincing. If they were not, they would be useless. The popularity of myths cannot be any so evidence. So his name is never mentioned in the... Been found, but so none mentioned Solomon. Swiss. It says, uh, none mentioned Solomon and the important buildings seem to be dated before his supposed time and after. Cartouches of... People believe such myth mm -hmm. and they succeed in their purpose because they are attractive stories and convincing. If they were not, they would be useless. The popularity of myths cannot be any evidence of their truth. No. Another article says the absence of any historical confirmation of a Solomon simply does not uh, deter biblical scholars. God has told them that there was a Solomon, and so what scholarship can contradict that? One of the most uh, popular and, and very well-known uh, uh, scientists and uh, historians in Israel his name is Israel Finkelstein, and he has written quite a few very important books here lately concerning uh, Israel's history. And in this one, The Antiquity Scam Exposed the Gullibility of Believers. Israel Finkelstein, the noted Israeli archaeologist, observed that inscribed objects are extremely rare and proper archaeological digs in Palestine, and yet the antiquities market kept producing them by the cartload. Mm -hmm. Now, quoting Finkelstein directly, there is, he said, there is an eagerness all over the world in museums to display antiquities of great value, and there is no question that some of them were not careful enough in their methods. It was some sort of a naivete, something about wanting to believe. So this, if you go on the web Israeli yourself Museum, and look up Solomon's... Israeli Museum has 7,000 objects obtained in this way and the trade in these antiquities continues. So if you go on the web yourself and look up Solomon's temple myth, you will see that both Solomon and the idea of his temple is actually considered a myth around Saul the world. Oman. Solomon did not exist. Sun and moon. This article is Solomon did not exist. The archaeological evidence in Jerusalem for the famous building projects of Solomon is non-existent. 19th and early 20th century excavations around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem failed to identify even a trace of Solomon's fabled temple or palace complex. This mm. is from Israel Finkelstein. So we see that there are many articles that are written about the idea that the temple and King Solomon were both myth. Mm. If there was Why no King David or King Solomon, then where yeah. do we get the name Solomon? 
Saul is Simon. The origin of Solomon is simply the name of the sun in three ancient languages, Latin, Hindi, and Egyptian, as you will see. If you do some homework on the subject, you will see that Solomon comes from Saul, Om, and On, three names of the sun. Uh, at the top, you will see Saul is an ancient Holy Roman symbol. god personification of the sun, man, a sun name god of Heliopolis. named Saul. Saul is Latin for the sun. And then O-M, Roman Om, God, personifying the, the sun. Of Om, and it's a holy meditation symbol in the Hindi. And uh, so that's where we get O-M as an Om. And then, of course, the city of the sun. Today, we refer to Jainism. it as Heliopolis. It is actually in the ancient world called On, O-N. So when you take the three names of the sun, Saul, Om, and On, it becomes Solomon. But there was no man named Solomon. It's the name of the sun in three separate languages. Actually, the original name of Solomon was Shlomo. But the, uh, the Masonic orders during the early Middle Ages seized upon that name and changed it a bit to be Sol-Omar. Uh, it was actually a purposely mistranslated word because Solomon was not the original name of the king. Now we see that Solomon, according to the Masonic order, put Solomon into the, the position of being a sun god. And so that we see that Solomon, according to the Masonic order, put Solomon into the, the position of being a sun god. And so the Temple of Solomon was actually, according to the Masonic orders, the Great Pyramid of Egypt. Solomon's Temple was the Great Pyramid of Egypt, according to world Freemasonry, and because the pyramid was called the Pyramid of the Sun. And so it was the it was the Sun was Solomon, because they are trying to make Solomon represent a sun god because the sun is very important in world Freemasonry. And so the sun represents light, intellectual, spiritual enlightenment. So the Masonic order, it wants to take the Shlomo and make it into Solomon, as we see in the Masonic literature, and present King Solomon as a king of wisdom. He's a very wise king, wisdom or intellectual, spiritual knowledge. Freemasonry uh, quite this often person. will change names and change histories uh, to fit their, uh, their concept of where they're going with symbols. Let's look at the idea of Solomon's Temple as it's presented to us today uh, by the Masonic Order because it's a very important symbol in Freemasonry, Solomon's Temple. So how, do, how are we to understand the symbolism that the Masonic Order uh, designs Solomon's Temple? Well, let's look at the, uh, the layout. According to the Masonic Order, the old ancient Solomon's Temple, as it is uh, even today reproduced, uh, as if it were being built today, it is obviously a phallic symbol. The Masonic Order has used the same phallic symbol many times. The architectural uh, symbolism is very obvious. 
the whole idea of Solomon's Temple begins to take on uh, because of the World Masonic Order. And, and incidentally, the World Masonic Order is talking today about rebuilding Solomon's Temple. But here in Freemasonry today, we see Solomon's Temple as a Masonic symbolism. But it's based on sexual symbolism. A lot of people don't realize, unless you see it from above and see the Masonic architecture. The Old Testament Bible is filled with sexual symbols. One uh, example is the story of Jacob and his pillar god, found in the book of Genesis 35, 9-15, where Jacob is said to have fallen asleep on a rock, and when he woke up the next morning, he had a, a vision by God, so he felt that that rock itself was very, uh, very important, a very spiritual symbol. So he said that uh, this rock that I have slept on is a symbol for God's house, and this is where God is. He's in this rock because I had a great uh, a dream that God gave me. After Jacob dreamed that Yahweh stood on a ladder that reached into heaven and promised him great fertility, he awakened out of his sleep, the scripture says, and took the stone that he had put up for his pillow and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. That's from Genesis uh, 28, 10-22. On another occasion, we read that God appeared to Jacob and promised that nations would be coming out of his loins, and Jacob would set up a pillar in the place where he talked with God and the pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereupon it. Here's a typical picture of Jacob pouring the uh, sacred oil on the pillar that he slept on. This was obviously a phallic symbol. So many people attribute things to be sacred, when in point of fact they may mean something totally different. The whole world knows what happened to the Twin Towers in New York in 2001. The Twin Towers has become a very big subject around the world. But I want to show you where the idea, the concept of Twin Towers came from. We all know about the Twin Towers and the World Trade Center in New York. And just about everybody on Earth has seen it all many times. But there's more to the story about the Twin Towers, as you will see. Most folks are not aware that when you see two tall high-rises standing together, that this is a very ancient symbol coming out of the ancient world, uh, looking back to thousands of years ago. So let's look at the idea of two Twin Towers and what they symbolically actually represent. We see Twin Towers quite literally around the world, in India, in hotels, in Italy, in the Middle East, in Egypt, they have twin obelisks, or twin towers. In Islam, they have, all over the Islamic world, you have twin towers before the mosque. In Nazi Germany, they have twin towers Twin towers and churches, and these are in synagogues, for instance. These synagogues have twin towers. 
in the Masonic order, there is the two twin towers, which are called Jackin and Boaz. Twin towers are everywhere. And there's a reason why there is something called the twin towers. And that's what I want to get into and explain to you where this idea comes from and what it represents. You will begin to see the idea, the very concept of two identical towers is used in Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and of course in the in the secular world. And most people do not realize the actual reason why and what the Twin Towers symbolizes. So let's look at the origins of the idea of building Twin Towers with Twin Pillars. It all started in India thousands of years ago and then to Egypt and finally to today. In the book, Symbol, Sex, and the Stars and Popular Beliefs, which is a book discussing all the ancient symbols and religions by Ernest Bresenborn, dedicated to understanding the symbolism in the ancient world and how it impacts us today. And according to the Egyptians, you had two phallic symbols holding up uh, holding up the canopy of heaven. The two phallic symbols, or the two phallic pillars, is a very important symbolism in ancient Egypt and is found quite a few places. The Twin Towers idea, worldwide, in the old ancient Babylonian system, the kings that would rise in the morning between Twin Towers, two towers, this is the old Babylonian system, in India, you have the God standing between the two towers. It was an idea of twin columns. It goes back into the ancient world. The twin towers are connected to the concept in the ancient world of twin phallic pillars. Here we have the twin the pillars on each side of the opening, and then the twin, the large twin of pillars on both sides. The idea comes from a biblical story about a symbol which today has been taken up by Freemasonry. The Masonic Order has taken from the Bible uh, the story about Jackin and Boaz. They were twin towers or they were twin pillars and they represented two phallic pillars. And so we're talking about phallic worship now. This is something that a lot of people don't connect to the idea of twin towers, but it goes back into an ancient time where the idea was two phallic pillars, and they were called Jackin and Boaz in the Bible. And this is a Masonic uh, symbol today. It's been picked up and used in Freemasonry around the world. The reason why is because you need the two to hold up the heavens. You can't do it with one. And so the, uh, the ancient Egyptians always showed two towers or two pillars. There is obviously more yet to the story of Twin Towers, but I'm just giving you a brief introduction to the idea that there is a symbolism involved here that most people are not aware of until you begin to see how many times that idea keeps popping up. A lot of people, when you mention the word yeah. New Age, it causes visions of uh, people who are into metaphysics, spiritual Crystals. retreats, hallucinogenics. <laughs> all sorts of ideas yeah. are generated by the term New Age. <laughs> and it has become very important subject 
especially in the religious world, are we humans we, on this earth approaching a new age which is filled with darkness and evil? Because this is what Christianity is portraying the new age as. I want to show you that that is incorrect, that the new age is in the Bible all the way through the scriptures that talks about the new age. Everyone has heard the stories of the end of the world. Those, and there's a lot of talk about the new age as the end of the world. But very few people realize that both subjects, uh, both the new age and the end of the world, are the same thing. Let's start with the end of the world, and then we'll go to the origins of the new age. And then the Christian church's view First of all, we've been hearing about this idea of the end of the world for hundreds, if not thousands of years. There have been religions around the world talking about the end of the world, and especially nowadays with the world today. The end of the world, which implies uh, a world conflagration of wars and violence, atomic destruction, chaotic destruction of the human race, Famine, disease, wars, violence, revolutions, the entire idea of the end of the world is apocalyptic in proportions, implying the end of humanity itself. Let's see what the actual term end of the world really means from the Bible's viewpoint. We have books called The End of the World, How Will the World End? the atomic bomb in the end of the world, uh, the New Testament King James Version talks about, and the book of Matthew 13, it, talks about, it says that Jesus said the enemy that sows them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world. Here's Jesus talking about the end of the world. End of the world, but important is what does the word world mean, and where does it come from? Interesting also, in another scripture in the Bible, Jesus talks about something he called the regeneration. Uh, the footnote says it will mean a renewal or recreation of the whole social order on earth. Jesus talked about this regeneration and then adds that that regeneration will be God's kingdom. Here we have in the scriptures, talking about what Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, you who follow me, in the regeneration of the world. We've seen regeneration means of making it new, recreating the whole Renewal world. of the earth. And Sounds we ominous. find other Bible translations when speaking about this recreation of the social order Sounds of the like world. Sounds like they're just like... Refers to it as the new world. Flood it out. The Flood the world. zone every once in a while. In the Interpreter's Bible Dictionary... We see uh, talking about the regeneration, and it says that this regeneration, there is a reward in the world to come, which is a regeneration or a new world. So it does not imply that there's a destruction of the whole humanity in the world when there's going to be a reward in the time of re regeneration or the new world. The commentary Bible says, the promise has to do with the new world, a regeneration or a rebirth in an age to come. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Here on, in, the, in the Bible Encyclopedia, it says, in the new world, 
or the regeneration. Again, that word keeps coming up. Josephus used it as the restoration of the land of Israel. Jewish hopes uh, await a renewal both of the land and the entire world. And so the Son of Man, Jesus, his domination will be in the time which is called the New Age. So in the New Testament word world Dominion. is actually a Greek word aeon. Aeon does not mean world. It was a mistranslation and a misunderstanding by the church fathers who translated the Latin Vulgate. They took the word from the Greek aeon and thought it meant world. Well, now we understand, no, it was a mistake. World is, is age. Word age is actually uh, aeon. So when you're talking about, and when you hear people talking about the end of the world, no, it's the end of an age, which implies that there's a new age coming. And there's been other ages that, in, in the past, and we're living in a particular age now, and there will be a new age coming. For instance, here, here's a quote from a reference work on the Bible. It says, the world, or age to come, was a familiar expression among the Jews for the Messiah's kingdom. And in the New Testament, it's employed partly in regard to the kingdom as now established, and partly in regard to the future development, the age of glory. It is used in this latter sense by our Lord. And the ages of the world are therefore the great cycles of time. They're great ages where the degeneracy and corruption or the progression and development through which it has always been destined to pass and in part has passed already. So what we're talking about in a new age is the ages of time which have come and gone. Civilizations are founded and grow and then they die and new, and new civilizations come. And so the whole idea of Aeon is a continual progression of the ages of the world. Here in John 39, 32, it says, sometimes the world, and especially this world, seems to denote where elsewhere in the New Testament is called the present age of world. The New Oxford Dictionary, with the Apocrypha, it says at the top, Jesus said, I say to you that in the new world, so here's Jesus talking about the new world, no, new age. Interpreted Bible Dictionary, it says, consummation is fitly celebrated by a new song, wherein the return from exile heralds a new age. Now we're getting it right. So that it says goes on to say in the New Testament idea. It says recognizing his ministry, new teaching, keeps up compared his ministry to new wine. His bearers recognize in his ministry a new teaching, a new age, which draws with his ministry is a regeneration or a new world. Yeah, well, but it's new point? age. Why, why is this such Here a in Matthew, we see the offer study Bible dictionary. It says, where Jesus said to his apostles, truly I say to you in the new world. Again, the misunderstanding of the word aeon. It's the new age. Expository's Dictionary of the Bible says the Greek words, various Greek words are translated world 
and the Bible, age, aeon, which means age in translated world. So here's a classic example, just showing you very simply that the translators of the Bible misunderstood the Greek word. Now we will see that many modern Bible translations are correct when they are translating the word aeon, not as world, but as an age. Here we have, for instance, Jesus said, I will be with you. you know, he's talking about his apostles. And he said, I will be with you even to the end of the age, not world, end of the age. The Holy Bible, the New and Old Translations, we see Mark's clear distinction between the reward already in this age and the reward in the age to come showing that there's two ages, the old age and the new age. And it says in the Bible, in the age to come. New Testament says in, this is Ephesians 2, it says in the ages to come. This is a new translation. And now they're doing it right. Now they're saying that uh, aeon means age. Ephesians says in the ages to come. We even have Jesus 